Your journey continues on the enigmatic episode 100 spectacular of So Many Insane Plays. All right, next up, <laughs> Dwarven Demolition Team. This is a great card. <laughs> we don't have a lot to talk about here, but <laughs> two R, summon dwarves, tap to destroy a wall. It's a 1 1. This, we've addressed the fact that there's a strong wall sub theme in Alpha, right? Oh, yeah. And this card is, this card's hilarious. So I've talked about some noteworthy reprint patterns of cards in Alpha. Yes. This one has a, this card has a unique one because it was in Alpha, Beta, and Unlimited. And then the only other printing is bizarrely 8th edition. <laughs> so wow. that means this card, this I didn't know it was is, reprinted. Wow. Yeah, this card is inexplicably legal in modern. <laughs> 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 which is fantastic and it hasn't been reprinted between alpha and eighth and it hasn't been reprinted since and just to just to come full circle the set eighth edition has all of two walls in it and then the card rolling stones Jesus. which means walls can attack as though they weren't walls there are two walls in alpha carrion wall and cinder wall a three two and a three three by comparison and then there's for some reason dwarven demolition team <laughs> that's like the jade. That's like the jade statue thing, where he said it was, you know, was reprinted in ninth inexplicably. Right. Um, but right. this is even more inexplicable because there are no walls to deal with. Yeah. It's specifically designed to deal with walls. Yeah. <laughs> the, the eighth edition rating on Gatherer is brutal. People have slayed this card. <laughs> they, they, well, what's that called? So. I mean, it's not. What's very that good. called when you go on like a, a rate? You know, you go on like. Amazon Prime or whatever, and you 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 bomb. I guess ratings bomb. Yeah. Yeah. Review bomb. Yeah. yeah. They review bomb this card. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a little unfair. So the art on this card is fantastic. Oh, and like, the Alpha Beta Unlimited. It's awesome. Yeah, the APU art is hilarious. It just shows these two two dwarves in the foreground with their fingers in their ears because they just detonated this one wall, and the one dwarf in the background that didn't get out fast enough and is being tossed away, you know, from the explosion. I think it's adorable. Kev Brockschmidt, the artist here, has illustrated all of four cards in the history of Magic, and they're four bangers. It's Dwarven oh, Demolition Team, Keldon Warlord, oh. Personal Incarnation, and Verdurin Enchantress. Oh my god, <laughs> outstanding. We gotta get this person back. <laughs> I know. Kev Brockschmidt did, yeah, probably has one of the highest like um, quantity-to-quality ratios. Sorry, I said quality-to-quantity ratios in all of Magic. It's fantastic. This, but anyway, back to Dwarven Demo Team. Well, Obviously, there's more targets in Alpha than your average set. Yeah. This is an uncommon. And the I think one of the reasons the art is so great is because it's so colorful. Like, the you know, the, the it's actually the rich coloring. You know, when you yeah. look at the Alpha cards, there's a lot. There's some that are comic booky and have sharp lines. There are some that are more fantasy and are painted. You know, this mm-hmm. is like more of the – it's more of like a cartoony – animated but but richly painted and textured and then in brilliant brilliantly colored you know if you were just to evaluate alpha cards on coloring that isn't really their strength i think figure it figuration you know uh um design um you know there's a lot to admire about coloring i'm sorry there's a lot to admire in alpha artwork that makes it so iconic, but coloring isn't usually one of the things that stands out, and this is one of the few examples that I think it really, really worked well. And it uses a very limited palette to create a, a powerful effect. Um, yeah. And it's just so, I mean, even the, the figures are so well rendered, even though they're they're painted, you know, they're just like, like 
one guy's like really squeezing his eyes. The other guy's, you know, there's really three figures that stand out, which is, which is great. Um, yeah, there's Kevin, no ambiguity about what's going on here. It's very evocative, and you can see a range of emotion just on three characters. It's, it's pretty great. I, I was really excited about acquiring this card because of, solely because of the art, not because I ever thought yeah. I would play it. You know, I suppose it is possible that someone in Alpha will build a wall deck or an Alpha 40, and that at some point they'll allow some number of sideboards, and you might want to include this. But I won this last year in an Eternal Central's side. It, we were at a bar playing Alpha 40, and I was the only undefeated, so I got to pick first, and I picked this, and everyone signed it. And it's one of my prized possessions in my growing Alpha uh, card collection. The only other thing I wanted to point out, it's not specific to this before we move on, but it's very relevant to our next card, so maybe we can transition to the next card as I mentioned this, Kevin, is that in the Gamma, at least in the Gamma list that's presented on Magic Libraries, there is only there is a card that didn't make it, that's just called Dwarves. Oh, yeah? It's a 1-1 red creature for red. And that appears to be the only dwarf. Yeah, it just says Dwarves. It's the only Dwarves that I can see in here. There is no Dwarven Demolition Team or Dwarven Warriors. Oh, oh sorry. that's interesting. It's a red, red it's just a 1-1 one, one, one creature that costs a single red, and it says cannot be blocked by walls. That's it. Cannot be blocked by walls. Wasn't that... Um, didn't that become Alibaba in Arabian Nights? Oh my god. <laughs> Close. I think Alibaba's an activated ability. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It says tap target walls, but very close, yeah. So that's it. There are no, there are no in Gamma versions of this, so they must have taken that card and turned it into several. Yeah, interesting. Several different things, but, but go ahead. Why don't you present the next card, Dorvin? Dorvin. Yeah. So, Sure enough, uh, when you think about dwarves in alpha, you might think about the, the demolition team first, but I think more commonly, especially because of rarity, is dwarven warriors. Dwarven warriors are 2R, summon dwarves, tap to make a creature of power no greater than 2, unblockable until end of turn. Other cards may be used to increase target creature's power beyond the two after defense is chosen. <laughs> so there's some some fantastic tactical, uh, you know, strategic advice there on the text, which is great. This um, well, this card is fantastic. I have very fond memories of this card from my early days in the game. Not that it's good, but just <laughs> that acquiring it really, it was evocative to me of what magic was about. And it felt like it was really telling me what I was supposed to be doing. But, uh, well, the short answer is I was wrong. I shouldn't have been doing that. <laughs> but this card still has a fond place in my mind for that reason. Yeah, I, I have, I mean, I think that a lot of players of our age group who probably first encountered magic in either 93 or 94 probably have lots of memories of this card not because they remember it being you know so heavily played in their constructed decks but because it was kind of an inescapable presence and it's just so (laughs) impressionable at the same time right (laughs) so common yeah yeah (laughs) cool well i don't i can't i can't remember a specific instance of it being in play or being used it might be helpful if you could remember one I think it, it may have been the case that people tried to use it with poison counters when the dark came out, but even that's elusive in my memory. Well, I remember back in the days, the very early days when I was playing like decks of everything I've got, right? I remember using this card a lot because it was a common and because I had several copies, <laughs> you know, I just I just put it in there. And so I remember using it a fair bit, but that it was never to do very much. I remember 
I remember doing it with carrion ants when carrion ants were reprinted, especially when they were printed in uh, in Chronicles, because I was one of those players who benefited a lot from Chronicles. I didn't have all the expensive Legends cards, and so I remember tossing carrion ants into a whole bunch of decks and then had some Dwarven Warrior action, but that wasn't a big deal. No, I didn't didn't have any great colossal uses for this card. I just really love the Douglas Schuler art. It's very detailed and... It to me it conveys a lot of cultural and emotion uh, elements of the dwarven people. Tolkien, because this is yeah, yeah, this is a very stern-faced individual, <laughs> and there are obviously some silhouetted figures in the background, but you just get the sense that this figure is very unhappy with you, and I just always love that about <laughs> it. <laughs> like, uh, there's absolutely nothing about this art that evokes the function. Unlike so many cards, even right. in Alpha, this one right. is just this is just. This is just giving you a, a out of the box high fantasy dwarf <laughs> concept and saying this is what they do. Yeah. No, this for that second sentence on this card, Kevin. Do you, would you consider that strategic advice? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it violates your. Does it irritate you to have that on there? <laughs> well, I, I mean, no, but it's it's comical by today's standards. Yeah. I recognize that it borders on reminder text. It, it's clarifying to a degree, right? And so, and in the alpha context, when so much stuff was very badly worded and templated, it's yeah. I can I can it's excuse excusable. them for having <laughs> yeah for some clarity. Killer bees, carrion ants, those are great. Those were great yeah. legends creatures that were great with this. And I also want to point out that we've recently, just in the last couple of days, had a variant of this card spoiled for Zendikar Resurgent. Oh, really? There's actually yeah, there's a card in Zendikar Resurgent called Sneaking Guide. It costs a single red. It's a goblin rogue. It's a 1-1, and it says 2 tap. Target creature with power 2 or less can't be blocked this turn. So it's this same ability, but the 2 mana is transferred from the mana cost to the activated ability. So this effect is still very relevant in Magic today, at least in Limited. All right, next up we have... This is a curious one. Earthbind. For a single red mana for enchant flying creature, which is noteworthy. Earthbind does 2 damage to target flying creature which also loses flying ability. Um, so there's a couple of things I want to point out. One is enchant flying creature is obviously functionally... <laughs> um, <laughs> it's really bizarre. The Oracle text does not reference enchant flying creature at all at this point, which is bizarre. It just says that if the enchanted creature has flying, it loses it. Yeah, yeah. Which is bizarre. I I am surprised. I, I never examined this in the last ten years or more. I'm surprised that the modern oracle wording does not require you to target a creature with flying because it seems pretty unambiguous from the alpha text that it, that is its point. You know, so much so as yep. it parallels um it parallels animate dead right enchant dead creature. <laughs> yeah, pretty unambiguous. Can you put an animate dead on a creature in play? Probably not. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> so it's strange that some of those things were carried, but it's not the first and it won't be the last. The the fact that it does two damage to it, I think, is actually really interesting from a design standpoint because this card is actually pretty flexible in the sense that it kills a small flying creature, you, you know, your your scrib sprites and your Mesa Pegasus, and if the creature is big enough to not die to it, it still brings them down to the ground. It's actually really efficient and and good. Like this is a removal spell on a scrib sprites, which is kind of nice. And if it's, you can apply it to a Shivan Dragon and then just, you know, mix it up on the ground with it. It's given the preponderance of high quality flying creatures in Alpha, as we alluded to, that's actually a pretty powerful effect, in my opinion. Yeah. Pretty generously powerful. Yeah, red is, 
Red is gifted with an incredible depth of direct damage, and I, I would consider this a, a version of that. But it doesn't have a lot of things that are specified to creatures, and this is this is the the exception, I think, that proves the rule. Uh, I do find I can't help but re- I can't resist commenting on your point. Obviously, the the more generous interpretation makes the card more useful because you know oh sure you you can now play Earthbind on I don't know grizzly bears and kill it um, under the Oracle text, but. I just looked uh, at the No, op- that doesn't that doesn't work. I'm sorry. It doesn't work. You can cast it on a grizzly bear, but the oracle text says if enchanted creature has flying, comma, Earthbind deals two damage to that creature. And oh my god. Okay. Enchanted creature loses flying. Okay. Yeah, all the effect of the card is tied to the the enchanted creature having flying. It's interesting. It just means you're allowed to cast it on a grizzly bear for some reason. So so under alpha rules or alpha text, you would assume that you can't cast it on a non flying creature. Unambiguously, it's enchant okay. flying creature. Yeah. <laughs> yep. It's also worth noting that the, that the well the league the, last... the league rules didn't clarify that they didn't specify that it has to be in a flying creature maybe they should the last functional reprint of this was in revised and it tacked on some language at the end which is funny for revised to add some strategic advice but it says if another spell or effect later gives target creature flying ability earthcraft does not affect this earthcraft has no effect <laughs> on non-flying creatures okay. <laughs> It actually yeah. says Earth Earth sides at Earthcraft. Earthbind has no effect on non-flying creatures. It's actually on the revised text, it's hilarious. which is wild to me. Yeah, that is that's not even. I guess that's strategic advice. Yeah, that's strategic advice. Sure, that is so weird. Yeah, this card's a is a cluster. Also, we we shouldn't pass up the notion that this art is pretty unacceptable by today's standards. Uh, this is definitely a scantily clad woman in a very compromising and uh. More than compromising, you know. This is this is a lot of violence against women depicted here. Great. And then you know, we're not going to have this art ever again. And it's there's no secret that this card hasn't been reprinted since Revise either. And if it ever were, because it's not reserved, it would definitely not be with this art, and rightly so. So, anything else on Earthbind? Nope. Well, I guess I guess what I would say is that if if you were going to be targeting cards for banning. Based upon, you know, it's not just the fact that the, the, the figure is scantily clad. It's the depiction being, mm-hmm. you know, absolutely. You know, that's the that's the the main issue. But both, but yep. uh, yeah, if if we're gonna ban cards based on imagery, for on the basis of misogyny or whatever, this would be a high candidate in my opinion. Yeah, and this card was pointed to in a number of by a number of people with the recent issues related to uh, the content creator program. And um, with respect to Elizabeth Eden's uh, dismissal from the program, that this, obviously this is a, quite an old example going all the way back to revised, but this is just one of many examples where Wizards has seemed comfortable printing images, um, l- leveraging the women's bodies, and yet they aren't comfortable keeping a member of their content creator program who does the same thing with her own body. So right. that's pretty inexcusable. Yeah. By the way, the gamma version of Earthbind just says creatures can't fly, and the uh, the image <laughs> the image on the gamma is awesome. It has a an image of a falling safe, and then a, and then a onomatopoeia that says zap. <laughs> it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> so that's interesting. It was far more akin to the the cards that came later. I think in um, well, I guess not exactly. All Creatures Lose Flying wasn't printed until much later, I think. But then there was one in Legend 
that said creatures with flying can be blocked as though they didn't have flying, right? I forget yeah. the name of that card offhand. Yeah, that's really interesting that this card became more narrow. <laughs> Not a lot of cards have that similar to what they did with Death Grip, I guess. Oh, no, it's not Creatures Can't Fly. It's Creature Can't Fly. It's still Enchant Creature. So actually what they did is they made the card better after Gamma. They added the two damage bit. I think that was probably a little, meant to be a little evocative of it falling out of the sky. Interesting. All right, next up we have Earth Elemental. Pretty simple. 3RR, Summon Elemental. It's a 4-5. We talked about the Elemental Cycles already in this show, so there's not much too much to say about this one. This is... Uh, you know, a, a paired partnership both with Fire Elemental in inside of Red, since they've just had the inverse power and toughness bit, as well as compared to Water Elemental, right, in Blue. Right. And this is just some, this is an uncommon, this is just some real good basic blocking and tackling stuff for <laughs> any magic set. And the there's su- really not too much to say about it. it. Too. <laughs> yeah, it, this card has only been ever reprinted with two arts, which is interesting. This one up to uh, Starter which is strange. This one was in starter with the same art. And then it switched wow. over to the new Anthony Waters art, which was in 10th edition, and then a couple of reprint sets. And strangely, it was in Battle Bond. I don't know why this was in Battle Bond. <laughs> it's such an overly simple card. But it hasn't been reprinted very many times. It hasn't been legal. It hasn't been good enough for standard and since 10th edition, and it was arguably never good enough for standard. It's starter yeah. and Battle Bond and Alpha. Is the, I, I don't <laughs> think there are any other cards that you can probably say that about. Maybe That's I'm probably wrong, but... true. This is probably the only card that fits that triumvirate. <laughs> That's great. Hilarious. And by the way, it also goes from 4th to 10th edition. What a weird yeah, jump. The true. That's a pretty bizarre leap as well. Yeah, and this is another Dan Frazier art, which, again, arguable whether or not this figure is put into some kind of context. There are some shades evocative of maybe terrain behind it, but that's it's it's pretty abstract. Yeah, very. Yeah, clay-based sumo wrestler. Next is one that we have alluded to a number of times already. It's Earthquake. For XR, you get a sorcery. Does X damage to each player and each non-flying creature in play. That's actually some pretty good alpha text right there, right? I oh, mean, yeah. the, the, the current Oracle text is simply Earthquake deals X damage to each creature without flying in each player. That's, that's not too dissimilar. Yeah, good job <laughs> on Earthquake. Uh, so the, the rare in the... It's not a cycle, but the rare in the, the trio of... Uh, X burn spells and the pair to hurricane, <laughs> obviously. Um, this, this starts the, this, it starts cementing the relationship that red and green have vis-a-vis damaging creatures divided by their yes. flying ability, right? Yes. This, we just reviewed Earthbind, obviously, so th- those two are in relation to this as well. Yeah. No, the, this card, I mean, this card is the predecessor to a number of very important vintage cards. Um, you know, Pyroclasm, um, which is, you know, obviously the mo- more efficient version of Earthquake. Uh, God, what was the card, Kevin? Firespout? Well, that actually saw play in some Brian DeMars decks, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, which is the the Hurricane-Earthquake combo. combo. It doesn't damage players, but you right. can get it to hit flyers or non-flyers, your choice. Right, and then there was some yep. versions that saw interesting play during the mm-hmm. various, you know, Xerox-era years. Like, um, yep. oh, what's the split second one? It's like Red Red 1. It's yeah, like, Volcanic Fallout. Fallout, yeah. That certainly is saw... Is that the split second one? So that's and don't all... forget the the modern version in black, Toxic Deluge. Oh, God, nice. Yeah. yeah. I think you're getting slightly to a different kind know, of card. But but Earthquake, so Earthquake is immensely powerful in Alpha and Old School, um, you know, both for its direct damage component, but also because 
there are a lot of decks that that it's very important against. You know, if you've got an, a, an opponent who's who's building, amassing an army on the ground, there are very few answers to it. You know that you can actually scale at besides like the, you know there's Wrath of God, maybe Balance, but Earthquake is basically the main answer. You know, if your opponent is playing Elves, for example, and it could be just Lanowar Elves, Finehorn Elves, you know, you know, Dark Elves of Deep Shadow, whatever it is, and they go turn one Elf, turn two Elves, turn two two Elves. Turn three, um, you know, a bunch of elves and giant start attacking. That's hard to beat, even in old school. I I was playing my blue red deck at NoobCon and um, I got crushed by a Russian player. Actually, I can't remember whether I I got crushed at least one game by a Russian player. Maybe no, I think it was a match. He was from Russia and he was playing just an elves deck, and it was just stomp me, Kevin. It was a stomp. It was a beating. Yeah. Um, and Earthquake is really the the kind of card you need. Also, Earthquake can deal with... Um, so it's not going to be so great against White Weenie per se, because a lot of the White Weenie things are like Thunder Spirit in the sky, you know, so on and so forth with Crusade. But there sure. are def- definitely other old school decks where this is a card, like a Goblins deck or something like that, where you really want Earthquake. So I've played one, two in my side... Sometimes one, one or two main deck, and definitely some in the sideboard to deal with the low-to-the-ground zoo-type decks that proliferate the format. Well, Earthquake has definitely been a mainstay in lots of core set-type formats. Or, sorry, uh, sets. It was in Alphabet Unlimited, 4th Edition, 5th Edition. Noteworthy that in 5th Edition, it got this wicked Richard Kane Ferguson art, which is really just awesome. I love Richard, Richard Kane Ferguson. We haven't talked about him at all here because he didn't work in Alpha. But go look at that 5th edition Earthquake art. And then it was in both the well the, the English Portal sets, Portal 1 and 2, then, then 6th, 7th, and M10, plus then some reprint sets after that, like Commander sets. So it, like many cards in Alpha, it was viewed as a staple for core sets for a long time, but it wasn't reprinted in any of the the ancillary block sets. Like, for some reason, unlike cards like counterspell dark ritual those kind of things earthquake was never in your ice age your mirage your tempest your saga it wasn't in any of those it's it's only been basically in core sets which i find interesting that is interesting it's fascinating it's it's interesting how a card can be viewed as such a a central part of the game but not be in any of those non-core products and also, I just want to call out, this is another Dan Frazier art, but this one has a definitely above-average context setting for Dan Frazier, right? Yeah. <laughs> You've got a figure who's well, <laughs> not only act, responding to the action that's happening, but it's also very clearly positioned directly on a fault line. Like, they're, they're on a grassy place that has just split away, and you can see they're right on the edge, teetering in. They're dropping their sword and shield. This is some some comparatively high-level context setting for yeah, Dan Frazier. Yeah. Dan Fraser is the swirl art background dude. Um, <laughs> no, I, I have to say that I find the compositional choices here intriguing because uh, the main compositional choice I find interesting is making a figure so large and central to this image. You know, the, the, the Richard Kane Ferguson art I can only just describe as abstract. So I'm not even going to begin trying to parse what that. Oh, it, I mean, yeah, it's, absolutely. It's gorgeous, but I'm not going to begin to parse. Um, the, the gamma art on this is hilarious because it's, ca- okay. it's Calvin of Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> and he's standing and, it, he, and shaking. And it just says rumble, rumble. 
above him and and he's <laughs> he's shaking so um you know that clearly is indicative of an earthquake whereas this you know yeah it does look like the the, the ground is heaving up you know and the figure yeah. is falling forward and sideways but i have to say i find i find the compositional choice intriguing here because in an earthquake thematically right the background the earth moving has to be the primary focal point and it's clearly not yeah yeah, I'm with you. This card could be mistaken for any number of other kind of emotions or effects on this character, like surprise yeah. or a, a number of other things that aren't directly tied to the ground shaking. Yeah, you make a fair point. Also noteworthy that the Gamma card is costed as red, X red. with two R's, yeah, which is was actually a functional uh, evolution of Earthquake later on in Faultline. I think Faultline is the card I'm thinking of that was the instant version in Saga, I believe. Yeah, which is XRR that takes Earthquake and just makes it an instant. So, <laughs> right. That's interesting. I'm looking at all the different art variants on Earthquake, and they, they just like, <laughs> they cannot get this. That's some comical they stuff. They can't get this right. The only one that really seems to me to be actually, you know, for, as someone who lives in an Earthquake zone, is Portal 2. Yeah. That one actually looks like an earthquake. <laughs> I mean, it's an over-the-top <laughs> earthquake, but <laughs> someone who's lived yeah. through earthquakes, and they are scary, I'll tell you. <laughs> right, right. And it's the Calvin and Hobbes art that somehow gets it the most yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> okay, this next card is a special case, and I'll tell you why. It's Elvish Archers. So we've alluded to how there are cards missing from Alpha. And the reasons why that is, and which cards those are. We'll continue to address that as they come up. But there's another category of cards in Alpha that we haven't touched on quite too much. And that is those that were simply misprinted. And this is one of them. So Elvish Archers is 1G, Summon Elves, First Strike. In Alpha, it's printed as a 1-2. And for those who have been following along for any amount of time, you know that that's not right. That's not what Elvish Archers is. Elvish Archers are supposed to be a 2-1 which was changed in all subsequent printings, beta, unlimited, and so on. This just goes down in history as a straight-up misprint, and if you play the card in any context, I think maybe outside of alpha, so I'll have to ask you about that, you would be playing it as a 2-1. But Steve, what's your experience with Elvish Archers, especially with respect to the alpha-specific formats? Well, in, in the alpha-specific formats, it's it's not too much of an issue because it's a rare and a fairly expensive one. <laughs> Um, yeah, and not a very good one either. No, not a very good one because it's one two. First strike yeah. is clearly significant, but this card is depowered to a considerable extent. So I haven't mm-hmm. seen it come up at all. Okay, fair enough. If if someone played it, do you think they would be required to play it as a one two? Absolutely. In alpha, in either alpha league or alpha forty, yes. In old school, obviously yeah. not. Correct. It's just yeah, not good enough in old school either. I mean, in old school you no, get savannah lions and yeah, you get. Uh, Kurt Ape, this card does not yeah. cut the muster. Well, the art is beautiful. It's really cool Anson Maddox art. Obviously, a little bit guilty of the Dan Frazier effect. This character is kind of devoid of context, but not entirely in my opinion. I think the green, in the case of an elf like this, the green wash in the background with some some light stripes could be excused for being a canopy overhead with trees you know, blocking the sun. And also, I really enjoy the notion that this character's hair is being blown to the side. So you've got a little bit of an allusion to the fact that they're out in the open, they're out in a context where it's windy, and you're looking up at them. It's actually a really interesting composition, in my opinion. It is. It's, it, Plus, it's you, very dramatic. You can't shake the notion of how this character is dressed. 
Yeah. It's a very dramatic action pose. You know, mm-hmm. it, it feels, it feels kinetic. So it's unfortunate. Yeah. And this, there aren't a lot of elves either. And, and, you know, so think about these like iconic fantasy tribes or whatever you want to call <laughs> them, right? Dwarves, elves, right. merfolk, you know, I guess right. merfolk is not per se a, a, a Tolkien group, but, <laughs> you know, um, that you don't get a lot of each of these, right? And, um, there's only two elves, right? There's elvish archers, oh. Lanawar elves, and Alpha. And, and Lanawar elves. Yeah. Yeah. They could have made some very interesting elves for Alpha. You know, some... Yeah, it's pretty noteworthy, to your point, that while green is cemented, so to speak, with two cards, as an elf color in Alpha, that one of them is Lanawar elves, which is obviously just the the forerunner for so many elf variants over time, and we'll talk about that. This one is completely the opposite. This did not form a lineage of first striking elves by any stretch. Yes, it did set the standard for elves being archers, but that's more of a high fantasy thing, right, than anything else. And there's obviously plenty of elves in the future that have things like reach, and so elves interacting with flyers is something, but this elvish archers just did not not produce the line of descendants the way Llanowar elves did. And that says a lot right there. Yeah, it does. Also, I wonder what this tattoo is. If anybody knows what that tattoo on the elf's shoulder is, <laughs> let me know. All right, next up we have Evil Presence. <laughs> the name of this one makes me laugh because they riffed on it later on. Evil Presence is a black mana for an enchant land. Target land is now a swamp. Not really much to say about this one, just that it fits into the theme we've already discussed vis-a-vis Landwalk and how Swamp Walk is the most common Landwalk. Well, Swamp Walk and Mountain Walk really are... are kind of tied for the most common land walk in alpha and this fits into the theme of getting your bog wraiths and your uh and your zombie master zombies through unblocked it also fits a little bit of the land destruction theme for black right we haven't reviewed sinkhole yet right. but there's sinkhole and the but it's Hordes, consistent with right? cyclopean tomb yeah yeah cyclopean tomb right so yeah most of the stuff we said about it, cyclopean tomb in terms of function overlaps with this why one of the things i want to know is like why why does alpha have so much land conversion yeah, it's like yeah. Cyclopean Tomb, Phantasmal Terrain, Evil Presence. Yeah, it's it's so it's, it's so strange. Yeah. yeah, conversion. Yeah, yeah, it's way overrepresented as compared to other sets throughout history. <laughs> I, I've seen some, so I I don't have any recollection of this being played in anything mm-hmm. other than Alpha League. But I have seen some Alpha League decks where people play like six or seven of these as just a kind of quasi sinkhole effect. You know, and sure. And in some matches, that would be pretty disruptive. Definitely. Especially if you're playing against a two-player opponent and you're cutting off one color by doing that. Sure, sure, absolutely. Steve, are you familiar with the uh, the pun play on this card uh, that Wizards released? I am not. <laughs> I didn't think you were because you're not usually into this kind of promo administrivia kind of stuff. But they released a card, their holiday card. You know how they do a holiday card every year? Yes. They have at least for many, many years. Their holiday card in 2008 is named Evil Presence. Ah, cool. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a sorcery for 2BB that says, put a creature card from your hand onto the battlefield under target opponent's control. That creature attacks each turn of Fable and always attacks its controller. <laughs> 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 so, like, you're, you're giving them a cursed toy. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So that's why I can't read the alpha card, Evil Presence, and not laugh about Evil Presence. That's cute. <laughs> The art here is very much play- reminds me of like Dagobah or something. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. The cave. Remember your failure at the cave. 
Very much so. <laughs> All right, let's move on to one that we've already kind I, of alluded to. I'm excited indirectly. to talk about this one. I have to say, <laughs> <laughs> this is false orders. It's an it's an instant for red. You decide whether and how one defending creature blocks. Though you can't make a choice the defender couldn't legally make, play after defender has chosen defense, but before damage is dealt. So, Kevin, I want to make an alpha <laughs> judge test, and it's going to involve a scenario that includes illusionary mask, camouflage, and false orders, <laughs> and, oh, nice. and raging river. So... <laughs> 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 find all possible permutations of whether or not I can even block here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and what happens. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. This actually th- this card is is functionally and in many ways much simpler than camouflage course, and yeah. probably much simpler than raging river. The thing I find noteworthy about this is that and I don't know why they structured it this way, but you play this after your opponent has decided how they're going to block. So, if I was designing this card from top down, I would never have thought to make it work that way. I would have Say just that said, one more time. "You, you, you're required to play it after they've blocked." Yes. It says, "Play after defender has chosen defense, but before damage is dealt." I find that very weird because, in practice, what that means is, you know, you're swinging in, and there's one like combination of block one one of their defenders you're worried about. Yes. Right? So you swing in. And you gotta wait for them to block, but then what if they just don't block the way you yeah, you were yeah. worried about? Then you just hold the false so, orders in your hand. It's hilarious. So, so, <laughs> God, it's so, uh, you have to point out the absurdity of the uh, of uh, uh, no no. So Dave Howell in his his November ninety three FAQ answers this question: What's the order of an attack phase? Answer. He has eight <laughs> steps here. Answer A. Uh, one, main player announces the attack. Two, main player selects and taps all attacking creatures. Three, either player may play fast effects. Four. Oh, so that codifies that question well, we had from well, earlier. Well, we did have that earlier. Remember how the alpha rule specified that you, you, you there's a special, uh, basically like a special step for fast effects, but at the very end of that sentence, it also says players may yeah. may also play fast effects before this point. It's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, it kind of codifies that. Yes. Yeah. Four opponent assigns defenders five opponent. Either player may play fast effects. Six damage from attacks is assigned S- seven. Either players may p- play fast effects. Eight dead creatures are moved to the graveyard. <laughs> so Wait, that's interesting two, from the standpoint of sorry go ahead that's interesting with respect to death ward and regeneration and damage prevention but we can get back to it in a yeah second. there's two caveats here it's a the first is once a main player has announced an attack no spells may be cast until step three this means it's too late to twiddle an attacking creature among other things once defenders are mm-hmm. once defenders are uh, assigned those creatures are blocked and will stay blocked, whether or not the blocking creature is still there by step six or not. In step six, some creatures will take damage sufficient to kill them unless a damage prevention or regeneration fast effect is played. Such creatures will go to the graveyard. Kevin, this isn't terribly dissimilar from how combat works today, in some sense. Yeah, I was, think- I was thinking the same thing, that that breakdown is, is not too distant from where we're at today. <laughs> the current rules, you know, structure a lot more specifics about who gets priority and which, uh, not priority, but who can, you know, play abilities before, during, and after the declaration, that kind of thing. Right. But yeah, that's not too distant from, from today's rules. The, um, the bit about damage is dealt, then fast effects, then creatures die. Yeah. 
is interesting to me. So that is strange in the sense that that just assumes the notion that you're going to have some kind of fast effect that you would have to play after damage was dealt. Sorry, it doesn't and say dealt. It says, it says damage from attacks is assigned. Oh, yeah, step, assigned. Step six says damage from attacks is assigned. Then seven. So do you? Seven says. Do you have a feel for what assigned means I in this don't. context. I, I assume. So I assume maybe it's like okay, you've got a, a creature that has trampling or banding, and you can distribute the yeah. the damage. However, you know you're permitted to do so, and so then it says it's if if we're if okay. we're interpreting assignment correctly, it's a little bit like stacking damage in a sense. Even it's a little bit like that, yeah, yeah but not quite, not directly stacking. But there was a period in Magic where. You got to know how damage was distributed before, before it you could then, and you could then respond with effects that would right. yeah mitigate some so, of that damage. Yeah, that's no longer the case, of course. But okay, so this is a little more reminiscent of how things worked in terms of assigning and distributing damage post damage on the stack. I need Kevin. I need a grid to keep all these things together because I played <laughs> so much Magic with damage going on the stack, and then I played so much Magic on Magic Online. Where it kind of yeah. delineates everything for you. <laughs> I need, I need, I need a grid to keep track of all of this because there's so many different yeah. paradigms for combat. I mean, it, I think it's it's true. I think it's safe to say that the combat is probably the most inherently ambiguous area of the Alpha Rules book, Alpha Rule book, because it's just so underspecified. You know, you really do need to kind of break it down in this kind of like carefully delineated way. Because of all the possible things that happen, because so much of magic is oriented around combat, right? I mean, not oh, yeah. just the weird things like camouflage or false orders. Um, so, so I, he, so here's what I assume that they're, that, let, let me just go back to the alpha rule book for a second. Um, sorry, do you have, make your point. You, you have a point that you want to make about my paradigm. Just that we, yeah, well, we, no, we already joked about the fact that there's so many cards in alpha that interact with attacking and blocking and manipulating it and making strange things happen. This is actually, in my opinion, the tamest of the set of those cards. It's the <laughs> easiest one to understand. It's the one that produces the fewest, you know, I think, intractable situations, right? This is basically just, oh, you blocked that way? No, this creature blocks a different way. Like, yeah. It, it plays pretty easily in your mind. And yes, there are obviously some corner cases and some clarification to be done vis-a-vis illegal blocks, but as opposed to Blaze of Glory and Camouflage and Raging River coming up, this one is the easiest one for me to understand, and I think it's the one that's actually not too far from its Oracle printing, ironically. And false orders? So, yeah. so yeah. I, I need, to, I need to, to understand. I've never played this card, never played with it, never seen it played. In order for me to fully assimilate its functionality into my brain, I need to apply it into an example. So I had you, I had sure. us come up with some crazy examples with camouflage. Let's just take that same example we use for camouflage, Kevin. So I think it, I had a juggernaut <laughs> and Lanowar Elf and was a grizzly bear or something. You had a flying creature. Okay, so yeah, a Mesa Pegasus, something like that. Yeah, I think we used Mesa Pegasus. Okay, so so those are coming at you. And I've declared attacks. Yeah. And you've got. And I had three ground creatures. I had like a fire elemental and uh, an iron claw orc because it was incapable of blocking some things. And one other creature. It doesn't really matter. But in this kind of situation, if I have three ground creatures and you have a Mesa Pegasus, I can't block that. A juggernaut, I would. Let's say I want to trade with that juggernaut. So I put my fire elemental in front. And then I. What was your third Let creature? Whatever your third creature. Yeah, I block it with the Iron Claw Orc. So I could use False Orders to switch the blocks. 
Well, it says um, you decide whether and how one defending creature blocks. Oh, that's so, so weird. You could pl- because you could play it on my Iron Claw Orcs and decide it could either block the Land of War Elves, which it's already doing, in which case you wouldn't play the spell, or you could just make it not block because the Iron Claw Orcs couldn't block your Juggernaut so, at all. Yeah. You could cause my Iron Claw Orcs to not block your Land of War Elves, or you could change my Fire Elemental to not be blocking at all, or to be blocking your Land of War Elves if you wanted me to. So this is probably too much of a deep dive for our listeners on this, but we already went so deep on camouflage. Let me just <laughs> let me make sure I'm clear. <laughs> so the, there are eight yeah. steps in the Howl documentation. There are four steps, you might remember, Kevin, in the Alpha Rulebook, which were mm-hmm. which, you know, which were then expanded upon. It was declare attack, opponent declares defense, fast effects, damage dealing. And then it later specified yeah. that you can play <laughs> you can play fast effects uh, after it says during attack and defense declarations. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it went back and retconned the yeah. <laughs> the timing. <laughs> okay. So in the howl eight steps, the whether or how is confusing because it seems to me it sounds like it's saying you could play it. So the the fourth step is opponent assigns defenders. Right. Yeah. It's, it would have to be after that. And then it says either player may play fast effects. But if if you, in terms of the how, it would seem like you would want to play. So let's say you did that that defense that you said. Right. I want to rearrange mm-hmm. it. It seems like I'm supposed to play false orders in step five, where it says either player may play yeah. fast effects. Right. Because you've assigned yes. the defenders. But if I'm deciding whether, then it seems like I should be playing that at step three which is after I've selected and tapped the attacking creatures. That's why it's so weird. That's the point I was making earlier, is if you're going to make a creature not block, why go through the trouble of telling your opponent to block and then undo it? I guess it's just the notion that they don't get the information that that you're going to play false orders until after they've committed their blocks, right? It's the most disruptive interpretation of yes. the effect, is what I yes. would say. Yeah. Which means... And also, but this is- most of the time, you're just going to cause a creature to not block. That, that's just, you, you don't have to cause that creature to block something else. You're just going to say yes. that creature just chooses not to block this turn. But you would choose to make it block if you had an advantageous situation like the Basilisk, right? Yeah. You could take a creature that, that didn't block. So. Yeah, you could take a creature that didn't block and make it but, block a th- your Thicket Basilisk if exactly, you wanted to. Exactly. That's, that's what I was going to tr- get, get at, Kevin. So the assumption yeah. that this, in- that removing a creature from combat after it has been already blocked is gives this more power is not necessarily the case that in fact you may want that removing it b- b- from combat or removing it from being able to block even before bl- you've reached the blocker step could in certain cases be better yes it absolutely could and so i think there are certain corner cases where it could but i do think it's generally more powerful to make your opponent commit to right. their blocks and then undo but one what of them. I, but yeah. i think that means that the Oracle text is power level errata. Be- it's, uh, sorry, okay. it's, fu- it's functional errata, that. not power level per se, because it says remove target creature def- defending player. Okay, wait a second. Never mind. I thought it said remove target defending creature from combat. <laughs> I misread that. It says the, the Oracle oh. text. So it says cast this during only during the clear blocker step. So this, yeah. so that actually is functional, right? Because what if you want to do it why couldn't you, according to the text here, why couldn't you cast this during... So you declare attackers, mm-hmm. that's technically still during the declare attackers step, right? People have a right to do fast effects after you declare attackers. Why shouldn't... That's true in, the, in today and in Alpha, right. actually. But this 
the alpha text says play after defending player has chosen defense. Oh, my mistake. Okay. Yeah, yeah it specifically calls out that they have okay, to have blocked it. Never already. mind. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> so that part is maintained. Yes, you're right. You're right. You're entirely right. And and you're right. The current Oracle wording, it, it kind of buries the lead. It says remove target creature defending player controls from combat. That sounds like authoritative. Yes. But then at the end, it tacks on. You may have it block an attacking creature of your choice. So yes. it, you can bring it back yes. in, basically. <laughs> yeah. So it's 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 kind of telling a story, and you got to stay for the whole narrative of this text. Well, yeah, I think you're right. This is far less confusing than camouflage. It isn't to say this isn't it really isn't is. confusing. Now, I do want to ask just for the bonus points: Raging River in uh-huh. play. <laughs> Raging River is is something. It's it's so the way that Raging River works. Let me actually look at the oracle on this. When, so you have two creatures attacking. So let's say in that example, I'm attacking you with Juggernaut, Mesa Pegasus, and Llanowar Elf. You, so I'm, I say I attack you with all of these. You have to put your creatures on either side of the river, right? Uh-huh. And then I get to move my attackers on whichever side of the river I want again, right? Roughly that's how yep. it works. So, so yep. if I put, so I'm just attacking you without deciding, does the, does the attacking creature decide first? So it says, uh- the no, the defending player. creature decides first. Yeah, the, defending... yeah, the defender has to line up on okay. sides of the river, and then you choose which side of the river to attack. So, on. if I were to attack you, how would you line up your creatures? Same attack and same defending creatures. Uh, um, that's really interesting. So, if my team is Iron Claw Orcs, which can only block one of your creatures, then I can't make sure that that can block at all <laughs> because it only has one creature it can block. You can just line up on the other side, and the fire elemental can block your juggernaut. <laughs> It can block either creature. And then what was my third creature? I don't even remember if I had a third creature. I don't remember what it was. It, whatever it was, it couldn't block a flyer because you had Mesa Pegasus. Okay, just which give yourself another creature. Well, um, if I had some other non-flying creature like... Uh, I think you had a grizzly bear. Drudge skeletons. Uh, yeah, grizzly bears. All I would do in this situation is put make sure that my grizzly bears and my fire elemental were on either side of the river. So I was guaranteed, not guaranteed, but more likely to be able to dr- block your juggernaut and your elves in both cases. So I would put the or I would elves, put yeah. the juggernaut and the elves on the iron claw. Well, I guess it doesn't matter because the the iron claw is not the important part. Yeah, yeah. the grizzly bear. You would put the, the the juggernaut on the grizzly bear side. Yes. Yeah. And then to make sure I couldn't kill it. Yeah, and then the um my other creep the elves. It, I guess it would be on the same side as the well, juggernaut. Well, I could do is case, I could put probably. the other, I could put the elves on the juggernaut side. And which side do you put the iron claw? You put the iron claw and, and grizzly bears together. Iron claw uh, and grizzly bears together, yeah. And then the fire elemental on the other side. So I put juggernaut on the on the side of the the two smaller creatures. I could put Lenoir elves on the on the other side, and then I could use false orders to save either creature. I could use false order to prevent. In that situation, I couldn't even kill the juggernaut because I could only ever block it with grizzly bears. And then use false orders to make my fire elemental just not block your yeah, land. It's great. Yeah. Well, so yeah. So what I should do, I guess, if I was anticipating false orders, I could put the iron claw orcs on the same side as the the um, fire elemental, and then double block your land war elves. So I could do that. But because yeah, raging river messes it up because raging river is just ultimately a blocking restriction, and so your creatures can't cross over to the other side with false and orders. And because false orders affects multiple creatures. No, uh, no, it's okay, only one. So I couldn't. It's just I couldn't creature. save yeah. my entire team with the false orders. I could only. I That's have to correct. choose the juggernaut or the. No, the. I guess the juggernaut would be safe. The juggernaut would be safe yeah. because of Raging River yeah. in that example, because you could just choose whichever side the fire elemental was. <laughs> it's hilarious. Down. It's so funny. Yeah. Uh, there's a reason that these well, cards don't get, exist anymore. 
<laughs> Absolutely. There's a reason why today we just kind of have menace. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, menace is about the, the epitome yeah, of it. It's awesome. I love it. Thank you for entertaining me with yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll get to more Raging River action in a little bit. Full Florida's, curiously enough, is um, not reserved and has and has never been reprinted since uh, Unlimited. So what was the other card that was like that? I think it was uh, Camouflage where we brought that up, that it was not reserved and hasn't been reprinted since Unlimited. Yeah. So there's lots of DNA in common, not just in function, with Camouflage's false <laughs> orders. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about Farmstead. This is a, an interesting card. White, white, white for an enchant land. Target land's controller gains one life each upkeep if white, white is spent. Target land still generates mana as usual. So obviously there's some uh, there's some language here to be discussed, right? Uh, n- not the least of which is each th- the phrase each upkeep, right? Yeah. Uh, so it's pretty clear that there's intended to be an upkeep cost here, but the notion of each upkeep has obviously been parsed in different ways depending on yes. card <laughs> and context and Cursed subsequent land, printings. Copper tablet, yeah. Yeah. And so this one has gone the way of at the beginning of your upkeep, if you may pay WW if you do gain a life. So it's it's reduced to just your upkeep and the gaining life is contingent on spending the white mana. Is this the worst card in alpha? It's got to be a high oh, candidate. That's a tough one. It's got to be a high candidate. The laces are obviously high candidates. Oh, no, too, I would right? I would put the laces way above the wards. The wards are the worst are, are near the. OK, yeah. I mean, at least the laces, you can do things like, you know. COP your opponent's permanent or blast it. Uh, yeah, that's that's fair. That's fair. I don't know. I think you could make a case for a, like a parfait-style mono-white deck in alpha that's just plunking these down on its lands and, and rathing away the board every once but in a while. God, Kevin, it's white, white, white to cast, and then it has a double mana upkeep. <laughs> yeah, but it's optional. If you yeah. don't feel like doing it that turn, you don't have to. This is horrendous. I know, it's terrible. This is horrendous. It's totally terrible. I can't believe this card made it all the way to revised. It's so bad. Yeah, it's it's really, really terrible. It does have beautiful art, though. Oh, yeah. I really dig this art. Can I tell you what the Gamma card says? Because it's totally different. Oh, sure. No, sorry, I didn't want to jump on your art commentary. Go ahead. No, I don't have much to say, except that this looks picturesque and looks very inviting as a farmstead. Yeah, (laughs) no, I love that they actually... This is an example of what you mentioned earlier of establishing human civilization in the fantasy world. Um, yeah, that's right. So <laughs> this is so crazy. Farmstead and Gamma is white, white, white. Enchant three planes. Changes uh, three planes into a farm, which can be tapped for one life a turn. The three lands no longer provide mana, but are considered one planes for the purposes of spells. <laughs> okay. Is that it? <laughs> that's it. <laughs> So that's all? It just changes lands into farms? Yeah. <laughs> changes wow. three planes into a farm. Which I'm glad that they tried. I'm glad that they did not try to implement that in Alpha. I wouldn't put it past them. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but holy moly, that is, that's hilarious and very different. I, I don't know what to think about that. Enchant three <sighs> planes, put them into a farm. <laughs> that's amazing. Interesting to note, though, that... It produces, ostensibly, it produces three life a turn, though. That's a pretty big difference from paying two mana to get one life well, a turn. Obviously, it's a steeper cost, too, but I don't know I that find that's that balancing the case. element interesting. It's, it's ambiguous. It says changes three planes into a farm, which can be tapped for one mm-hmm. life a turn. So if you assume 
that the farm is a oh, single... Oh, that the three planes is a single yeah. unit. Oh, well, obviously the language is terrible, but I see your point. Yeah, that's a defensible case, and it lines up more with the farmstead then. Yeah. Wow, that is really interesting. I This card is terrible. That card would have been terrible and even worse. <laughs> even worse. That's the amazing part. Yeah. It's like they somehow and... realized that it was too too damaging to, to or maybe just too cumbersome to try and enchant three planes but they yeah. they didn't re- they didn't they still retain the same power level <laughs> <laughs> that's true so uh, one thing that this card does though is it further cements and again all these things that we think of in magic as uh, identifying a color right the color's function or purpose uh, have, are codified many of them are codified in alpha but at the same time the it's it's easy to get caught up thinking that so many of them are just you know dominant themes in a color and were really from the start of the game alpha did not have a lot of life gain in white just full stop oh. right there's what what have you got healing you've got salve. healing salve which is you know 50/50 life gain or damage prevention you've got guardian angel which is only damage prevention and the circles which are damage prevention. so the, none of those are life gain you've got what else? What else in white gains you life in alpha? Well, the only other life gain card I can think of is not in is not in white. It's stream of life. Yeah, stream of life. So this notion that white is the color of life gain is is really presented through healing salve and farmstead, and then I guess um, re- reverse damage. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because one of the things we think about in in white is like life link and life link, yeah. even though even in its modern it's in verbiage was not yeah was and was not introduced into white to begin with it was it began in basically it began in arabian nights with al hajij in black so this is kind of the only card in alpha that just represents straight up i'm going to gain some life in white which is really interesting in a, through a historical lens because we <clears throat> you know it's easy to think of white as the life gain color taking a broader perspective, but that wasn't really cemented until in legends, we get spiritual sanctuary. Any player with planes under their control gains one life during their upkeep. Then uh, in the dark, you get fasting where you can skip drawing a card to gain two life, which is ridiculous. I can't believe that card was structured the way it was. And then later on, you get cards like convalescence during your upkeep. If you have 10 or less life, you gain a life, things like that. It, it, it's amazing that life gain was so underpowered mechanically in the game for so long, and it took a long time to start giving white more aggressive and functional ways to even gain life. That's a good point. Very good point. And we have Farmstead. That, now, so that's Farmstead's legacy. <laughs> yeah. That's about the most we can say about this card. It really is. It really is. It, it set that pattern, but it took us a long time to even get to a point of having stuff that was relevant. And, it, and white usually shares that ability with other colors. What an embarrassment Farmstead is. <laughs> it's, and the Gamma version is even worse. That's the best part. All right, all right, Steve. Uh, I don't know what your favorite card in Alpha is, but I know this one's high on the list, and it's Fast Darn Bond. straight. G for an enchantment. You may put as many lands into play as you want each turn. Fast Bond deals one damage to you for every land beyond the first that you play in a single turn. Ironically, that text isn't too bad and not too far removed from the current Oracle text. <laughs> no. Th- this card is like the perfect combination of enduringly playful, playable, iconic art, and just awesome. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, totally. So glad. And it's really a shame that, it, you know, this is funny. I, I don't want to get too far down this hole, but if this card had been um, 
not included in revised, right? Oh my god. If this card had gone the way of the power oh, yeah. and then been reserved it's reserved now, but if it had never been reprinted in revised note that Jesus. it's only it's only one printing more than the boxing, yeah, right? It's dual is it for this yeah. card. Soul ring. Yeah, it's just, just like the duels. If this had been um not in revised, this might be a power nine card. <laughs> yeah. Might this this might be in the power nine in place of time twister in some people's, you know, measure. Yeah. No, it's it's true. The card is amazing. I mean, obviously my favorite use is with the, the Gush Bond engine, which is really built around Gush and Yogmoss will. So the post Yogmoss mm-hmm. will, you basically net eight mana for free that you can then use to to whatever kill you want, whether it's Tinker for Blightsteel you know, for Blightsteel Colossus and then Tutor for Time Walk or Demonic Tutor for Tendrils of Agony. Uh, it's just a just a wonderful combo. Uh in contemporary vintage, Fastbond is is mostly used in the lands deck, which is like basically bizarre, loam, you know, dark depths, get all that shenanigans together, and it's pretty nasty. It's fun and cool. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, good role player good, there. Great role player. I I played this past summer fast bonds. I won the vintage unleashed event with gush bond. I played three fast bonds, and I was really debating how many fast bonds to play. And I def- definitely think three was the right number. Uh, maybe more, <laughs> nice. but definitely two would have been wrong. Yeah, I love me some fast bond. I played, I I played in the early days of EDH when it was still legal in EDH. They were foolish enough to let me <laughs> play it there, and it was completely bonkers <laughs> and. Uh, what were some I of the was combos not surprised you used when it got banned there? Well, the I mean, obviously in EDH it's a Highlander format, so I wasn't playing a purely tuned combo deck. It's just super super value when you can play it with Crucible of Worlds, oh, right? Yeah. And it's like you got Crucible of Worlds and you got a tropical or not a tropical, you got a Misty Rainforest. You're like, oh, uh, I guess I'll pay eight life and put all the islands in my deck into play. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it well more than eight life, but the point is you started with forty, and that's another thing that contributed to this card being completely ridiculous and unacceptable in EDH. Uh, yeah, I love me some Fast Bond uh, and for similar reasons as you. And uh, I love the fact that this robed figure is just surveying and... and Do you take it as they are they are affecting this landmass in front of them in some way? Or are they just kind of absorbing the energy from a vast swath of <laughs> land, do you think? I have no idea. I, I don't even want to make a guess about that. <laughs> I... I the 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 image does not evoke any change in the land as far as my eyes go so my take is just that in the context of magic's mana system you draw energy from different types of land and i take it this person has put themselves on something of a high ground so they can draw energy from a broader area of land that's how i read that yeah yeah it, to me it just looks like a wizard surveying you know the the resources available to him he's some sort of lord of this mana of these lands yeah that's fair too yeah. Anything about the alpha wording that stands out to you? It seems pretty straightforward, honestly. Agreed. Great, awesome. The card. only ambi- yeah, the only ambiguity I can point to is just the the method of putting a land into play, because it does say the first, uh, you know, lands beyond the first that you play in a single turn. And the oracle wording right now says whenever you play a land, if it wasn't the first, uh, does the damage to you. It ties the action to the word play, which has a specific meaning in the modern context. Such that, for example, in the there's there's no way in alpha to put additional lands into play, uh, meaning through some kind of effect, yeah. right? So this ambiguity never came up. The first card that really does that is um, uh, Untamed Wilds in Legends, right? Yeah. So can you think back in time, if you were playing this card back in the early vintage days with just alpha through Legends, 
would you have taken damage from Untamed Wilds putting an extra land into play? I don't recall. I don't... Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know either. It probably rarely came up. Because Untamed Wilds says, search for the library for a basic, put it onto the battlefield. By the way, the... Yeah. Uh, I think... Sorry, go ahead. No, I, I don't know. I think it would have been debatable back then as to whether or not you took damage from an Untamed Wilds plus Fast Bond. Right. I'm sure that you could look in D'Angelo's rulings or and find an answer to that somewhere. By the way, the Gamma version yeah. of Fast Bond cost GG. And it said... Oh, interesting. And it said, may put into play as many lands as you like this turn, comma, losing one life for each after this spell is cast. So not after the first... Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, is it an enchantment? Yeah, it's a sorcery? a sorcery. Oh, see, that's that's not Fast Bond as we know it. That's more like Summer Bloom. Yeah. <laughs> that's really interesting. I never knew that, that that card was originally much more akin to Summer Bloom. Huh. But it also, in that that's way, really mirrors a little bit more channel. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. So they clearly powered this spell up between Gamma and Alpha. Yeah. Well, and they, what we know is well, Alpha. They still couldn't do that much for Farmstead. <laughs> <laughs> this is the most wow, poor the most recent unrestricted <laughs> card in Vintage, which is awesome. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And like so many cards, it was printed up until revised and then no further. So many people were concerned, even fearful, that this would be un- when this would be unrestricted, and they really had nothing to worry about. It was it was interesting in all the right ways that you want for vintage. To- well, the you know the intersection and occasional interaction of fast bond and gush have they have all the earmarks of cards and interactions that are, in my opinion, heavily meta dependent. Right, there are certain aspects that can tamp down the interaction of the two of them together to make it ne- not necessarily you know dominant, and then there are certain interactions that just may cause it to flare up and be the best thing you can do in the format. And it's a little bit unpredictable, honestly, depending on new printings and other trends in the metagame as to which side of the line it's going to be on. Because there was a time, there was a quite a long period, in fact, when Gush and Fastbond were legal together and they were not the best thing you could do in the format. That's right. Good point. But that's well covered in a book that I've heard about. <laughs> you may have that that book somewhere. <laughs> All right, let's move on and talk about fear. Fear is an aura. For Black Black, it says, Target creature cannot be blocked by any creature other than artifact creatures and black creatures. So this card is obviously... Uh, it's does a couple of things throughout the history of Magic. It's not a very playable card by any stretch. It's pretty good and limited, but it does set up black as a color for a type of unblockability, which is fun, and it ties in mechanically from a top-down standpoint to terror, right? And there, we've already reviewed a number of things within Alpha that monkey with your ability to attack and block properly. We talked about the trifecta of one mana instance that that's mess with attacking and blocking. We've talked about land walk. We talked about just a few minutes ago dwarven warriors. This is just another thing in that list. I don't think fear is especially noteworthy as a card in and of itself, except for the model that it established for future mechanics within black and other colors, and the fact that it's just part of a long list of things that mess with attacking and blocking in alpha. Is fear officially a keyword mechanic? Yes, yes like it is. Flying. That's right. The key, it's a keyword mechanic that was ostensibly eliminated from the game, though. It's still in the rules, but they yeah. don't use it anymore. They replaced it with Intimidate. With Intimidate. Yeah, and to a lesser extent, uh, Menace. 
And and intimidate intimidate is is what exactly? What's the difference? Intimidate is is just um, imagine fear if it was for whichever color the creature was. Basically, you can only be blocked ah. by creatures that share your color. That's effectively what intimidate is. Got it. So this is so fear is effectively intimidate for on a black creature is really what it comes down to. So this is another card that uh, it, it, there's a number of these we re- we've reviewed where the card itself becomes a keyword mechanic. Yes, it's strange that it's strange that fire breathing hasn't become a keyword mechanic. <laughs> well, probably you know, because you don't need a yeah. You don't need, I mean, the keyword mechanics should be a simplification. You're right, and fire breathing would not be a simplification. I agree with you. Well, Kevin, we've noted how many auras there are in Alpha. Mm-hmm. I've been sorting through my Ice Age set, and I realized that there is a huge number in Ice Age. <laughs> it's it's strange to think how something that you know, Enchant Creature does not, in general, engender you know, a very positive response in terms of constructed play. Right. Um, it's strange to me that they would double down on it in the next major core set, which is Ice Age. <laughs> well, <laughs> it just, just strikes me as odd. It's, a, it's worthy to note historically. We've already touched on during this review about how Ice Age was like a recapitulation of Alpha in a lot of ways. So I think there's something yeah. to that. But also, I would wager that by the time Ice Age was being designed and developed, they still hadn't learned too many lessons. They'd learned some lessons, but not enough, I would say, right? Yeah, we knew yeah. that Ancestral Recall was too good, but we didn't know that Brainstorm was too good still. We didn't know that Necro was still too good, right? We didn't know that Dark Ritual and Counterspell and Swords to Plowshares were too good, right? So while I do give them credit for having learned a lot by the time Alpha was rolling around, I think this notion of how unsatisfying auras were was probably uh, to come later in design and development's history. Fair enough. All right, I think we can move on from fear to (laughs) another weird aura, which is feedback. So... (laughs) This always cracks me up. There's only one aura that I think cracks me up more in terms of its top-down design, but I'll get to that later. The feedback is 2W for an enchantment, which is noteworthy. It says, feedback does one damage to controller of target enchantment during each upkeep. Now, this obviously goes with um, the... the same thing that we talked about, about the whole each upkeep language many times already, so I don't need to belabor the point. My reading of the alpha version is that it just should happen on your upkeep and your opponent's upkeep, but the Oracle text is now, you know, beginning of the upkeep of the Enchanted Enchantments controller. This, to me, feels like kind of filling out some... This is like box ticking from a set design standpoint, right? Some, yeah. I just wanted a constellation of this kind of effect. <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't. It, it's never really been that good, and there's many more ways to use an aura on your opponent's permanent to disrupt them, a la, you know, psychic venom which we've addressed a couple times and a few others yeah no that's a good point it, it, that's the perfect way of putting it so how many of these effects are there that just in upkeep do a damage to the controller it's feedback cursed land cursed land yeah. feedback copper tablet warp artifact the, warp artifact is that all of them let me do a double check here I'm looking just for upkeep damage in alpha. Yeah. So the non-conditional ones, we're looking at Copper Tablet, Cursed Land, Feedback, and then Wanderlust. Yeah, so you got land, <laughs> and enchantment, warp, artifact. Warp artifact. Yeah. Wanderlust is, is creature, right? Wanderlust is creature, yeah. So there's one for every yep. type, basically. Yep, one there for you every go. permanent type. <laughs> Hence <laughs> the box checking ticking. the box. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it is notable, though, that this is the most expensive one. Well, no, Cursed Land is. Cursed Land warp is the most is... expensive one, but that I think there's an inverse, co- inverse correlation with how common the permanent type is, I guess. 
Although okay. maybe, gosh, I guess no. That's actually that holds up. I think warp artifact being the cheapest one. I guess artifact is the most rare permanent type in their eyes. Even though it's not technically true, I guess they must have had the feeling that artifacts were going to be less played, which is maybe strange by comparison. But then again, warp so artifact costs BB, which means it's that much diff that much more difficult to cast. I don't know what to make of that. So, but the two of them are black. One's blue. One is green. And that's the entirety of them, right? Yeah. Because you got Enchant, Enchantment, Enchant Artifact, Enchant Land, Enchant Creature. And then Copper Tablet, yeah. And Copper Tablet, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's a cycle that didn't need to be complete, right? <laughs> <laughs> what they need now is an Enchant Planeswalker. <laughs> well, it's yeah, it's noteworthy that this is a cycle that has never been completed by that stretch. Planeswalker <laughs> and Tribal. There's no such thing as Enchant Tribal. <laughs> For good reason. Is this the only Enchant Enchantment in the set? No, no. The irony is there's another one. It's the one that makes me laugh even more, but we're not going to get okay. to it for a well, little while. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Something so, to look forward to. That's right. Next up is one that I know we've got a lot to say about for many reasons, and it is Fireball. Now, we talked a lot about Disintegrate. Fireball is XR. Sorcery. Fireball. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just laughing about the XYZ bit that we talked about before. Mm-hmm. Fireball deals X damage total, divided evenly, rounded down, among any number of targets. Pay one extra mana for each target beyond the first. And I have to admit, Steve, that as alpha wordings go, that one's actually pretty darn good. <laughs> and it's it's pretty complicated for uh for an for a a, a good template. <laughs> it's you know, it's a complicated card. The- it's also compact given the complexity of the card. <laughs> That's a really, really good point. Out of all the templates that could have been a disaster in Alpha, this one is one that I would have put high on that list, right? In terms of, well, they're probably not going to get that one, right? But this one's actually efficient, Confusion. pretty clear, yeah. you know? It uses good language, like, you know, any number of targets, that kind of thing. It's surprising. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Respect where respect is due. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I I've really grown to appreciate this card in particular playing Alpha League. I I mean, this card got quickly neutered when they basically banned Channel out of all of the uh, constructed formats in ninety ninety five. I think it's hard these days to appreciate just how good this card was in constructed because I don't maybe I'm wrong, but are there any X red burn spells that see play in constructed standard? I don't. I'm not close enough to standard to know. But I imagine that they're not good enough well, the, the, for EDH or other constructed formats. It's a complicated question. The short answer is no lately. The last red X spell that was really... Well, so there's Expansion Explosion, which is played right now because it's better than that. It's like a Brain Geyser Fireball combo, and it's an instant, so it's complicated reasoning why that one's played. Jesus. The, the last one that was played... Yeah. I know. The last one that was played, though, just for its capabilities, really, was Bonfire of the Damned. And that one was the one that was a miracle. And if you pulled it off the top, it did X damage to them and all their creatures and stuff. It's way better than a fireball if you miracled it. That's the last one. But that one's at the high end of the spectrum. That and Expansion Explosion are noteworthy for their extreme efficacy. In general, though, you're right. Red X spells are not playable at the base in Standard. So so one of the reasons I wanted to point that out is just to emphasize how prominent fireball was in the pro tour 96 new york decks which are in the box set from one of the earliest pro tours um there were three of the top eight decks had fireballs in them so wow yeah it's it's so good at what it does in alpha 
<laughs> well, well, Eric Tamsdeck was red white with a splash of green, and he had um, mo- more than splash. He had Ernim Jens and fireballs. George Baxter was a famous author of the early books of magic. He was playing a black red green deck with fireball, three fireballs, and Mark Justice, who was one of the most successful early magic professionals, was playing red white green. Uh, sorry, red white. And he also had Fireball, three Fireballs. So Fireball was like a you know a big time tactic in constructed magic of the past. But you know, and it's interesting. I'm looking through the editions of Fireball, Kevin. Fireball was re- printed in the base set as late as, as late as M12, which yeah. is not in magic terms, you know, an eternity. It's not an aeon ago. It's a while ago, but it's not. It lasted, know, yeah. It lasted 90s. longer than a lot of cards we've talked about, and. It is still, and it's been reprinted a couple times since then, and like master sets and other things. It it was really a fixture. Now it's interesting to note that unlike cards like Counterspell, Dark Ritual, some other things we've listed, this one didn't make its way into any of the other core sets, which is I think really strange. Unlike cards like I listed, they didn't reprint Fireball in a core core set until I mean it was all just straight-up white-bordered corset stuff until, gosh, I guess the example I'm looking for is Darksteel, which is yeah, really strange. Weird? Darksteel is yeah. an expansion set I know. to Mirrodin. <laughs> but my point is it wasn't in Ice Age, it wasn't in Mirage, it wasn't in Tempest. Right. There were so many other cards that were recapitulated and reprinted, I mean, in all those kinds. I'm trying to think, this card was just, there have been some alternate versions throughout history, like Comet Storm and a few others with Multi-Kicker and things like that, but I just find that really interesting. So they must have not thought that this effect was really meant to be a staple. It's not like they avoided X-Spells, it's just that in so many other cases, they thought they'd gotten it perfectly in Alpha, and in, in this case, they simply did not. That is so interesting. I also find it interesting, Kevin, that um, I find it really interesting that this card, that Fireball was, so it goes Alpha, Beta, Alpha through 5th edition, then disappears until M10, at which point mm-hmm. it's reprinted M10, 11, 11, and 12. M10 was the big set where they did a reset, top-down yeah. design. Yeah. So It, it was it harkening was, back specifically to Alpha, and this is part of right. that. Right. And it stayed in there. But then it's, like you said, it's in Darksteel, which is an expansion to an expansion. <laughs> and then it's in, then it's in, it's in a Commander 2013. It, wasn't that one of the early Commander sets? Yes, so they absolutely. must have it's thought the second one. that it was. They must have thought it was good in Commander, and then it's also an Arch Enemy, which I don't know. I don't, was Arch Enemy? What was that? What was that for? Ar- I have no Arch sense Enemy it was a, a really niche multiplayer format that didn't catch on. Really, it was there were some specific card types that were meant to make it interesting and challenging to play as an arch enemy. And it was a, a three versus one kind of format. It was pretty niche and never really caught on. Fascinating. Yeah. Totally fascinating. Um, so we, sh- we, so- We, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the mana cost <laughs> as it stands. The Oracle wording is very similar to the alpha wording X damage divided evenly pay one more for each target. It's as, as we said, the alpha wording is surprisingly good. But there was a very brief period, a very brief period, after um, after anthologies and after 5th edition, where <laughs> Fireball shares a very, very unique place in history as being one of the only spells to have a variable in its mana cost and effect other than the variable X. 
There's a single printing in paper of Fireball where the mana cost is X, Y, R, and it's the beatdown copy. The text on that card is Fireball deals X (laughs) damage divided evenly, rounded down among Y plus one target creatures and or players. And in a sense, it's a very efficient wording, but my guess is that the player feedback was it was too confusing. Even though as a mathematician, it works out pretty well. The next printing, which is the Darksteel one, goes right back to the old uh, just XR verbiage. There's only one spell in Magic right now that has a Y in its mana cost, and it's actually a it's a silver bordered spell, and it's a joke that makes reference to that XY version of Fireball, and that joke card, which is from Unglued, is the ultimate nightmare of Wizards of the Coast customer service. Where the mana cost is X Y Z R R, which is a just a play on the fact that they tried experimenting with non X variables and it didn't go well. Now, if, for folks who want to get a complete sense of our analysis of this card, go back and listen to the se- section on disintegrate. But yeah, um, where we did a, a more detailed comparison. If you if you missed that, but yeah, this card is this card is top notch. I mean, it's top notch. It's it's it slices and dices. It's so. It's so versatile. You can pay three mana to kill a hippie. You know, you can yeah. pay, you know, a bunch of mana and kill a number of one power targets. In in Alpha League, as I mentioned before, I I played it. I overpaid by one mana. Fortunately, it's rounded down, so I didn't burn. But <laughs> I killed five elves in one fell swoop. Yeah, for... and it's, it's noteworthy, specifically in the Alpha context, that it's one of the only ways to get one-sided card advantage on the board. Yes. There's plenty of symmetrical effects. Yeah, especially for red, you're right. There's plenty of symmetrical effects, don't get me wrong. Wrath, Disc, Earthquake, Geddon, all that stuff, yeah. Those are all symmetrical effects. This is just a purely asymmetrical card advantage removal spell. Yeah, and that's unique in Alpha. Great point. Card advantage is good. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) the fact that it can go to your opponent's dome and win the game by itself, too. This card is just incredibly, incredibly flexible. My instincts are, card. yeah. My instincts are honestly that Garfield and Testers did not appreciate at the time how powerfully flexible this card was. They they probably <laughs> knew it was good, but it's just unprecedented, well, really, in the Alpha context. What, what I, it, it is amazing, is amazing card, and I think you make a very good point. There aren't a lot of cards in Alpha that can give you significant card advantage. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's you know Verdure and Enchantress, Brain Geyser, Ancestral Mind Twist, Balance, Fireball is definitely in that you know that that short list um i i what, what strikes me though about your point is that they decided to simplify this template by making it just even but you could have imagined a designer saying a fireball's coming through and it loses its power like a hurricane over time right as it reaches landfall so you ah. could have imagined a design in which they say you know, pay X mana, you may distribute it among any number of targets, paying one additional mana for each additional target, however you like. You know, so for example, what is it, pyrotechnics? Mm-hmm. You can distribute you can any way you want. Yep, yep. Yeah. They could have done that, but they made a deliberate effort not to. My guess is to minimize the card advantage nature of it, but it could it could also be just because of template simplification. What do you think? speculation what do you think yeah my speculation is that the last thing you said is probably a significant factor the simplification element of it because this effect there's not there's not too much damage distribution in alpha right there's things that damage multiple things like earthquakes and and hurricanes and there's 
a couple of things that allow you to distribute damage, damage redirection and prevention type stuff. This is the only thing that I can think of in Alpha that lets you actively choose to damage specific things by an amount. And so I have a feeling that in that lens, they were probably looking for some simplicity of the thing. Because the kind of things you're talking about were definitely experimented with on subsequent cards, right? It only takes getting into, I guess, the first version that would be similar to what you're talking about would be Fire Covenant in Ice Age, right? Yes. Fire Covenant yes, is a, a dramatically different card, but it allows you to, to pick yeah. and choose the amount of damage as you're describing. And it's not to say that they didn't print Fireball variants and other base sets, right? I mean, Ice Age has the variant, which is Lava Burst, which is a, a, an unpreventable damage one. So it's a variant on the disintegration kind of plan. And then Mirage has um, Mirage has an instant version of just a straight damage spell in Volcanic Geyser. So XRR, it's an instant X damage to a target. It also has Caravix Torch, which is very famous in the vintage context. Yeah. We're not here to reserve. We're not here to review, of course, but Caravix Torch is another straight up damage spell that makes it hard to counter spell, and that was an important reason why Caravix Torch was. I don't played. know if I mentioned mention this. Well, certainly the the Fireball and the Caravix Torch. So Fireball is the the famous win condition with Channel, and then Caravix Torch with Academy as a win condition in Type One is the predecessors in many respects to Tendrils of Agony as the big splashy finisher. Um, but I don't know if I mentioned this when we were talking about Disintegrate, Kevin, but the Gamma edition of Disintegrate only says target may not be regenerated. It doesn't have the non-prevention clause. So they upgraded it from Gamma to Alpha, so to speak. Uh, so the uh, the non-prevention thing, though, that's not on Disintegrate. That's um, Disintegrate gained the Exile oh, clause, not the I'm non-prevention yeah, clause. The, yeah, I'm sorry, the it's, Exile. You were talking about the, Lava Burst. Yeah, it's yeah. the Ice Age one that got the non-prevention. <laughs> but, but still, right. you're right, that's an upgrade from the Gamma version. And the simplified Fireball, probably the simplest Fireball in practice, is what they printed in Tempest, which is Rolling Thunder. That's XRR, X damage divided any way you choose among any number of target creatures or players. So that's the simplified yeah. Fireball, and you actually save money on it if you have more than two if targets. You have more targets. Yeah. It's, two, it's yeah. worse for one target, better for two targets, way better for three or more. Fascinating. So I guess and they, it's common. <laughs> I'm sorry? Fireball's common. Oh, Fireball yeah. Fireball is a common. <laughs> That's right. That's the other thing, too, is that the Alpha was not balanced for limited. <laughs> Fireball being <laughs> common is a big mistake from a limited standpoint. <laughs> well, not many people are going to be drafting Alpha, so. That's true. That mistake. That mistake is one in the past. That's true. Anything else on Fireball, Steve? Let's move on to a close cousin of Fireball, Fire Breathing. So Fire Breathing, as we've alluded to a few times, it's an aura, enchant creature, excuse me, for red. And it says, as we've joked about before, it says red mana, colon, plus one, plus zero. (laughs) One of the most economical wordings in Alpha and That's one awesome. that we've joked about because it com- <laughs> it completely stymies any interpretation of other auras that grant buffing effects. We covered this with blessing, obviously. Um, so we we a lot of what we would say about fire breathing we did cover with blessing and a few other auras. We don't need to recapitulate all of that, but the simple truth is that this sets up red as the color of well, I guess technically one of two colors with blue and occasionally, but it really cements red as the color that is intended to have this effect. No, I think that's there's not much more to say beyond yeah. that. I think you've nailed it. The and we've already addressed the fact that like fear, 
fire breathing, oh, sorry, unlike fear, fire breathing has not been keyworded. However, colloquially and as a community, we all refer to this effect as fire breathing. And this is obviously the reason why. Right. Yet another example in Dan Frazier's art of a strong primary subject with no context. Interestingly, <laughs> one of the things I've always wondered about fire breathing, Steve, and I'd like to get your opinion on this. Why is there a second subject in this art? Like, it's, it's, it's a little bit unlike Dan Frazier and many other artists in Alpha to include this whole primary subject, very clear, contextless background, but then there's a second subject here in the background. What's the point of that? Well, I, I can't tell whether that's another dragon or whether it's the hand of the dragon, which means it might not be a second subject. You think that that's the hand of the primary subject. Uh, you know, that's it, interesting. I've always read that. It like claw being raised, you know? Oh, that's really interesting. A, I've always read that as a second dragon because it, it almost, it seems pretty clearly to me to have an eye. Um, it also looks like it could be a knuckle, though. Yeah, like that's really interesting. You could be onto something. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's just the raised hand of the subject. Interesting. I actually, I find it interesting that you know, his art is so abstract, not just the backgrounds, but this is a, a kind of a richly fantasy figurative. And and instead of that kind of swirl pattern in the background, he decided to make with this, this dusky red smoke. I mean, the, the the main figure, the primary subject in this composition is kind of almost like it's so richly rendered. It's almost like the cover of a fantasy novel. Mm-hmm. I mean, kind of strikingly so, almost more so than like Siobhan Dragon. Yeah. So uh, I just find that interesting. It does make it's, me wonder if there's feel a, very is there a larger yeah is there a larger piece that was cropped perhaps I'd be interested to know that I've never heard anything to that effect. This dragon uh, very clearly meant to evoke smog from Lord of the Rings, um, <laughs> and there's no denying that. Also worth note is that in addition to the very sparse oracle text or sorry printed text here for the effect there's a nice uh alfred lord tennyson quote here which is on the short list of things that happened in alpha and some of the early sets that they abandoned early on in the days of magic which was using existing earthly literary texts or other quotes in flavor text i'm i'm doing a close-up on the card kevin mm-hmm. of uh with magnifying glass and the closer I look at it, I, it really does the, the secondary figure as you put, it really does look more like a kind of like a Tyrannosaur arm. Okay. I'll buy that. But it's, it's really hard to tell. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't have like, it doesn't really have a nose. And if it's, if it's a mouth, the under the claw that's underneath, which could form the mouth looks much more claw like than the main figures kind of, you know, wolf like yeah. mouth. Well, I'll buy it. I'll definitely buy it as an interpretation. The um, it's not it's not rock solid in my eyes. I might have just had a lazy read of this thing and thought because there was a little bit of a dot near the knuckle that that was an yeah. eye, and I just kind of left it as that. That's funny to me. <laughs> I like the I like the Tennessean touch though, as you noted. Yeah, I I prefer when magic cards. So I mean, look, I love a clever turn of phrase, <laughs> but I I do prefer when magic cards have poetic, earth based, uh, flavor text. I know that a lot of people do, and I I enjoy the things that ground them in some classic literature or classic folklore. Those kind of things are pretty cool. They could do a little bit more of that, in my opinion, but I they they want to sell their own lore, so I understand why they don't. <laughs> 
All right, next up we have Fire Elemental, our third fire card in a row. There's no surprises here. Three RR, Summon Elemental, no text box. It's a 5-4. We've already talked about this a little bit in terms of the pairings that are made both within red, uh, this compared to Earth Elemental, the pairings that are made um, compared to um, blue with water and air elementals. This one is pretty, this is just some pretty foundational stuff in Alpha in terms of, this is an uncommon creature, which I guess is meant to put it within the cycle of Sanger and Sarah and Air Elemental, right? And in yep. that particular cycle, it, <laughs> it does not compete very well in that cycle. It does have a greater power than those three, <sighs> but the lack of flying is just enormous from a heads-up comparison, and which makes the I mean this thing gets blocked by regenerators on the ground and many other things, unlike those other top three candidates. What so, else do you so think about the, Fire Elemental? Those, well, I was going to ask you, of those, so we... Of the, I mean, clearly air elemental is very powerful, you know, being at the Sarah. Um, but I, I think fire elemental is better than earth elemental in general. Because, oh yeah. Because the four is enough to survive a bolt. Oh yeah. Right. And then the marginal difference. I think the marginal difference. I think the power is more important in this case for the same mana cost. So I think fire elemental is better than earth elemental. Yeah. What's the fourth one? So it's there's water elemental, which is. Functionally identical oh, yeah, to Earth Elemental, yeah. No, no, I'm sorry. Yeah. Hold on. So, Water Elemental is a five four. <laughs> My mistake. Five four. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and I think that. Well, I I I actually am just going to say I think that Fire Elemental is one of the better elementals. <laughs> the the well, gap may be pretty large between the the best and the rest. Yeah. But um, I think Fire Elemental is, is if you were building, you know, a deck out of a bunch of commons. I think you would want fire elemental out of the other the other two. Are these are some of these uncommon? Yeah, most of them are uncommon actually. Uncommon. Yeah. Okay. It would have to be uncommon, but your point is well made. The <laughs> the the cycle is not very large, right? It's mostly just it's just blue and red, right? But air and water for blue are obviously a superior pair because you basically get air over earth, which I I don't understand, but I mean that is what it is. Water and fire elementals are, are mirror images of each other perfectly. They're both 5-4 vanilla creatures. Water elemental doesn't get much love in the grand scheme of things because it's so frequently, at 5 mana, so frequently compared to air elemental as well as Vesuvian Doppelganger, right? Yeah. And, as well as Mahatmi Jin, Mahamodi Jin, and the um, there's just kind of no place for water elemental. It's fourth on the list of good blue creatures in that context. Yeah. Yeah, there's kind of not too much else to say in, about Fire Elemental, but for the reasons you stated, if you're playing some Alpha Limited, this card's real good. I, I think the only other thing to say is that these Elementals are strikingly a, a vein of, of uncommons that are some of the beefiest in the set. That Alpha is just, I mean, like many early Magic sets, is really lacking in power. Yeah, Just it's the true. creatures are not that big, and they're, you know, relative to the removal, especially as you pointed out before. And it is interesting that this one cycle has like four of the most powerful creatures in the sets. I mean, beyond that, you have to go to like six mana, where you have Shivan, Force of Nature, Gaia's Liege, Mahamodi, yeah. right? Yeah, you're or totally you, right. Or you go, yeah. There's there there are only eleven creatures in Alpha that have power greater than four. Only eleven. This and, is four of them. Well, yeah, right. And the, so, well, I mean. No, it's not, though, because the point is Air Elemental okay. doesn't even qualify greater. as that. Yeah, greater than four. Yeah. And so there's two of them at common, Crawlworm and Sea Serpent. And Sea Serpent has <laughs> a pretty serious drawback, right? 
Yeah. Then there's three of them at Uncommon, Fire Fire and Water plus Juggernaut, and we we know about Juggernaut. We'll be discussing it more soon. The rest of them are rares. The big ones you listed, Force Nature, Lord of the Pit, Shivan Dragon, Demonic Hordes, Mahamodi Jin, and Personal Incarnation. The rest of them are rares. So in a limited context, you're right. It takes a lot to get more than four power in Alpha. Right, right. Now, there's some things at scale, like Frozen Shade and yeah. Keldon Warlord. And, and there's Auras. But, <laughs> yeah, yep. All right, let's move on from Fire Elemental and talk about Flash Fires. Flash Fires is a sorcery, very straightforward. For 3R, you get all planes in play are destroyed. Now, that's another pretty good alpha wording, all things considered. They could have said discarded, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It does have the redundant text in play, but... That's and that's not present on many many alpha cards that would normally affect things in play, right? But the simple truth is, it's actually pretty clear wording. This is just another in a long line of things that we've already alluded to, which is the the hosers that are powerful um, color, very yeah, very powerful, very unforgiving uh, color hosers. I do find it interesting that the art on this one, the flash fires that are alluded to in the title, are very abstract and or I guess. <laughs> distant or indirect in this art the point is there's no there's no flame out of the yeah there's no flames in this art which is bizarre given the title (laughs) yeah yeah they're entirely out of the composition yeah but strongly alluded to (laughs) ironically this composition is a lot like what you're experiencing in california on the west coast these days isn't it (laughs) (laughs) It, it is (laughs) the distant effect of fire um so kevin specifically though this is a paired with tsunami Whereas Tsunami in green destroys all islands, this just in red destroys all planes. Mm-hmm. Is, are there any other sweepers? I mean, there's like weird things like conversion, um, which is white affecting red. But are there any other just destroy all of a single land type in alpha? Or is that the... Substrate? No, this this is the extent of it. There are things that punish other land types. So you've got your karma, for example, of the world. Yeah. You know, that punishes people for having, but it doesn't destroy them, to your point. Yeah. Establishing yeah, also it, the enemy color. The enemy relationship in the color well, pie. That's true, and I was about to comment on that. It's really interesting. It appears that one of the goals of the color hosers in Alpha was to set up uh, those enemy relationships, but in different ways. So let's talk about red. Red got, as we've already reviewed, blue elemental blast. So it got a pairing of fighting blue with blue. And then the way it fights white here is by destroying planes. But green, by comparison, got a different pairing. Green got Life Force, which we have yet to review, but that fights black by by fighting spells. And then it got Tsunami, which obviously fights blue by fighting islands. It's just interesting to me. I haven't analyzed all the combinations. White, White is obviously an exception, in a sense, because white got all of the circles and all the wards and everything. Karma so. and conversion. Yeah, I got yeah. karma and conversion. So I guess you can... I guess there is still a pairing for every color. So black's pairing would be death grip and then what was black's anti-white card? Well, it would be uh it would be black knight, right? And then I guess. So white actually participates in more anti-color cycles than the other colors and not just counting the circles of protection. White actually has karma, conversion and white knight. So it's setting white up as the color that fights its enemies more directly or more more comprehensively, I guess. <laughs> So every, every color that isn't white has a pair, and then white has at least three, not counting the circles and the wards. Yeah, so it's not a, it's not a perfectly matching cycle 
That's interesting to me. But I have to tell you, look look behind the curtain there. (laughs) I have to tell you that flash fires is interesting to me from a historical perspective, because one of the problems in the early days of magic and one of the things you see in eh, not too often, but you see it in old school reflected is the fact that red has such a difficult time fighting the card circle of protection red. It can't remove it. Oh, black has gloom. Jeez, I'd skipped over that. Yeah. Uh, so there's more than two. Um, anyway, so, so red can't remove the circle of protection. And within alpha and for a few years after, there was just no good way for it to address the circle, so to speak. But this flash fires does it indirectly, right? If your opponent is, well, if they're mono white and they play a circle white or circle red, I mean, you can flash fires and really diminish their ability to activate the circle. So I do like the fact that there was that little bit of counterplay and interplay there between the hate cards, such that while red couldn't remove it, it could really disrupt white's ability to activate the circle. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, they've given both black and and red ways to fight COPs, but very different angles of attack. Yeah, very. And we'll get to gloom here in a little bit. Well put. Let's move on then to flight. Flight's pretty straightforward. It's an aura. Another one of many. For a single blue mana, you get target creature is now a flying creature, (laughs) which is a little bit of an overwrought language, which I love. Uh, There's not much to say here that we haven't touched on before. The strong aura theme, the cementing blue is the color of flying. The, The dyad with this and jump, the temporary versus the permanent. What else do you think about flight, Steve? No, that's about it. I think you've exhausted it. There's not really not much to say. It's a simple effect. It's a straightforward effect. Um, the only thing that comes to mind is in a constructed context, it's hard to figure out which is better, the enchantment or the instant. I think probably the enchantment, um, but the instant can be used for great effect in a certain circumstance. Oh, yeah. Right? It has the surprise value. Absolutely. The risk with, the risk with enchantments is that you, you suffer a two-for-one if they destroy your creature. Mm-hmm. That's less likely in the context of an instant. So it's interesting that both flight and jump were costed at the exact same level. So they must have thought they were comparable in terms of power. Completely agree. Also noteworthy in this art, the figure, and there's actually multiple figures, the figures in this art, I would describe them as falling. <laughs> this art appears to depict falling more than flying, which is bizarre to me. <laughs> The obviously there's an evocation of flight, so to speak. Maybe they have chosen to stop flying and descend upon their enemies. But I gotta be honest, out of all the things that this art evokes, if it was devoid of context, flight would be pretty far down my list. I don't know. This looks like more of an aerial ambush yeah. of a sort, or they've been catapulted off of something from a great distance. Yeah, the art is a little enigmatic to say the least in terms of what it's trying to represent. Mm-hmm. In the Gamma art, it's just clear. It's just some, you know, demon-like figure spreading its wings, which I think probably would have been a little bit more. If you just had a bird spreading its wings on this image, it would have been clearer. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed completely. All right, this next one is fun, and obviously the progenitor for many of its kind. It's Fog. For a single green mana, you get an instant. It says, creatures attack and block as normal, but none deal any damage. All attacking creatures are still tapped play any time before attack damage is dealt i like how this wording sets up a little bit of a narrative like (laughs) you're attacking and blocking is normal but you don't do any damage (laughs) it's like telling a story um yeah obviously there's a reason why we refer to this effect effect as fogs you know historically 
I like the fact that in the last sentence it says play any time before attack damage is dealt. The phrase attack damage is not common or even within alpha, right? Other yeah. cars have said before damage, but this one says attack damage, which is which is interesting to me. Um, Steve, uh, have you ever played Fog, like the literal alpha or beta Fog, in any context? I am. I think it's fairly likely that I've played with or against Fog back in like 1994-ish. Mm-hmm. At some point, you know, probably noodling around with revised decks, you know, start cards. So I, I feel like I've seen this pl- actually play in, in its original environment, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, th- the, the example that strikes me the most is there was for a while, and God, if it wasn't in standard or extended or something like that, there was like a turbo fog deck, Kevin, that used, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, like momentary silence to fog the game until it could just win, combo out. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember that? What was well, that? The short answer is yes. Well, there have been, Turbo Fog is ostensibly an archetype in many formats and throughout recent memory. And there was actually a Turbo Fog list that was played at the Mythic Invitational in Standard just this past weekend, in fact. It didn't do well, but the point is Turbo Fog has become its own niche of multiple metagames. And so you're exactly right. Many of them seek to set up, some of them, I should say, have seek to set up longer-term card advantage engines like the, the Howling Mind variants, right, where you're drawing extra cards per turn, and if one of your cards drawn every turn is a fog, then your opponent can't get through. Some of them have sought to set up time walk loops with time walks like uh, uh, Nexus of Fate. And so I would argue that Turbo Fog is now a known quantity throughout Magic, and it just kind of rears its head once all the constituent pieces are available in any given metagame. What was the card that I was thinking of that flashes back in Fogs? Yeah, that is like momentary peace. Yeah. Momentary peace. I said silence. Yeah. Yeah, that one's um, from Odyssey. That has flashback. Another one that's very famous for a similar effect is Constant Mists from Stronghold, which is the one where you can buy it back by sacking a land. That's another one that people love because it, it even by itself <laughs> it lets you reliably fog multiple turns. Wow. And then Fog was manifest as a creature in Spike Weaver, which you and I played against each other a number of times in the old Sapphire Oath deck, where one of its strategies was to Oath up a Spike Weaver and then delay the game until Morphling could come around. Yeah, these, you know, I have to say that these Fog effects in in smaller formats can be incredibly frustrating. And I think part of the frustration is because <laughs> of the, both the cumulative effect, but also in... Out of out of the context of a strategy built around fogging, the surprise effect. You know, it's like you just can't you just can't get through. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would note, Kevin, that the gamma <laughs> version of fog has a critical textual difference in that respect, because mm. and I think one that's less frustrating, um, but perhaps less you know less frustrating, but perhaps less tactical. It just says green instant no attack this turn. So oh, presumably wow. it would have So it's to, much yeah, more like yes. um the the card from the dark festival which prevents an attack. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, interesting. Yeah, it doesn't have that narrative component that you talked about. Which <laughs> where you know which is much more tactical in the sense that you you induce your opponent to make it you know commit to the board. Mm-hmm. They have to decide, you know, decide whether they want to hold anything back to block. They have to decide whether they want to do any creature enhancement, fire breathing, pump, other, you know, whatever. And then you fog and it's like, well, oh, geez. That's that's frustrating. <laughs> so 
I think that they made a great decision in making fog as it is. And it's a, I also think that the art is very cool on the card because it really gives you a sense of what's happening. It's very evocative. Yeah. It's really nice. Fog has obviously spawned an entire subgenre of cards in the ways that many alpha cards have. And there are cards that are still relevant today. It's noteworthy that for the first few following fogs in the early days of magic, they were looking for ways to make them more interesting. Now in the dark, we actually got a straight up reprint of fog, but in white and in black, holy day and darkness, which is ironic because since then the notion of preventing combat damage has been pretty firmly cemented in green, at least holistic to prevention of combat damage. There've been other variants in every color, but in fallen empires, you got spore cloud. And then in ice age, you got undergrowth and, Tempest had respite. I mean, there's just there's, most modern sets have a fog variant of one way or another. It's still a staple of the game. And in the early days, they kept tacking on extra effects, extra things. Like by the time we got uh, Spore Frog in Prophecy, we were trying to get some really sophisticated variants that were still really efficient. And extra things like flashback, like you said, or buyback. In modern days, though, the card is actually it's it's kind of come around to basic fog is actually a little too good for um, modern limited play so much so that the m19 version of fog called root snare is just prevent all combat damage that would be dealt this turn but it costs two mana it's one g so i find that really interesting there have been a lot of powered up variants of fog over the years that have extra effects the creatures don't untap it you know you can cast them twice with flashback or buyback but these days the basic fog is actually a little too good for limited fascinating yeah. Even though most play, I shouldn't say most. My experience is that a lot of players eschew fogs in limited context. The advice from limited resources and others is to just don't play fogs at all. So I think it's ironic that the one in alpha, the titular one, is, is actually too good. <laughs> it's also interesting to me that these things are more constructed than, than limited viable. That's just, well, yeah, a lot of them have really ratcheted up the effect, and in doing so, they've really ratcheted up the inherent value. The Turbo Fog deck, if it gets two turns effectively by keeping attackers tapped, for example, yeah, that's that's an advantage you can abuse. Everything is a time walk. <laughs> exactly. Speaking of preventing combat damage, we got to just move on quickly to Force Field because there's a, lot of, there's a lot in common here. Force Field is an artifact for three. It's a poly artifact. It says one colon, lose only one life to an unblocked creature. We've alluded to this language before, and it is noteworthy because it's unique. And the Oracle text, <laughs> the Oracle text now says, one colon, the next time an unblocked creature of your choice would deal combat damage to you this turn, prevent all but one of that damage. Which in my eyes is a pretty, a pretty reasonable reinterpretation of the alpha language. But in my opinion, the alpha language is anything but exacting. And <laughs> it's pretty fun. We'll talk about the art here in a minute, but Steve... Talk about Force Field and your thoughts and your experience with it, because I know you've played this card a fair bit, as I have. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I. so Force Field is a card that I think is superficially more more powerful than it actually is. Hmm. Um, you know, I, my, one of the places I first got to play with it is in Old School, and specifically I built it into a Transmute Artifact deck that had just a, a kind of a toolbox of targets with Transmute, and Force Field was one of those one of those targets and in my experience force field was one of the 
most lackluster cards <laughs> for two reasons. Number one is that if you're facing a swarm, it doesn't really do much, right? It's it, You want it to be moat, but it's really not. You know? <laughs> right. Um, the second thing is that even against a, a small number of threats, like two or three, um, it's, you know, which isn't exactly a swarm, but it can be a swarm. You need to have answers or you're gonna, your life total is gonna be pecked away at. So for example, if I'm facing a mono white deck, which is not uncommon in, in old school 94, suppose my opponent has like a pump knight and a thunder spirit and a clergy of the holy nimbus, right? <laughs> you're still taking three damage even if you're preventing, you know, four or five out of that. And it's still a relatively quick clock. So I, I right. found that you want, force field is just no substitute for a moat. Or something a bit more permanent. I'm trying to remember what else I used in that deck, the transmute deck. I had, as my targets, I had, um, Chaos Orb, Disrupting Scepter, James Dayton. Uh, I can't remember the other targets, but Force Field was definitely one of the last, a mere universe, I think probably has more value for that kind of effect. Sure. Um, dis- disappointing. Uh, but it's also, I don't know, I, I don't really know why, why it's such a high-value card. Is this a card that's legal in EDH, Kevin? It definitely is, although it is not heavily played. Yeah, it probably wouldn't see very much play in EDH, for the, not just because of its rarity, but for the same reason I just stated. That I believe you, there's something to what you said. The rarity is a big deal, right? I mean, the cheapest technically legal copies of these unlimited ones are 250 bucks. So that's certainly a factor. The other one is it's pretty unspectacular, right? You're still taking some damage. Yeah. But I have to say that... In my estimation, in my experience, though it's it's very limited, the effect of this card is far more political and therefore amplified in a multiplayer context. If you've ah. got if one of your opponents is evaluating who to attack and they look at you and say, I'm only gonna get through for one if I attack you, it's not worth it, right? I'll go somewhere yeah. else. That has that has a lot of multiplayer value. I'm rem- I'm <laughs> I'm loath to suggest that our EDH playing audience should spend two hundred and fifty bucks on one of these. But I would encourage you to take a second look at this card from an EDH perspective because it has a little bit of go-away potential, which is actually quite nice. Interesting. Have you ever seen this played, Kevin, in any other context that you can recall? I had one copy in my old five-color control deck. And, <laughs> oh, this is harkening back to the five-color format, of course. So, yeah, I have a one. I have one really heavily played copy of this that I used to play in that deck. And it was, it was because that the games would were so interactive that I frequently got a lot of value from just removing my opponent's creatures, but then having to bridge a couple of turns before I could find the next big removal spell or whatever. And those games tended to go long. And in that case, you know, I had, I could afford to spend some mana to only take one or two damage a turn. So it wasn't great, but I tried it then and I, I played it in a number of games in that format. I have yet to put it in one of my EDH decks lately, and now that we're reviewing it here, I think I'm going to take a look and try it. <laughs> so, Kevin, are, what kind of deck are you going to put this in, in terms of your EDH? Well, the beauty is it's an artifact, so it goes in just about everything. But the the idea here, in my estimation, is one that's playing a little bit more of a controlling role. And so, it, it's it, because a deck that has big blockers or good blockers is a sort that gets attacked less often anyway. So I'm thinking about a, a deck with low creature count where... I might be an attractive target to attack in general, but the fact that it's going to be so ineffective causes my opponents to fight amongst themselves. Kevin, one thing we should mention about this card is that the art pairs up with Mox Jet. Yes, 
definitely want to talk about that. And when we say pairs up, uh, you're not kidding. The, the art here, if you've never looked at it before, just just hold up Alpha Moxjet and Alpha Force Field side by side, and you'll see it very plainly. It. I wonder, Steve, have you ever talked about or gotten any information on why this is? Because it seems like, I mean, it's it's pure Dan Fraser silliness in my estimation. But at the same time, why choose this art? Why choose Moxjet as opposed to any number of things? My, my mind is just filled with why, why, why. <laughs> well, we can only speculate on answers uh, for that. <laughs> but but I think it goes back to what I was saying before, that I, I think that he used this specific medium, and I don't know what it is. And he probably had an interesting pattern, mm-hmm. and he probably used a piece of it for this art and a piece for the rest. But they aren't – the composition was was drawn over that background yeah. art. But that's the only – the only reason I could come up with. Well, that is a reasonable read on the situation, and I wouldn't be surprised if that was true. It's pretty funny and pretty cool as a as a historical note, either way. Otherwise, I have to be honest, <laughs> this art does not evoke force field to me in any stretch at all. Like, yes, you have a figure who is ostensibly holding something at bay pretty clearly, but the notion that they are invoking some kind of force field is completely lost on me. <laughs> This looks like they're. This looks to me like a giant um, lava lamp just burst. <laughs> they're just trying to hold it from from filling up their house or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like he said. You know, the pattern is interesting. Let me actually try to integrate the pattern into the image somehow. Yeah, and and used it. It is an interesting pattern. I do like it. It's aesthetically pleasing in my eyes. But hey, what are you going to do? All right. Next up, oh, a personal favorite of mine for so many reasons. <clears throat> Force of Nature. Now, I have lots to say about this card that's uh, about my personal affinity for it, but let's start with the facts. 2 GG GG Summon Force Trample. You must pay GG GG during your upkeep. Oh, excuse me, during upkeep. <laughs> Let me talk about that. Or Force of Nature deals 8 damage to you. You may still attack with Force of Nature even if you failed to pay the upkeep. So much to say, Steve. The card is beautiful. It's one of my favorites oh, yeah. in the whole set from an aesthetic standpoint, and it's very powerful. It is the largest unmodified power and toughness in the in the set, and uh, it's just so satisfying for me to look at. What, what's your relationship <laughs> like with Force of Nature? Well, I I don't think I should start. I think you should start then. So tell well, me what what it evokes to you. Okay, so yeah, so I, uh, picture it: Battle Creek, Michigan, nineteen ninety four. A young, a young Kevin purchases his first few starter and booster packs of Revised. And I, I, there was no, well, there was an internet, so to speak, but there was no reference material on the internet. There was no, there, we had magazines, right? I looked through the local binder at um, my local card shop, Fanfare in Battle Creek, and they had a binder for all the sets, but there were, most of the cards were missing. They just had names listed at the front. And so I perused the revised name list just the names of the cards and saw cards like i didn't know what they were i saw royal assassin what is that i saw force of nature that sounds incredible my opening pack had lord of the pit in it and so that was formative for me in terms of my definition of large creatures and it's no slouch right it's the second largest creature in the set but i didn't know that and so i get to work a couple of days later and find out one of the the guys that I work with also plays magic and he happened to have his cards with him. And like me, he had probably his whole collection with him at the time because we didn't have a whole bunch. Right. 
So I'm rifling through his deck and I see this revised force of nature and I see it's eight, eight. That's one bigger than my seven, seven. This, I must have this card. And so I, I'm, I'm not too proud to admit that I probably took this a little too far, but I really badgered that guy to trade me his force of nature over the course of that, the rest of that night at work. And he didn't want to do it, but then we worked together a little bit more later and I said, oh, I'll give you this, I'll give you this. And so eventually he traded it to me. So I was just so enamored with this card and it's for purely Timmy reasons, right? I mean, the numbers were so big in the lower right-hand corner that I thought it couldn't possibly be beat. Well, then I tried to play with it and found out I was sorely mistaken right it's very difficult to implement and uh especially in the context of my collection at the time which was mostly revised commons right it's not that good of a card in that context um and so anyway i just have a strong affinity for this card really love the imagery the swamp thing is a is which is obviously aping is a a a character that i've always really aesthetically enjoyed and uh it's just it's really cool and the fact that it's six mana for an eight eight it's just i can't get past the efficiency element of it even though it really, really punishes you in most contexts when you try to implement it. Yeah, I mean, uh, what I note is the efficiency is real here. Mm -hmm. You get a lot of power for a little bit of investment. There is a a significant upkeep, but all of the big things have some sort of upkeep, you know? Um, Whether it's trying to protect it, which is a form of upkeep, or, you know, or kind of tassel it into uh, an effective combat position means removing other threats around it um this one i think having trample is just huge oh yeah built onto the power um it's also notable though that that being in green green is really the color of in in a sense like you know superfluous or additional acceleration and mana enhancements Mm -hmm. which makes this even better i mean yes it's true black has dark rituals but this in some sense because of the lanamore elves and wild growths and later on everything else is better positioned to pay the upkeep and maintain it than, than perhaps any other color. So it's, it's almost like perfectly fitted, tailored to this color, you know? Yeah, completely agree. I think one of the funniest parts about it is that there's clearly a representation of swamp thing here. So one <laughs> of the things that people might not know is that um, the preprint versions of magic cards used a lot of comic book art. Uh, so, Garfield and colleagues, the developers, would put art onto the cards as a way of kind of creating an evocative feel, creating an aesthetic sense of the game, right? So Yeah, uh, you mentioned that before about how there was so much pop culture represented in the yeah, early days. I mean, I didn't mention this before, but there are comic book figures. There's Neil Gaiman's Sandman on Fast Bond. Nice. You know, there's a there's a X-Men or a Fantastic Four character on Fire Elemental. Um, and on Force of Nature, in the Gamma version, there is, of course, Swamp Thing itself, a DC Comics character, mm-hmm. and Vertigo character. Uh, but I think it's it's striking that they decided to take essentially the same figure into the actual <laughs> Alpha card, <laughs> which is, which to me is just risking, you know, a, some sort of lawsuit from from Warner Media at the time. But <laughs> apparently, right. they felt it was sufficiently obscure. I mean, it's pretty much clear it's swamp thing so it's it's kind of cool in a sense but also kind of surprising um yeah i don't know if there's much more to say just that this is i think i i'm excited to i own one of these in alpha i'm very much looking forward to playing with it in alpha and and accelerating it out with some land elves and perhaps wild growth um you know obviously i'm have to do some work to protect it but um it doesn't really take that many turns to win the game with this. <laughs> no, certainly not. Especially if the first couple turns involved attacking with some elves. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention mention a couple things about the alpha wording here. One is that when I was speaking aloud, <laughs> the upkeep cost, I was not being... Um, What's the word? I was not being evocative of mana symbols. I was actually speaking the the printed text. The alpha version of this card doesn't have green mana symbols to represent the upkeep cost. It has four capital G's, which makes the alpha version of this card especially noteworthy and cool. So if you really if you haven't seen it before, go look at exactly the alpha printing because it was corrected on all subsequent ones. Also noteworthy, there's some strategic advice here. You may still attack with force of nature even if you failed to pay the upkeep cost. You know, which is some some quality strategic advice, which is obviously be implied by the fact that nothing else happens other than it dealing you eight damage, which is, you know, to draw a distinction versus something like Lord of the Pit, which functions differently. And it's also worth noting that Force of Nature has been reprinted a handful of times. In paper, 12 times, in fact. And it was Alphabet Unlimited revised, you know, as, as, we're, as things normally are. Got into fourth edition, which is nice. In fifth edition, they changed the art for the first time to a really neat Pete Venter's art, which... I would really enjoy if it wasn't replacing the awesome Doug Schuler art. And then again in the beatdown box set and then ninth edition. So the last time force of nature has been printed was in ninth edition. That's a very eclectic set of, it really printings. is. It really is. And I just love the way we're finding all these different patterns of reprints for different cards in alpha. And it's really noteworthy that there's plenty of other cards, like we talked about Fireball, right? It was last in a core set in 10th edition. That's not unlike Force of Nature, right? But then Fireball's been reprinted another half dozen times or something since then. Force of Nature just has not. The last printing of it is 9th edition. No more reprints, no box sets, no dual decks. It's just, that's it. <laughs> so I would encourage people to take a second look at Force of Nature and its multiple printings. It's a, it's a pretty cool card, even if it's pretty hard to utilize these days. I would... I would wager that there you could probably get away with playing this card in a green or maybe two-color EDH deck, at which point mm-hmm. you're not going to enjoy paying four for the upkeep, but it's a pretty efficient beater at that cost. The simple truth is it, is it has been pretty outclassed in terms of its mana efficiency uh, to upkeep ratio by some other modern threats. You can get a lot. You can get up to eight power for six mana in a rare these days and probably get a um, uh, an easier time of it. But Force of Nature just can't be beat. That's so cool. I love your yeah. personal connection to Force of Nature. Oh, yeah. This card just says magic to me. Granted, it's the revised copy that I really relate to, but the Alpha one is just so beautiful. Next up, we have a pair of cards that truly represents a trio of cards in practice, and that is Forest. So it's our first basic lands. That's our, right. First ones. And, you know, for the average set review, we would not review basic lands for obvious reasons. But there's a lot of things that are noteworthy about the basics in Alpha. And Steve, I know this is a topic that's near and dear to your heart. So, <laughs> well, I, yeah, let, let, let me just recently, hand it over to you. Okay, it's only recently become so as I've become, you know, this summer, the, the COVID summer, <laughs> um, embarked upon, you know, collecting journey here. Um, so one of the things that I've never had to differentiate between the A, B, and C arts in, in limited edition, right? I've just... They're different. I assume I know one of them is A, one of them is B, one of them is C. Right. But now, unfortunately, I actually know the difference. So let's talk about <laughs> all three of them. <laughs> and I have some strong opinions about Forest in particular. So, um, so A, for those who are wondering, is the one that has what looks like a kind of like a a toadstool stool rock and a blue, a kind of a flat blue background. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't really scream Forest. It's just like a Two rocks with some 
little bit of foliage and then a blue background. Yeah. Forest B is probably, I think, one of the more iconic versions of forest. It's a it's a tree and a series of trees that has a, a pathway that runs across it right through the middle of the image. And then Forest C is this like dark wooded tree in the center of the composition that has a pair of eyes peering out in the middle of the hollow. So uh, B and, and C is only in beta in terms of limited edition. Whereas A and B were in alpha. So just to be clear, since let me just state this as clearly as possible. In alpha edition, there were only two versions of each basic. In beta, a third edition was added. Um, the original advertisement, Kevin, for out for, uh, on the alpha box or in the packaging or something says that there are 300 cards or over 300 cards. But in truth, Alpha only had 295, which we mentioned before. <laughs> right. So this is the first instance where a third card. I don't know the story precisely on why. You know, were there, was there originally always supposed to be three versions of each basic, and they just failed to add it into the Alpha print run, you know, or, or whatnot? I mean, it's the problem is the two cards that were clearly missing. You know, we've mentioned one of them, Circle Protection Black, and then one of them is a Dual Land. That only gets you to 297. So maybe they thought, maybe they thought, well, we need to add some more basics. The problem is there are five basics. So, so I, I don't know. But, um, so Kevin, um, before we rank our favorite version of Forest, what is your, what, do you have any comments on the A, B, and C art? My relationship with these is interesting because they're the, the lands that I grew up with, right? They were reused and revised. And so I have a lot of affinity for them. I think they look way better in black border. I just generally don't like yeah. the way revised cards look full stop. Uh, these are done by Christopher Rush. And uh, from a personal standpoint, I love all the ABU basics. And I made a mistake in my life in not getting Chris Rush to sign a stack of oh, ABU uh, forests before, before he passed. Yeah. Fortunately, he signed other things of mine, which I'm very happy with. He signed my Lotus. He signed my copy of The Wretched and a handful of other things. So, I, I mean, I got to meet Chris Rush and talk with him a couple of times. I have had to purchase signed uh, beta forests after the fact, which I don't begrudge, but it was just a, you know, an, a, a mistake in Not my life. Not the same. Yeah. So I wish I had met him to get him signed forests specifically. That said, I love all these forests. I really do. The one that you like the least is actually a little higher in my eyes because I like the evocative colors. It has a really strangely placed aquamarine color in it, which yeah. for some reason I actually really enjoy. It speaks to something else going on in this forest, like fog or some another light source or something that is <clears throat> completely not described in the art. It's just implied by the fact that otherwise why would there be this this fog over the background and why would there have this color anyway and i really like the one that they added for beta because it's darker and it's a little more i think it's a little more grim fairy tales kind of forest yes, yes forest it is. a forest a is actually in my <laughs> opinion the nicest representation of a forest and it feels a little bit more tolkien-esque it feels a little bit more like you're you're the in the shire one? perhaps um forest what, what, forest a is the blue one sorry forest b sorry the one with the path Yes. The Path yes. Forest from Alpha is the one that's the most serene to me, the most Tolkien-esque, the most like the yes. Shire. And it's nice in that regard. But it's actually third on my list in terms of composition and, and oh, wow. e evoking <laughs> and the colors. 
I tend to like darker well, I, land art. I, I just want to say that, just to be clear, that I think art is very subjective and what people can like <laughs> and not like, and and also yeah, very personal because of their experience. So I'm not, <laughs> yeah, I'm not diminishing or poo-pooing your opinion on this whatsoever. I we just have a different we have a different opinion, perspective, a very yeah. respectful, yeah. Um, no, that's fair. But, so, but so your all order great. is they're all great. So your order is is CAB or the, ACB? Uh, CAB is my order. Yeah, yeah. That's what I thought. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, How about you? Your your order well, is your order is uh my hold on my Minus order is C A B. I'm guessing that your order is hold on. I got I got to get the number. So you you like the path most, and then the owl second, and then the the blue third, right? Or the I'm assuming third. it's an owl in there. Uh, yeah, it's not clear. <laughs> oh yeah, could be. I, that was my language. I, I know you didn't say that. <laughs> yeah, no, I I I do prefer the pa- well. The thing is, because I play Alpha League, mm-hmm. you know, I'm I'm forced to choose between the the blue and the path. Right. And right. I invested all in. I have one a token <laughs> blue just for my collection, but I have I'm much more heavily invested. All of my forests are basically path. So that speaks for itself, and I yeah. I have absolutely no regrets, no <laughs> you know uh, apprehensions about that whatsoever. I'm good. very happy with my decision very to go good. all in on path. But if if I had to choose between the path and in the um, call it eyes and the hollow, mm-hmm. um, I'm not sure. I, I'm not really not sure. I think I think you nailed it. I think it is much. It, it's also true that the beta printing is generally, especially for the corrected cards, is just a darker, like more ink. Darker coloring, darker shading. Yeah. Um, yeah. It would probably depend on the deck I'm playing, but for like my green red decks or my elves decks, I think I just prefer the path. Um, if it's playing, if I was playing it, just a couple of forests in a multicolor zoo deck, I don't know. I could see going. I could see going C, the beta. I, I you know, I guess I'll say this for um, is a general principle, and you'll see this when we get to other basic lands, but. I prefer to play alpha if I'm playing one or two alpha lands because I just love alpha borders. You know, I love the curvature. Yeah. It, it just, for some reason, it creates, just the curvature of alpha creates an, an aesthetic impression for me that is so powerful and that I've had such difficulty describing why I enjoy it so much. I, I can't really pinpoint why, what it does, but it, it accentuates the art in a way that the 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 more you know less rounded corners doesn't do. So if I'm playing an old school deck, I'm more likely to want to play the alpha. But um, if I was going all in, like just a a mono color deck, and I was playing an old school, I could see wanting to run the sea forest because it's so cool. Yeah. Um. But I I think my ultimate order is B C A, and the blue background just it really doesn't do it for me. I need. <laughs> I need to evoke a forest in a really clear way, and that fl- that flat background, while it is a very odd and unusual color, like to me, uh, I I want those flat backgrounds for figurative art, not for landscapes. Mm. You know, I like. I get it. Or yep. fi- yeah, for landscapes, that is just too abstract. It's got like a <laughs> kind of a shadow of a, you know, a shadow of a trunk. In the middle and then on the side, it does well, not speak forest. To me, that's an image of a toadstool or some rock or something. <laughs> you know, not a toadstool, but like some, you know, odd animistic imagery yeah. 
But if it was, if it was, I don't know. This is more an artistic observation, but I do like that simplistic flat. I like the flatness of it, as I said, for figurative art in Alpha. I like the coloration is interesting, but it just, it's, it's so, I don't know, 60s, 70-ish to me, you know, which is cool for its place. You know, we talked Mm -hmm. about, (laughs) you know, the yellow submarine aesthetic affect in some of this stuff, you know, (laughs) the surrealism. But to me, it's just too much in that direction. I want, for the landscape art, I want more traditional fantasy imagery. That's fair. It is the least evocative of a forest, I'll give you that. <laughs> it's barely well, forest-like. I know. It's, well, it's like two rocks with a little bit of foliage. <laughs> it's strange. <laughs> you know that my so, favorite magic artist is Drew Tucker, too, so this is a little bit well, of me pining for a Drew Tucker basic land. Fair enough. This is the most Drew Tucker of Chris Rush's art that I've seen. But I but I will say as a counterpoint to that, Drew Tucker creates such emotional charge in his art. True. Because it's it's so abstract, but it's the abstraction is around the thematic and it's usually a powerful thematic thematic, like an angry mob or, you know, is someone yeah, being burned vertigo. at the stake or so, you know, yeah, just something is really occurring. It's not it's not static. It's you get a, a visceral sense of something dynamic occurring in the art, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas these landscape arts, which are used in land, you're it's not to it's not to say that there's no you know m- dynamicism. There's no dynamicism. There's no motion or whatever. But I would prefer something that is more clearly represent you know representational and not in a in a narrative sense, right? Not figurative and not narrative but something that is clearly landscape-ish. And so I think in in land and landscapes is where I look mostly for traditional art. I am big on abstraction, but only if it if it amplifies or vivifies, you know, kind of enhances the emotional or aesthetic experience that the card is trying to convey, which Drew Tucker does brilliantly. But I don't think I wouldn't have Drew Tucker. Let me just put it another way: I wouldn't have Drew Tucker make land art. Has he done <laughs> land art? No. Well, I, strike that. Okay. No basics. He's done a single That's land, I mean. and it's plateau, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which is awesome. Yeah. But I, I, I meant, yeah. So he has done <laughs> land art. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He has, and he's certainly <laughs> capable at, at doing so. However, not very many, and not basics. And his land art, I just want to note, is very different. From his other art, it's much more representational. Oh yeah, it's much more, much less visceral. Yep. Yeah. Doesn't and feel narrative. For the reasons that you described, I completely agree. Yeah. Well, we'll have All much right. more to say about the the land, basic land arts as, as we go forward. But for now, we've gotten a lot of the, what do you want to call it, the the, the structure of that out of the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, we, you and I, I think, pretty uniformly, really enjoy the alpha beta. Uh, lands just in general right and i can talk a little bit more about the planes when i get to it because that's actually my least favorite but not for the same i don't have the same opinion of planes as i do of forests in this case (laughs) not as strong (laughs) that's true that's true okay so moving past forest next up is fork a very very fun card the alpha version of fork for rr is an interrupt right? As you might expect if you know what Fork does. Any sorcery or instant spell just cast is doubled. Treat Fork as an exact copy of target spell, except that Fork remains red. 
copy and original may have different targets. <laughs> uh, is doubled is some language that is uh, hilariously ambiguous. I like the fact that Fork then clarifies treat Fork yeah. as an exact copy of Target Spell. Right. Because if it didn't say that, you could be excused for thinking that it just doubles the effect of the spell, you know, like your healing sad yes. gives you six life Berserk. or whatever. Yeah, exactly. I don't know how you would treat Berserk. It quadruples the, the power, I guess. But uh, this card has some interesting history and lineage with respect to the reserved list and subsequent reprints, but uh, we'll get to that in a minute. What's your first thought when you see Fork, Steve? Well, you've done such an excellent job of talking about the lineage that these cards have had. There's two kind of conjoined thoughts. The first is that this card is very interesting in in what it says about red in in Alpha, in limited edition, I should say. Sure. Now, this is a starkly unique effect. Mm -hmm. There's really nothing quite like it, you know, yeah, just copying, you know, I think Berserk is probably the closest thing, and it's not even close to the same thing. Well, we know that um, Blue owns literal copying yes. in, uh, in Alpha, but it's only permanence. Yes, You're right, right. So it's very interesting that this is in red. But I think the, the most important thing I want to point out about Fork is that, and then we can talk about our specific experiences and where we've seen this play begin with, but later on. But um, what Fork, this card was regarded as immensely powerful when it was originally printed, so much so that it was fairly quickly restricted, uh, presumably on the principle that you know anything that could duplicate what a restricted card did probably needed to be restricted. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what's so interesting about the card is that for something that was viewed as so immensely powerful in the early days, this card, this card is, is <laughs> I think with the vantage point and benefit of time, has seen a tremendous power level decline. I mean, it's basically been reprinted a number of times. Mm-hmm. Twin cast, so on and so forth, was unrestricted almost immediately in old school environments, despite being restricted. I think in '96, I'll double check that. Um, and it was it was a it was a key piece in a lot of the recursion decks. Recursion decks in the first few few years of Magic, I think, were viewed as more powerful concepts. You know, you had these like unbounded recursion decks where you Generally built around Time Twister, but you know, forking whatever it was, forking a oh, um, what's the card, Kevin? A storm, a storm a seeker, forking st- storm seeker, yeah. or things like that. You know, forking uh, a winds of change or a wheel of fortune with an underworld dreams, uh, forking time walks, and then using recursion to take additional time walks, and you know, whether it was recall or forgotten lore, and then. You know, in the early issues of the Duelist, people like Zach Dolan would talk, would try and figure out, there were these like recursion decks that were called like the churning deck. You know, the, oh God, the, um, I forget all the different names of these decks, but often at the centerpiece of these decks around Time Twister was Fork. You know, okay. whether you were forking Time time Walker or, uh, you know, Regrowth or whatever, eventually the idea was that you would then cast time twister and time walk and fast bond and sometimes these decks even had things like stone calendar which is a early version of helm of obedience uh, helm of uh, awakening <laughs> awakening yeah right um and the, the idea is eventually you would you know basically the the earliest versions of the original doomsday decks where you would, could just do an infinite loop and dominate your opponent however you wanted 
Um, and Fork was viewed as kind of like, I guess it was more regarded as like a critical combo part to a lot of different interesting strategies, as well as just a very powerful card in of its own right. But I think over time, we've begun to view this card co- copying a static effect on the stack just as not that great. Despite the versatility, right, that you can use it to counter spells, to duplicate a removal spell, I just don't think we regard it, you know, it's, it's, if, if we originally, if in 1995 or 94, 96, Magic players thought this was like a 9 out of 10 on a Magic scale, I think now we view it maybe as like a 5, yeah. Kevin, in terms of power level. That's a lot, but let's, sticking to the theme of power and lineage, how do you, how do you evaluate this card? <sighs> There are so many interesting paths that alpha cards have followed, and yeah. and this one is no exception. So, Steve, I'm going to challenge you here with a trivia question, and I don't expect you to get it right because I would never have guessed this myself. But after alpha and fork, what do you think is the next set that had a spell that copies an instant or sorcery? Well, I'm guessing it's twin cast. You're close. You're very close. It was actually, <laughs> technically, the answer is Torment with the card Radiate. Oh, nice. Oh, which, I remember. Which is we a played dr- that in Type 4, I think. Yeah, which is a dramatically huge, different huge. effect. <laughs> I mean, wasn't that like five mana, it, and it's copy any number of, of it, spells? It, it is it's five mana, and it copies an instant or sorcery for all of its... It has a single target. It copies it for all its legal targets. So it's a totally different <laughs> effect. The next closest yeah. thing is actually Mischievous Quinar from Scourge, which is a morph. Oh, awesome! Yeah, another Type Four All Star, right? <laughs> but it was only Memories. a couple of years later that we got to Twin Cast, and so. But it's a really interesting gulf in terms of effects yeah. that we think are common in Magic today. There was a huge gulf between Alpha and basically uh, and Betrayers. Uh, sorry, it's uh, Saviors of Kamigawa, where we got Twin Cast. Can I can I just interject? I mm-hmm. think that what that says is that, that Wizards R and D was afraid to touch this type of effect. That they they viewed it as radioactive, just overpowered, <laughs> and I think that they were living with that that memory, that kind of institutional contextual memory that we all had, that Fork was this immensely powerful card that was on the restricted list and shouldn't be reprinted. And so they stayed away from it, perhaps for too long, out of an unwarranted fear. But but continue. I think that's pretty reasonable, and you're probably right. There's other evidence in the support of that case, and it's the fact that most modern fork variants are limited in some way. Even if the casting cost is similar, like, for example, recently, somewhat recently, we had Narset's Reversal, which is UU. That's a twin cast, but it puts the original card back in your opponent's hand. Then, more recently, we had Lutri the Spell Chaser, which was famously banned for different reasons, but... Um, in different formats, I mean, but the Lutra the Spell Chaser is a creature form, kind of like Dualcaster made, <laughs> yes. but the effect is limited to if you cast it from your hand and it copies a, a instant sorcery that you control. There's a, yeah. there's a lot of evidence for the fact that Wizards R&D is very careful and very, as you put it, somewhat afraid of letting us copy our opponent's spells in an unrestricted yeah. kind of way. The last thing that really did that, that gave you kind of unmitigated copying of us of a spell is gosh i guess fury storm from the commander set in c18 that copies an instant or sorcery spell and it's unlimited but it costs four mana you know twice as much and so it's pretty clear that an unlimited copying of something costs about four mana these days as opposed to the two 
So Kevin, I want to, I, I, that's fascinating. It's totally fascinating. Um, I want to just back up a minute because, so first of all, when when they put it in blue, it was a bit shocking. It it's was. It's like, wow, this card was already powerful enough in red. You're putting it in blue? I suspect that they had hoped that, that Twin Cast was going to be a big player. It ended up being a non-event. Pretty much. So I mean, I think it that, saw a little bit of standard play, I think, occasionally. But yeah, it's not a big deal. I think that was probably the turning point and when, when they realized that. So you were talking about cards that became ratcheted up in power or downgraded in power. This is a card that we thought was immensely powerful, and then they actually made more powerful versions. <laughs> they, they actually have made more powerful versions, but they haven't made them more efficient versions. That's the thing I would observe. Yeah. Is there are lots of fork variants now in different ways. They're stapled onto creatures like Dualcaster Mage and Lutri. They're stapled onto activated abilities. I mean, there's one in the upcoming set, Lithophore mentioned, which is an artifact that has an activated ability to uh, copy target instant or sorcery spell you control. So we're getting that effect on a somewhat reliable basis in recent sets, but they're all less efficient, more narrow than the original. So I just want to point, I want to also back up and correct myself. So I, I'm looking at my article on combo in old school. Mm. The Duelist number 10 has Zach Dolan's decks. Uh, he had, and by the way, also a correction, a fork was restricted in April in 1995, along with balance. And it was unrestricted, Kevin, in 2004. So it was restricted wow. for nine years. That's, that's ridiculous. Um, yeah, it was, it was unrestricted with Doomsday, Brain Geyser, and Earthcraft. So it was unrestricted when the, when Type 1 and Type 1.5 were separated. So I can assume that probably didn't have too much to do with that. It was just not used in most of them. But, um, going back to the point in Zach Dolan's looping deck, in the churning deck, and in the non Zach Dolan, but recursion decks. The fork recursion deck was actually Mark Chalice's deck. It was a famous deck from '95, in which fork was a four of. It was the last documented deck with with four forks, and uh, he really was trying. He was using fast bond, and he was using trying to get infinite time walks, uh, <laughs> and or aren't we all? Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, until he could completely dominate the game and then win with. Uh, Stormseeker was his main win condition. I used Howling Minds with with that as well. Um, but um, but yeah, Fork was used as part of these. Uh, I, I guess it was just that you know up until April of '95, if you had a lot of power, Kevin, and you had all the power nine, and you used a lot of like time twister type effects, you could see how someone could regard Fire Fork as an as an obnoxious card because it just allows you to duplicate a restricted spell, right? Mm-hmm. And copy artifact was restricted for the same reason, right? That um, whether you're copying, you know, Black Vise or Howling Mine or whatever, it, it could just be viewed as obnoxious. Um, but these looping churning decks, they all of them basically used, you know, whether it's rec- recursion, looping churning, they all used fork um, in those in those strategies. Now I think those things are much more fragile today, and in a competitive environment where people have perfect information you know decks are reported on a weekly daily basis you can pinpoint you know the weakness in these combo strategies so there's there's no i don't know i guess the epic storm and legacy has some of these features where you could you know uh go all in on echo of the eons with lion's eye diamond right kevin that we've talked about i mean we've talked about i feel like a lot of these cards have been printed in our in our set reviews and we've talked about them in the context of those in Legacy, you can get away with it because 
not every opponent is playing counter magic. And if your opponent opens with like Mountain Goblin Lackey, then you can just <laughs> go all in and combo out, right? Yeah. Um, but even today, I don't think anyone uses Fork around these powerful effects. You would, that doesn't mean you wouldn't use Recursion, but I don't think you would use Fork, right? Yeah, it's interesting. I think that the, the opportunity is there to take that approach, but I think we've just been given more efficient and otherwise more useful options than recursion. to, yeah, recursion, like you said, yeah. th- than to just play a spell whose dedicated purpose is just copying. Right. I mean, because like regrowth isn't even restricted anymore in vintage. So right. the recursion, the recursion deck has far more opportunities. If someone wanted to build a time twister re- regrowth deck, with fast bond, I mean, all those cards are except for Twister are already unrestricted. So you could build a much more efficient version of it, and you could even play with Glacial Chasm and whatever you wanted, right? Right, right. In in the old school context, regrowth is generally still restricted. Um, fast bond is not. Um, so it's harder to get the engine going. I mean, you could use Sylvan Necropotence in '95, Lich even. Um, I think it's probably harder to get all of that going, um, but I, I think those decks are fun. You know, the 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 original deck that led to um, to Doomsday being rest- well, it was restricted. It was printed in Weatherlight in '97, but the the pile was um, <laughs> this is funny. It was Time Twister, Regrowth, Black Lotus, Lion's Eye Diamond, Brain Geyser. Interesting. And so what you would do is you would draw and cast time twister and you would have at least one card in your in your graveyard doomsday itself four cards left in your library and you need at least two more cards in your hand before casting doomsday to not deck yourself right and then you can just go infinite there generating infinite mana and then cast a lethal brain geyser but that that's no that's no theory uh cuneo and brandy bueller actually used that in the type one deck to win the duelist team challenge it it uh origins one year huh so it's a, remember it that. was a real thing in 1998. Yeah, in 1998 they won the five-person team challenge, duelist challenge, with Cuneo playing the uh, the Doomsday deck. Huh. With That's that, a pretty good that. piece of trivia. I did not remember that. Yeah. Um. So so, but but the, the concept. I just want. I'm trying to emphasize that that recursion, you know, recursive looping concept with Time Twister around the Time Twister regrowth axis was the original Doomsday kill. Now, of course, now we just use Thassa's Oracle. And that Fork was originally part of the melange of cards that was used in recursion looping decks back in the mid nineties. Although it did not make it into the it did not make it into the uh at least the doomsday decks I have on record. <laughs> but it was used in the in the versions before then. But for the reason you said, right, we have just far more powerful recursion effects these days. That you can it's better just a regrowth or or whatever the case may be. Recall is also, by the way, unrestricted in most Old school environments, eternal central rules being the exception. Anyway, I think I've said everything I want to say about Fork in terms of its <laughs> historical vantage point. Kevin, do you have any specific memories with Fork? You know, I remember being attracted to it in Revised because I opened one early and thinking, oh, that's so cool. The problem was is that uh, two things. One, in Revised, the context for things that are cool to Fork is pretty narrow. Now, you and I all, you know, by, by today's standards that forking a brain geyser or a fireball is a pretty big game. But for whatever reason, my early days, X spells were not that interesting to me. I was not big into just putting all my eggs into one basket in turn from my mana for a turn. So I didn't catch on to the fact that forking a brain geyser would have been awesome. 
So it just kind of rotted in my, my box of cards and didn't see much play. It wasn't <laughs> until I got into more casual formats later on in life, you know, a couple of years later, that I started thinking, oh, forking spells is cool, especially when I can do it to my opponent's stuff. But by that point, we had more cool things to do. So unlike Force of Nature, which I have a strong affinity for, even in the revised context, Fork is one that I actually owned and just kind of rotted in my box because I didn't understand how cool it was back then. Yeah, that's sad that you didn't get a chance to use it. It, <laughs> it is really interesting, is. by the way, that the, the original intent of the card being interrupt did give it some tactical advantage it no longer has. So the transition away from interrupts might have might have slightly decreased the power level such that it's not quite the same as it is as it was then. That's a good point. That's a really good point. It's also worth noting that the gamma version of the card is slightly different, and ironically, more closely akin to reverberate, because the gamma version says, sorcery or instant being cast is doubled. Treat it as if two spells of the same strength were cast. (laughs) I love the of the same strength language. It goes further to clarify the things I was worried about before, right? Does my healing salve, you know, gain me six life? Well, no, it doesn't. Yeah. But it's it's worth note that <laughs> the bit about that. the I know the bit about the fork still being red is not in the gamma version. They added that for alpha. And I'm not entirely sure yeah. why. Were they worried about the fact that fork well, I, could then sidestep certain blasts. effects if it was a true copy? Yeah, I don't I don't understand that. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, look, I think that it's clear that with the laces and everything, color identity and color changing is a far more salient part of alpha. And so they wanted to, I think they probably, my guess is they did that just to make, just to resolve any ambiguity. Because if you, you had, you had three options, right? You just don't say anything at all. You say, or you could say it, it copies everything, including the color of the original, which could create a lot of confusion with respect to casting versus resolution kevin Mm. so i think probably just the third option just keeping it red throughout probably resolves the most number of ambiguities is my guess i'll buy that i totally buy that yeah and i think in this context of alpha that's a reasonable interpretation don't ask me what happens if you if you lace a fork (laughs) before it resolves i don't want to know i think that's one of many unknowables in an alpha context isn't it yeah. So, Kevin, you brought up Reverberate. Let's go to the reserve list point now. Oh, yeah. Well, so Fork is reserved, full stop. However, it has a unique, somewhat unique position in the context of the reserved list in that it is one of the cards whereby a version of it that is very, very close in function has been printed and has since been acknowledged by Wizards of the Coast R&D in particular, I think Mark Rosewater, but I'm not 100% certain if he's the specific one who acknowledged it or if it was just him answering a question, that they, the reprinted version, which is Reverberate, is too close to the original and therefore violates the spirit, if not the written letter, of the ah. reserved list. Yeah, I know. You and I share the same opinion on this, of course. But So just for reference, Reverberate is RR, instant, copy, target, instant, or sorcery spell. You may choose new targets for the copy. It is exactly the function of fork, except it doesn't stay red. red. So if you copy a brain geyser with reverberate, your reverberate copy is a blue brain geyser and looks just like brain geyser in all other respects. If you copy a brain geyser with a fork, you end up with a red brain geyser. That's the only difference. When, 
So when was Reverberate first printed? M- M13? Uh, M11 is the original printing. It's since been M11? reprinted a couple of times, yeah. What year did M- M11 come out? Do you know? Oh, looking at the text on Reverberate, it looks like 2010. Okay, around yeah. the same time they strengthened the reserve list. Yeah. Fair enough. So, and we don't need to rehash the whole reserve list process here, but that just means that Fork is noteworthy as a historical footnote vis-a-vis the reserved list because it is probably the best example of a card that was not reprinted in fact, but reprinted in practice and such to the degree that Wizards has acknowledged it as such. Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to say about Fork? Uh, just that the Melissa Benson art is pretty cool and pretty par for the course for Alpha in that it is a nice subject, completely devoid of context. But I have to I have to say that in the concept context of Fork specifically, I don't need much more context. No, I don't. It's cool. <laughs> All right, awesome. let's let's move on to Frozen Shade. And we're going to talk a lot about this one with uh, looking back at fire breathing because Frozen Shade is 2B, Summon Shade. It has the text box of B colon plus one plus one. It's a zero one. And then the rest of the text box is filled with a nice Edgar Allan Poe quote. So yeah, it's, it's, it's ironic that we just reviewed fire breathing and these are so close in the alphabet. But this is has all the same functional issues and, and quirks as fire breathing in that there's just no language in the text box other than black mana equals plus one plus one noteworthy that uh, this is in the context of a creature that already has power and toughness whereas fire breathing is on an aura and yes. you would think it needed a little bit more connective tissue to point to the fact that it's granting the bonus to the creature it enchants and not itself an aura right but anyway i'm reading a lot yeah. into it frozen shade is the sort of card that speaks to some interesting top-down design from a color standpoint, but also it's a common creature in black and there aren't too many of those. So this is the fact that this card is uh, requires this mana input to be an offensive threat really has, I think reverberations in terms of the color identity at common and set construction in alpha. And it's one of the reasons why black is slightly disadvantaged against white is because black is ostensibly wasting, so to speak, a common creature slot on an effect like this. Interesting. Ouch. That's harsh. Uh, Yeah, that's that's, that's harsher than I intended it to be. (laughs) Well, I was going to say that that this card was actually in Joel Nick's July, June Alpha League Victorious deck. I can't remember whether they had one or two. But basically, he had a mono-black deck with a bunch of sinkholes in, in three hippies, which are moderated. Um, and he just used this as a late-game finisher if you have a lot of mm-hmm. swamps, free swamps. I, I think he probably should have been playing Senjur over this, uh, but that's neither here nor there. Okay. I think what's curious about this card are, are two things. Number one, so I appreciate you pointing out that you know basically you have to pump to get any power out of it, but it, it's an unbounded pump, which... On a three mana creature, you know, is both intensive but also has a potentially large damage potential. What I sure. think is interesting is that they reprinted a variant of this in Killer Bees in Legends. And I don't oh, know yeah. if you remember, but back in the day, Kevin, Killer Bees was regarded, at least in in my community, as a very powerful threat. I'm not sure if that was warranted, but I remember it being viewed as powerful. Well, uh, um, and you're this not card wrong, is. But- uh, we should we should no, there is a difference it's we fine. should bolster that yeah. though by comparing this to carrion ants too which had this, a similar experience carrion ants yes. was viewed as very powerful in my eyes too which is part of the reason why it was in chronicles and 
it's just this card except one more mana and the uh, the pump can be done with any color of mana. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it's interesting that both of those cards are viewed as so powerful. And this card is basically, you know, a, gar- a garbage bin card, you know, bulk common. <laughs> right. So, so, you know, is the flying really that much of a difference to make, you know, killer bees so much better? Perhaps that's the, that's the difference. The right. carry ant, carry ants, maybe the splash ability. But, um, you know, to really put a fine point on this, um, killer bees in gatherer. Okay. If you look at the <laughs> Legends version in Gatherer, has a 4.011 out of 5 rating, community rating. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know where I'm going with this, right? Yeah. Froze, Frozen Shade in the Alpha version has a 2.846 rating, community out of 5 stars. So, yeah. <laughs> and, and in the, <laughs> so I mean, Clearly, one is regarded as a good card, and the other is garbage, or very mediocre, I should say. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I, obviously, the not having flying is huge, because if this had flying, the evasion plus the pump ability, like Will of the Wisp, right, which yeah. has regeneration but flying, I think is regarded as a uh, a better card. And in fact, Will of the Wisp's community rating in Alpha is... Uh, Four point five six zero out of five. Dang, I mean, that's <laughs> big difference. <laughs> With fifty votes, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, I, 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 Frozen Shade um, has just been outclassed over the years. I mean, it was reprinted a couple of times. It was in up until the core sets, up until fourth edition. Uh, strike that fifth edition. It it got new art in fifth edition. It hasn't been reprinted since. So, I just think that. It is pretty firmly acknowledged throughout the history of the game that this card and the the unbounded pumping is nice, and we don't see that too often anymore. But the simple truth is, is that starting so low and requiring this kind of investment every turn is just uh, is not it's not where we need to be from a power level standpoint, especially with a common with no other abilities. <laughs> By the way, the beta rate community rating is two point four one seven. I don't know why mm-hmm. they have different community ratings for different versions of each card, but Anyway, <laughs> it's just funny. So, so I, I would say the only thing going for Frozen Shade is that if you're trying to build an Alpha 40 deck, it's probably not the worst common if you're going to go into black to pick up. It's probably worth including as a sing- as one or two of in a 40-card deck if you if all you can access is commons. Sure, that's fair. The I'm being very talk- generous there. <laughs> yes, I, I believe that you are. Let's talk about aesthetics for this card. So the art. This Doug Schuler art, much like so much alpha art, is it subject devoid of context? But what a subject! Yeah, it's, it's just iconic. So I think. well rendered. It really is. I mean, it's <laughs> if this if this art was on a great card, can you imagine how iconic this art would be? Yeah, you're right. This would be a an incredibly sought after. I'm mean, sure it's pretty, probably pretty strongly sought after already, but this art would sell for millions of dollars if this was on a really good card. I mean, imagine <laughs> if this was. Imagine if this was Hypnotic Specter. Like, oh my god! Yeah. The hippie art is great. Don't get me wrong; I'm not dispersing it. But this would yeah. also be an amazing hypnotic specter, and oh, yeah. would be so much better regarded if it was. This also has some real world flavor text from Edgar Allan Poe, and I've never really read it and thought about it before with respect to the subject. But this pull quote from Edgar Allan Poe's silence is really strange to be used on a card like Frozen Shade. Let me just read it. 
There are some qualities, some incorporate things, that have a double life, which thus is made, a type of twin entity which springs from matter and light, evinced in solid and shade. Now, the shade reference is pretty pretty direct, right? But the whole rest of it is about duplicity and and <laughs> contrast. There's no duplicity or contrast in this card, unless you count the how big its power is when you attack with it versus how big it is when you started your turn. I mean, I think that's a really strange quote to have pulled. There's there's got to be so <laughs> many more. Or maybe this could, quote could have been used for a card that really speaks to duality, like clone or Vesuvian doppelganger or something. I don't know. It's kind of strange. Yeah, uh, this is one of those cards, Steve, that obviously I had zillions of copies of coming from Revised as a common. <laughs> um, I never played with it because even then, like I said, my my disassociation with X spells early on also extended to creatures that required me to pump a lot of mana into them. And so I just never played this card. I must admit that I have a stronger affinity for Killer Bees also, but I think there's a couple of factors there. And one is the rarity, right? When Killer Bees yeah. came out, it was it's a Legends Rare and was thus much harder to find. Then it was reprinted in Chronicles and the whole thing got upended. But in the early the intervening periods, I had a lot of affinity for this card because it was rare and also the art is just comical and cool. <laughs> so I'm guilty of appreciating and liking Clear Bees a lot more than Frozen Shade like apparently many, many other people. All right, let's move on to Fungasaur. There's not too many creatures in Alpha that have triggered abilities. So let's talk about it. 3G for Summon Fungasaur. It says, each time Fungasaur is damaged but not destroyed, put a plus one, plus one counter on it. And it's a 2-2. I think you may have alluded already, Steve, to the combination this creates in Alpha with Pestilence, right? This card is, like I said, it's on a short list of things that have triggered abilities in Alpha. Um, obviously, there's a couple. You know, Sanger Vampire gets a counter. Uh, Hypnotic Spectre makes you discard cards. It's not totally unique. <laughs> but this one as a way of gaining counters has a unique ability in the alpha context. And that makes it pretty cool. Also, yeah. it's a little unassuming as a rare in alpha, but oh, yeah. can grow out of control if not properly monitored. So <laughs> what's your experience? Well, with I it? think, well, I think what makes magic so great and what in particular with alpha makes alpha so great as I think even beyond, you know, I, what I was doing over the weekend, Kevin, is I was, I was looking through someone posted a link, I think in one of the discord chat chats of, all the sets listed on um, the credits for sets listed on Wizards' website. Hmm. So you can just click the set and see the, the credits, the developers. And one of the things I noticed that Richard Garfield is, is developer, des- designer, rather, for just limited edition and uh, Arabian Nights. But there's a, a kind of a cohort of people, including Joel Mick and Scaff Elias and others, who are constantly listed on, you know, from Legends from antiquities and antiquities through ice age and beyond the same few names are are listed over and over again mm-hmm. and i think that they didn't learn something very important and i think we, i think magic has lost sight of this especially as we entered the planeswalker era which is that one of the keys to magic is having simple effects that have lots of potential combinations and synergies and interactions i think fungusor mm-hmm. is probably one of the best examples of that simple concept it takes a damage, it gains a power and, ta- and a counter, right? Um, and what I love about it is the, just the sheer number of combinations, right? So most simply, it's kind of a defensive ability, right? That someone attacks with a bunch of 1-1s, you can block, and then it, it'll, it'll grow from taking damage. But the real synergy 
right? The, 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 the second level synergy is when you have your own ways of inflicting damage on your creature to get it to grow. So the two obvious ones are Prodigal Sorcerer and Pestilence. I think Pestilence is the real powerful one because, oh, and yeah. I faced this in, in the top eight of the August Alpha League where my opponent uh, killed me in the first game with this combination. So what he did was he pinged it once with Pestilence to take it to three power and then he pinged it so you could he could you know, do it one at a time with Pestilence. And as long as he had black mana, it just got bigger and bigger. So then he untapped and pinged it four times to to get it to eight power without killing it, right? And then he just killed me in because the pestilence had already done a number of damage, and the the fungusaur called me killed me in one fell swoop. Yeah. So that's a very powerful combo. Uh, very hard to block with creatures too, right? When you're getting pestilenced over and over again. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I don't know whether the black green version is better than black blue. The black the green blue rather. I think. You know, obviously, I think pestilence fungusaur is probably it's faster there's no doubt about that than trying to tim because once you get once you get it out of lethal damage right you can then in other words once you can activate pestilence more than once which it takes one turn to get it up up there mm-hmm. then you can just it's unbounded with pestilence right you as long as you have black mana isn't it unbounded um, from the get-go though because it's, 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 yeah, it's a 2-2. Two, two. As soon as you put it one is. into it, it's a 3-3 three, three that's taken a damage, right? Yeah, you're right. It is. It's it's unbounded, basically, from the get-go, but you need to have the mana. Yeah. So it, in practice, we'll take Oh, I see what you're turns. saying. If you play this, then you play Pestilence. Assuming you made another land drop, you've only got one mana that turn. Yeah. And Pestilence is a is a common, whereas this is a rare. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's very, very powerful. But it's a simple... Powerful combo, right? And and that's where the real power in magic comes from, is from simple effects that have powerful combinations, like Time Vault and Twiddle, right? Mm-hmm. And I think I think that Fungusaur is just so emblematic of what I love about the original design of magic. So I I have that's the only experience in which I have with Fungusaur. I owned one when I owned a revised set back in nineteen ninety four, but I never played with it. Um it just wasn't powerful in in, in type one. It wasn't good enough in type one, not even close. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, even in, even in like pre, in pre, uh, type one, even in 94, it wasn't powerful enough. I have no memory of people playing with this in standard. Probably still wasn't powerful enough for standard because standard revised had swords and all that kind of stuff, counter spells. But it's certainly good enough in Alpha League, I can tell you that. It's probably, for the same reasons it wasn't good enough back in, you know, 94, 95 type one is why it doesn't see any play in, in, um, old school 94. But I would imagine it would probably be good if you extended it out of Alpha League into include like Arabian Nights. Um, I imagine that green black would be very, would still be very powerful. I mean, you could play Fungus or Pestilence and include Juzums and things like that, Kevin. So, <laughs> well, Urnums, Urnums, uh, Juzums, if you're playing with Arabian Nights. It, if you're playing ABUN, <laughs> right? <laughs> that's a pretty that's a pretty deep hypothetical. I would argue that of the four mana permanents that you just listed, this is the fourth one on the list. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but, but we don't really need to de- debate that point. This one also has a funny and unique reprint pattern because it was in the core sets. It was in the core sets through fourth and fifth edition, and then it skipped a couple and was in eighth edition. 
And then the next and only other printing in paper is in the Mystery Booster foil set. So for some reason, Wizards was compelled in the year 2020 to add this to the list of special foils that are randomly inserted into uh, Mystery Boosters. And they chose, again, for some reason, the 8th edition art to to foil out and release. So, I mean, it was foiled in 8th edition too, but... It's just really weird. So this has another, yet another of many, of, well, I guess an, almost an unbounded potential combination of, <laughs> of unique reprint patterns. Up to fifth, then eighth, and then this year in Mystery Boosters. So Fungusaur was reprinted this year, and the last time before that was eighth edition. So it's inexplicably legal and modern as well, which is funny. I would th- thank you for sharing that. That's fascinating. Eighth edition is one of those pivotal sets. Yeah. That that you know what's the other set that defines so modern defines eighth and then what's the one that set that defines historic, Kevin? Oh shoot, I don't know. It, much more okay. recent. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, the, well, I would cons was it cons but with no fetches. I think what it was for historic. I, I don't remember. Maybe that's pioneer. Fair enough. I'm, I'm bad about the, be, the most recent There's too sets. many of these, uh, yeah, yeah, mezzo sets. So I would be, it would be a tremendous oversight if I did not mention the fact that this is also the original growing creature in green. <laughs> That's a really good point. I mean, give, given that I wrote a huge section of ch- one of my major chapters in my gush book on growing creatures, this is <laughs> the, the original. Um, Understanding fungus or. <laughs> <laughs> Now, now, granted, you know, you had also asked a question, I think, earlier on. How many cards have counters or tokens? Maybe was what you asked, but there aren't a lot in Alpha. That's right. right. There are not a lot. We we were talking about tokens before, yeah, but but Alpha, as we've already discussed, plays a little fast and loose with the difference between a token and a counter, right? <laughs> yep. And so, in terms of actual things that put counters on them, we've got Clockwork Beast and. Cyclopean Tomb, which is part of the impetus for that conversation, <laughs> then Fungusaur, and then beyond that, there's not much. Living Artifact, Rock Hydra, Scavenging Ghoul, and Sanger Vampire. And so, awesome. But there's all different counters there, too. So in terms of right. things that get plus one, plus one counters, there's actually only two. Just Sanger and Fungusaur. Then Clockwork Beast and right. Rock Hydra get plus one, plus O oh counters, and the other three are not power and toughness. They're just other kinds but, of counters. So, so of creatures, so there's Sengir- only four. Sengir and Fungusaur are the triggers, where the rest are. I guess they they're kind of triggers. But they're uh, they, they, activated the other abilities. ones are triggers that you put mana into, yeah, to get them back. The Clockwork Beast and the Rock Hydra. We're gonna have fun reviewing yeah. Rock Hydra. I just know it. So, <laughs> so Fungusaur, thank you for eventually turning into Quirion Dryad for us. <laughs> nice. That's right. Without Quirion Dryad, we don't have the rest of them. So that's right. Much appreciative. That's what was right. the what was the Quirion Dryad that you make the creature version of that? What was that thing called the four mana one? Yeah, um, the one that gets a counter for everyone's spell, <gasps> and then on your upkeep God. you can move them onto another creature. Uh, yeah, yeah, Forgotten Ancient. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah, and that which, is no Fungusaur. Sir. Well, which then became Mana Gorger Hydra. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which there you is go. now. Ugh. So put your thinking caps on for Gaia's Liege. <laughs> <laughs> Three GGG, it's summon Gaia's Liege. Why wouldn't it be anything else? It says when de- when defending Gaia's Liege has power and toughness equal to the number of forests you have in play. When it's attacking, they're equal to the number of forests opponent has in play. 
tap to turn any one land into a forest until Gaea's liege leaves play. Mark chains lands with counters, removing the counters when Gaea's liege leaves play. So that's actually not horrific wording, right? For as complex as this card is, it's not too bad. I'll just want to read you the Oracle text so you can see what it's like today. Yeah. As, as long as Gage Liege isn't attacking, its power and toughness are each equal to the number of forests you control. As long as Gage Liege is attacking, its power and toughness are equal to the number of forests defending player controls. Then it says tap, target land becomes a forest until Gage Liege leaves the battlefield. Now, I think that there it's... <laughs> it's undeniable that the way the alpha birding of the, the way the alpha version of this card is worded, every time you play a Gaia's Liege, it should immediately die as a zero zero. Right. <laughs> so you can understand the little bit of license that Magic uh, R and D has taken with the updated Oracle text, because if you're paying close attention, Gaia's Liege's power and toughness in the alpha context are only set when it's either defending or attacking. And you can only be defending or attacking during a particular point in the game, as you can imagine. So it's understandable that they've taken a little bit of license here to be when it's defending or it's just not attacking. It's on your side of the table sitting there. It's your forests. And when it's attacking, it's their forests. That's a pretty neat effect. <clears throat> and there's really not too many creatures even since this that are like this. I can't really think of one that references something of yours when it's sitting back and something of your opponent's when it's not. There's probably a couple yeah. examples, but I'm totally blanking on them right now. So, 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 Kevin, I just want to say you read the text box pretty fluidly, but this is one of the most garbled, crammed text boxes in Alpha. <laughs> really so much is. so, I mean, it, it's what I don't even know how many lines it is. Maybe you can count the lines while I'm I'm relaying this anecdote. But there was a very funny meme going around Twitter where someone posted. I think they were borrowing a non-magic meme, and it said something like. You know, this is what it used to be, and they had like giant growth, and they had like a, a you know, the 2020 version of it. Yeah, was like, a, I think it was a questing beast or something that had like you know ten lines of text, and Aaron Forsyth tweet responded and said something like, uh, he posted just a picture of Gaia's liege to kind of refute <laughs> refute the notion that Alpha you know was somehow a simpler time. Right. Um. Uh, do you, how many lines of text are actually on this card? It's by the eight way, eight lines of text. Good and it Lord. is very small and legitimately difficult to read. It might be the most text-heavy of the printed alpha cards. Um, you, there's definitely it, a comparison to be made with Illusionary Mask and Vesuvian Doppelganger. I think I'm, I have my alpha Illusionary Mask and Gaia's Liege here, and they look they look about the same. I think the Gaia's Liege, it might be a. I think it's a line more. Well, let's see. Yeah, Illusionary Mask is s- seven lines. Gaia's leash yeah. is more. Doppelganger is nine. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty okay. inexcusable. So, pretty hilarious. So this is this is a card that again, like Fungusaur, when I you know bat, played in '94, I first start, I played my first game of Magic in '93. But back in '94, when I was collecting revised, you know, building my revised set, which I sold off many many years ago, this card was just one, like Fungusaur, a card that I just completely ignored. Like, I yeah. have no interest in this card, you know. But having played an Alpha League, it's actually a very intriguing card. So this and Cyclopean Tomb are the only two cards that can basically turn a, a land at a time, your opponent's lands, into a different land type, mm-hmm. which is very disruptive. This creature also can get pretty big, 
you know, it has the similar mana cost to to Gaia's, uh, sorry, to Force of Nature. Mm-hmm. But um, could be larger. This card can get what? Could be larger. It could be larger, right? If you're playing against an opponent who's green or has green, then this thing is probably pretty large to begin with. If you're not, then it has this weird tension, which is <laughs> you have to decide, right, how much to kind of try to mana screw them, so to speak, before you turn on offense. Yeah. Um, it's pretty. It's pretty what, noteworthy that, that in the intervening period in that scenario, it can play both roles. You can just block with this thing as a huge creature right. and then well, turn one of their lands each turn. Well, you have to get it big enough to be blocking, but yes, it. That is the other thing is that it, 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 even without damage on the stack, you can block. And <laughs> no, then... it it always blocks for your forests. It's only their right. forests when you attack with it. You can sit it's back power. on defense. Yeah. yeah, you can sit back with defense with a six six or larger every turn, stymie their offense, and slowly be converting their lands to forests. Right. Uh, the I just want to say though, and maybe you know, I think that. I didn't play queue into a lot of these things because the revised revised art is so washed out and the white borders so do such a poor job of accentuating the art. Yes. That I just want to say Kevin that the art this art is very very interesting but you it really raises the question who is this person? That's really what <laughs> I want to know is who is this because it's so it's so um lifelike rendered is as a portrait of someone it really you've got to think that the artist knew this person. And I just, you know, want to know who who this person is. And the coloring in the art is also so interesting that I don't think that the revised edition version does this any justice whatsoever to the coloring because the coloring is so subtle. It's such an interesting shade of green. It's all there is in this is green and yellow, Kevin. The, yeah. the entire image is green and yellow coloring. Yeah. From the speckled dots, which look like they could just be surface marks on the card, to the background, you know, figuration, the composition is totally fascinating. You know, it's a kind of ethereal, whatever, you know, spirit of the forest type, you know, uh, Mononoke type imagery here. That's just, the, the, I just don't think you get any of that from the revised, and I would hazard to guess even from the unlimited ver- ver- edition versions. Um, but, but. Any so we, I was venturing away from your observation about its use in combat, which. But uh, before we come back to the combat, what do you make of the art and the coloration and all of that? Well, I share all of your assessments. It's far more evocative and beautiful in alpha and beta, like so many things. And for the reasons you stated, the revised version. Not only is the revised card washed out because the frame and the border are lighter, by definition. But they also washed out the art a little bit too, which is a real shame because this art is really incredibly evocative and arguably photoreal in a way that most alpha art is not. No, almost all alpha art is not. It's also just an interesting choice to render this piece in monochrome, basically. And as such, it's really cool and unique in that way. I, you could be excused for thinking that this should have been a legendary creature. Yeah. If they had those in Alpha, right? If this card was introduced for the first time in in Legends, I wouldn't be surprised if this was a, a legendary creature, and and with the same effect, basically representing it's an really, individual. After Beta, it's really not until you get to Fourth Edition that I think that the frame, the crisp color, really begins to do this justice again because they have put in a new, sharper color frame in there. But it, this is such a mysterious card in so many different ways. 
It's it's really cool. It's really it's a little enigmatic from a strategic standpoint. I like you was never um, inspired to play this card, even though I had multiple copies and revised. It's there's just something about how it was tied to my opponent's lands. I couldn't attack with it. it was just anathema to my approach to the game at that time. And if I was going to have yeah. a six power creature that was going to mess with my opponent's lands, well, it was going to be demonic hordes, right? <laughs> Instead of this. Yep. And I think this card suffers a lot by comparison. This is obviously a top-down design, and it's pretty evocative yes. as such. Unfortunately, it wasn't really balanced properly. I think they got a little enamored with how good this card could potentially be on defense, and maybe they were a little afraid of messing with your opponent's lands, even though that seems a little suspicious in light of conversion, flash fire, tsunami, but... Armageddon. <laughs> but be that as it may, it appears that this card is very safely designed. And I think there is one one contributing reason for that, in that this card is not in Gamma. This yeah. is on a, a short list of cards that are not in Gamma, and that suggests to me that maybe this was a purely top-down design that was added late in development, and maybe they played it a little safe from a yeah. costing standpoint. What do you think it should have costed? Oh, that's really difficult to answer. By today's standards, <laughs> you could probably print this card. I mean, so the power and toughness bit is is really underpowered, in my estimation. By modern Magic standpoint, you could print, uh, you could print this at two or three mana, and if it just grew with Even how many though, forests you had, yeah, it would still be printable that way. But the fact that this disrupts your opponent's mana that suggests to me that you have to cost it around four or more. Just for the That's disruptive elements. That's what Cyclopean elements. Tomb is, right? Yeah. It's four. Yeah. And so I think that you could have printed this creature at just like 2GG by today's standards. And it could. it's a little bit dangerous. It's a little bit dangerous in the fact that if it's not answered on the play, it can be pretty disruptive. So maybe R&D would cost it a little more safely, closer to five. But the real thing that's, that's, that holds this creature back is just it's not an offensive threat for many, many turns. And... At six mana, that's a little inexcusable by today's standards. Basically, it's not it's an interesting design, but at the same time, I would much rather just make a card that either does the mana disruption elements like Cyclopean Tomb, or does the forest uh, you know power and toughness elements. I by today's standards, I wouldn't put those two together. Fair enough. It's um, interesting as a top down design goes. It's interesting. So so you would you would in no activation so you would have it at four and and no activation. Well, so I was when I was talking about how big it was, um, what I was thinking was it just has power and toughness equal to the number of forests you have. None of this right. mine versus theirs business. And that cards yeah. like that have been printed a number of times. I can't think of the one off the top of my head, but there's been a couple already that have that, and I think that's fairly safe, especially given the preponderance of magic decks these days, even in environments where there's a lot of devotion even the monocolored devotion decks in standard, uh, even those decks tend to not always play purely basic lands, right? The value of non-basics from a mechanical and utility standpoint these days is so high that there'd be a lot of tension even with a, a four-mana you know, creature that had power equal to the number of forests you had. I'm looking forward to playing this creature in a mono-green alpha league someday. So that sounds I, cool. I know it's probably... I probably it's not... No, it's not... You know, I'd be better off with the second force of nature, but... <laughs> I just want to see how the how disruptive the disruptive effect is. I think you could you could really um, amplify that if you chose to play like Icy's and Winter Orbs, right? This plus yeah. Elves plus Icy and Winter Orb means you could get into a situation where every untap your opponent 
they untap and then you, you change that land a... into a forest. That's that's a real disruptive element there. Yeah. It wouldn't take much for that to for that to seal a deal. I think there's something Point. to that. Yeah. I have what more cool respect. Card. Yeah, I have more respect for this card now after our discussion than I ever did before. But part of that, a, a lot of that is aesthetic. I mean, just looking at this card in Alpha <laughs> or Beta is so much more satisfying than all the copies I've really ever owned. <laughs> it really is a cool card. <laughs> yeah, it's so cool. All right. Let's move on to Gauntlet of Might. This is a spicy one. Oh, yeah. So for four mana, you get a continuous artifact. And Gauntlet simply says all red creatures gain plus one, plus one. And all mountains provide an extra red mana when tapped. Again, as alpha wordings go, that one's not terribly egregious. However, it does make the mistake of not delineating the reason for the tapping of the lands, which you could be excused for thinking that if your opponent icy manipulators your mountain with this out, that you would get a red mana. And so that's an interesting bit of interpretation. Otherwise, this card is ju- this is just one of many cards that's a shame that it's reserved and hasn't been printed since Ugh, since unlimited because crime. this is just such this, a great card. This is such a crime. Yeah, I mean this card. This card, more than many in Alpha, is just... I mean, really, the reserve list hampers reprinting cards like this. You know, yeah. just cool yeah, cards that people... By the way, if I had asked you who the artist is, if it didn't indicate, who would you have guessed? Oh, gosh. I can picture this art really well in my mind, and I haven't actually looked at the artist since, so I intentionally looked away when you asked this question. I would have thought... I would have thought, given the coloration, that this is a Melissa Benson, maybe? Or, yeah. Um... But I think, if I remember correctly, it has no... It's another one of those pictures with no context, so it could have been a Dan Frazier. Yeah, yeah that's exactly sure. right. I I would have thought it would be Dan Frazier or Melissa Benson. It's actually it's actually Christopher oh, Rush. Oh, it's Chris Rush. That's interesting. I, no, I did not remember that. And there's a reason why I didn't remember that. It's because I've never owned one of these, and therefore I've never been inspired to get it signed by him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, interesting. Um, it So... so this card was restricted in January of 94 and then unrestricted at the beginning of May. So it was along with Dingus Egg. It followed the Dingus Egg route. It was restricted and then mm-hmm. unrestricted in the same trajectory. So it was actually restricted in the histor- history of Type 1 for three months. Um, not that anyone remembers it for that. Um, but, um, you know, this card is... If, if I was in Alpha League and I owned three of this and three Mana Flare, I would consider building a big ramp deck built around mm. both of those cards because they're moderated because they're both rares, but you could have six of them, right? Mm-hmm. And then you could just build a big red burn deck around that. And that would be pretty fun. Sure. Although I would still be inspired to play this e- just with gobos or some fire breathing threats as well. Um, but man, the art is so cool. <laughs> I, I like the, I like the nondescript background. It, it, it really, because it, it, it allows the the foregrounded figure to become, you know, it almost is three dimensional. Almost just pops out of the frame, the gauntlet. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever played this card? I mean, in any context? Never, never owned it either. It's one of the very few cards from Alpha Beta Unlimited I've never owned. There's about, I think, now that I've owned, now that I own a Cyclopean Tomb. Well, I owned an Unlimited one, but now that I have an Alpha one now. Um, I picked up a few weird cards in Alpha recently that I'd never owned before. I'm trying to remember what they are. Um, a Raging River is one of them that I'd never owned uh, that I got. Yeah. Which classic. I love. Um, <laughs> but the, yeah, there are like maybe f- four or five cards that I've never owned in Alpha Beta Unlimited, and this is this is one of them. I think the others are Word of Command, um, Camouflage, 
a couple <laughs> others, but <laughs> yeah, sadly, this is one of those cards. I will get it someday. I promise. So from a set design standpoint, this card is unique, somewhat unique in Alpha. Aside from the Lucky Charms, which are the cycle and which we've spent uh, an exhaustive amount of time discussing, there are only four artifacts that reference or somehow impact a specific col- color, a color or a land type. Cyclopean Tomb, Cyclopean Tomb, this Gauntlet of Might, Cormus Bell, and then Sunglasses of Urza. Yeah, yep. And they're all totally unique, right? They all just do dramatically different things. Even though they reference, in each case, they reference mana or lands somehow. But this one, unlike the others, has a, a true amplification effect, right? You got a mana flare that's just for red, which is unlike the others, which do other things. Some of them are detrimental. So I just think it's interesting that they chose to align red to artifacts in this way in this set. And it's also noteworthy that red and black share a lot of common energy there. Sunglasses of Urza yeah. interacts with white as well, but the other the other three are just red or black effects, basically. Right. And it's arguable... Cormus what, Bell, Cyclopean Tomb. Yeah, it's arguable what um, Cormus Bell's function is. It can it can help re- black or it can hinder it. So, it, yeah, it's a functionally ambiguous in that sense. But there's no denying that Gauntlet of Might here just is a is a anthem slash mana flare purely for red, and that's well, super powerful and interesting. Well, what what really? But what, when you juxtapose Gauntlet of Might with mana flare, I think what it raises for me is what is the identity differentiation from a design perspective between artifacts and enchantments? So mm. clearly, the the one. So let's set aside auras, you know, because that clearly. Not something in, aside the fact that equipment are now kind of function like that. Let's just set that aside, yeah. right? What really is the difference between an artifact? And let's also set aside artifact creatures because there's no right. there's no enchantment creatures in Alpha. I don't need, I don't know if there oh there are today. There's myth realized, etc. etc. So yeah. Let's set that aside. There are. Um, um, but from an from an original design of the game standpoint, what really is the difference between artifacts and enchantment? Because a kind of a, a continuous artifact is very much like a global enchantment in many respects. Yeah, right. The, and this is something that I know I've heard uh, Mark Rosewater address in his podcast and his articles is that there is there's a top down answer to that question, which is that enchantments are something that effectively happens to something, and yeah. artifacts are tend to be objects. Yes, but that. But mechanically, that doesn't play out. It doesn't work that no. way mechanically, right? <laughs> no, a mana flare and a gauntlet of might are very close. <laughs> That's so right. The, me- mechanically, the only difference in alpha, which is no longer a difference, is that tapping the gauntlet of might turns it off. Whereas you could technically twiddle. Could you twiddle an enchantment? Does it allow you to twiddle enchantments? Oh, gosh, what a hilarious question. Let me look at twiddle real quick. Um, <laughs> I, I don't see. know if it, says, if it says any target. In the alpha rulebook, though, I thought target was codified at some point as... So we'll no, in alpha, as, just sorry. Go ahead. I I just thought that targets were codified as being um, the permanents uh, that were land creature, artifact or player. But <laughs> yeah, Twi- so, Twiddle so says uh, beta... land creature artifact. Yeah. Yeah, the the beta text is slightly different, and I see manipulator um, says I can find it. Yeah, the alpha I see also says land creature or artifact. Right. So yeah. so Kevin. There are ways to tap an enchantment, I assume, in Magic. 
Oh, uh, well, Correct. these days, absolutely. There are many things that are just like yeah. tap target permanent, sure. Yeah. But the point is that it obviously doesn't turn. That's a functional difference. Mm-hmm. So I guess that makes sense. I make a, a mana, f- but it well, really the other does. One, the other one is colors of mana, right? Artifacts don't require them, and the enchantments all do. I think that's meaningful. That's, that is a, yeah. once they're in play, that t- tends not to matter, but it actually is functional once they're in play even, just because the things that look for color can't affect an artifact. So, and and so we have since codified go- that with things that look for colorless permanence in Magic. There's just none of those in Alpha or anytime soon. So how many artifacts are in, in Alpha? I think we can probably... I had that, that up just a moment quickly. ago. There are 47. And how many global enchantments are there? Not auras, but global Oh, that's a number I don't have. That's going to be much smaller, though. So yes. enchantments that aren't auras is 27. That's larger than I would have thought. Well, yeah, it's one of the things we addressed earlier is that there's actually a huge enchantment sub-theme in Alpha. Yeah. There's a lot of auras, well, but there's other lots of other enchantments, too. So you're talking about cards like Fast Bond and Karma and Conversion. Yeah. You uh, know what? I, it's funny. I lied. I happened to have Beta open at that time. The answer is actually one fewer <laughs> in Alpha. <laughs> it's actually 26. Oh, the COPs. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> that's irony. No, I think that's a good answer. I think you've... Yeah, I mean... That makes sense. I mean, Mana Flare, Karma, those aren't objects. Those are kind of ongoing effects. Still, it still so, it breaks down though. It's a pretty, it's a pretty it, fine in white, line. You've got Castle. The card Castle could absolutely oh, have God. been an artifact in Alpha. Yeah, and it functioned well, it, exactly <laughs> the same way, and it could have just been an artifact, and it would have made sense. And it's also compounded by the fact that Castle was originally in red, so who knows what they were thinking? <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. <laughs> It's a really good point. Yeah, so it's not a rock solid thing. And, like, so cards but like. But what is Car- Raging River? Is Raging River a, a, an enchantment or yeah, is it a thing? That's, it's not an artifact. It's certainly debatable, but, right? Most of the enchantments, I would say, follow that that line of reasoning. They are things that are affecting another thing. Conversion, right? Gloom, life force, you know, mana barbs, power surge. These are these are concepts. Smoke. Yeah, they're affecting yeah. other things. Living lands, right? Well, and most of the suggests? artifacts, most of the artifacts follow the inverse. Most of the artifacts are things. They're swords or helms or jewelry or objects, right? So it holds pretty well. Well, Kevin, you know what that suggests? It suggests that that really, from a design perspective, if you want, you have an idea for a card and you're not sure where to put it. There's basically a flowchart. Is it an object? Okay, first of all, assume it's just a generic, a global generic effect. Mm-hmm. Right? Is it an object that's an artifact? If it's not, then it's not an artifact, and then you have to figure out which color it goes in, and then it's an enchantment. And so, yeah, you know, like this day and age, the color would be on both sides of the flowchart. But your point is well made. Yeah, oh, that's true because you can do color. I mean, you have artifacts that also have ma- colored mana costs. Yes. Um. Yeah, but but that's basically the flowchart that's occurring here. So like. Force field is a little, I mean, I guess has an activated ability. No, no art enchantments have activated abilities, so it has to be. It's is it an art? Is it an artifact or does it? Ha, is it an object or does it have an activated ability? Then it's an artifact. Otherwise, that's, it's a. That's not true though, because you've got circles of protection. Oh, you're right. You're right. Death you're right. grip and life force have activated abilities, and so, so does pestilence. Well, I guess the thing is that's the thing. That actually great point. So. If you were following the flowchart, so I guess it gets really muddled, but if you're, <laughs> is this an object? A force field isn't necessarily an object, right? I mean, that's one of the least object-y, object-like uh, absolutely. artifacts. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. It, but, but there's then another the question is there's another which, element well, go to the, to the equation. second question. Well, hold yeah. on. Go to the second question that I had in the flowchart, which is which color does it go into? And then you realize, well, if it goes into white, then it's completely redundant with COPs, even though even though yes, it's it's not entirely redundant because you you know, uh you still it's it would become like a global enchantment. I mean, a global a kind of a universal COP then. So I think I could see why they want to push it into an artifact, but but go ahead. What was your point? There is an element that's present more today in R&D than there was in Alpha, and that is, is the magic, lowercase m, associated with the thing meant to be available to all colors? Now, they yeah. break this rule in Alpha because of cards like Gauntlet of Might, which started this whole conversation. Exactly. If you were to print Gauntlet of Might today, it would either let you select the color when it comes into play, like the card Caged Sun, for example, or, it would, cost red, or it would cost red mana, right? Because yeah. it's red magic. Red three or something. Yeah. In, in this day and age, artifacts and colorless cards by extension are meant to evoke things that either apply to all colors universally or they're devoid of colored magic, like the Eldrazi. And that's kind of not the case in Alpha. It's mostly the case, right? Like Black Lotus. Black Lotus is meant to apply to all colors. <laughs> that's why it's an artifact. But other things break the rules, uh, you know, like Gauntlet of Might. So I think the flowchart that you're trying to describe is actually probably more robust in by, t- by modern design stand- standards. But in the case of Alpha, they just broke the rules too much. Yeah, cool. Uh, man, can you imagine if it said choose a color and, and land type? <laughs> Yeah, the card would be oh, just It'd be so bonkers, and it would be worth two or three times as much as what it is today. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and it would be horribly unbalanced wow. because that's an advantage that you shouldn't give to blue. That's oh my god, yeah. you would have high tide like uh, uh, decks. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Oh, uh, Gauntlet of Might is so cool. This review is making me really want to get a copy. It's really unfortunate. Um, Steve, <laughs> one of the things that we are doing consistently here is tying back to Gamma. Did you uh, notice the mana cost on Gauntlet of Might in Gamma? I did not. It's one. Jesus. <laughs> this thing in Gamma cost a single mana. And it had the same ability. All red. Uh, <laughs> that's funny. It has red in the uh, past tense of read. So R-E-A-D. Yeah. All red creatures in play plus <laughs> one plus one. Jeez. All mountains produce an extra red mana. So it's the same effect. Uh, allowing for the, the misspelling. But it cost one mana. Yeah. Glad they didn't print it that way. Yeah. God. That's funny. <laughs> Indeed. Well, uh, <clears throat> now we're going to move into a couple of just true classics of the game here. The next card is Giant Growth. Except no substitutes. Giant Growth is a green mana for an instant. Target creature gains plus three, plus three until end of turn. Again, we're getting a kind of a spate here of either of extremes in terms of alpha wordings. Like Gaia's Liege, not too bad. Uh, Gauntlet of Might, not too bad. Giant Growth, this is really, from an alpha standpoint, this is spot on. Target creature gains plus three, yep. plus three until end of turn is only like, is only one word off from the current Oracle wording, which is target creature gets plus three, plus three until end of turn. That's pretty huh. awesome. That's pretty great, actually. Yeah. And so from my standpoint, Steve, um, I didn't play with giant growths very much when I was new to the game. I did occasionally. Yeah. And, and as soon as I acquired a berserk at one point, I put together the berserk bloodlust deck, you know, like most people did. Yes. Um, but I still have a pretty strong affinity for this card, mostly because of the art, you know, this giant rat yeah. just munching yep. on human bones. It's awesome. <laughs> and you've already brought up a number of the reasons why vis-a-vis 
fast effects and versus interrupts that this card is noteworthy from a purely alpha context. So uh, I'll let you take it away on that one. Well, just with the fourth edition rules, they added batches, and they. So what's interesting is that, <laughs> again, there's not necessarily a linear progression in terms of improvements, which I think is oh, one yeah. of the most interest, interesting things about um, about the evolution of early Magic. And so I'll just uh, quickly go through the rules one more time, Kevin. Um, but Alpha Alpha had basically a two, just one generic timing rule and two exceptions. The timing rule was all spells happen simultaneously. And the first exception was interrupts happen faster than everything else. The second ex- exception was if something, uh, if there was a, a contradiction or a paradox, so two things could not happen together, then the player who played the last spell, res- you know, uh, decided. So, um, if you have, a, it, you have a creature and you go lightning bolt and I have giant growth, both of those things happen simultaneously, so you don't have to worry about spell order. Now that's different once you add the stack or the proto stack. So first edition rules, which is alpha, beta, unlimited, you know, for alpha and beta, they didn't actually change the rules with unlimited. The major next rules change with, was with revised, Kevin. And revised brought the dying at the end of the phase, by the way, which made which made City of Brass and, and Mirror Universe a combo. But the it it also brought Around with rise also came floor floor rules, which with the first night the, the June ninety four floor floor rules brought the all land no land mulligan. So there are no mulligans before that, but revised actually changed the timing in significant ways. So the f- first was that they introduced the concept of lifo. It's actually in the rev- revised rule book, and lifo last in first out applies both to spells and fast effects. So it retains the exception for interrupts, but now all fast effects and spells are subject to last in, first out, which means that the giant growth lightning bolt example does not work that way. It depends who Mm -hmm. played the spell first. (laughs) So it's with revised that spell order actually begins to matter. Um, They also, it's also with in revised that they group all these things together as fast effects in a systematic way. Um, and they also use the 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 um the language of stacks, so to speak, they, in terms of combat damage, not of combat damage. Um, sorry, they introduced a damage resolution step in revised into the combat sequence that was not in the alpha rulebook, and that specific step was included to deal with things like damage prevention and resolution, which, as we've already addressed, is hilariously. <laughs> ambiguous in the first edition rules. Um, but the fourth edition rules, I actually think the revise is brilliant and first edition is brilliant. But with fourth edition, they introduced the batch and then da- a damage resolution step to basically everything. And so this is actually in the duelist FAQ that what I'm about to read to you, Kevin. Okay. Mm-hmm. This is in the duelist FAQ that was an insert that was released at the time fourth edition was released. Here it is. If I cast a lightning bolt, an instant, on your script sprites, 1-1, the sprites will take 3 damage. If you respond by casting giant growth on the sprites, plus 3, plus 3 until end of turn, the giant growth resolves first, then the sprites takes 3 damage from the lightning bolt, so the creature survives and is equivalent to a 4-4 creature with 3 damage until end of turn. Period. If the giant growth were cast first, then the lightning bolt, the overall effect would be the same. Because the damage from the lightning bolt is delayed until the end of the batch, 
The Scrib sprites will get plus three, plus three before the damage is applied, and the sprites will therefore survive the damage. Nice. So, so you have in fourth edition, what's amazing, Kevin, is that take that simple scenario. Scrib sprites, you cast giant growth, I cast lightning bolt, right? In alpha, the creature survives. In revised, the creature is dead. Because the last in first out. In <laughs> yeah. fourth in fourth edition, the creature survives. But for very different reasons, right? Because the damage is delayed until the end of the batch in fourth edition, whereas in al- alpha they resolve simultaneously. Right. So of those three versions, which is the only version that matches up with contemporary rules? The stack. It, Answer? Uh, alpha. Third No, th- third edition. Oh, be- oh, because they introduced the LIFO then. Yeah. And you don't have ed- the damage issue today. Right. Yeah. Third edition is the only edition of those three initial that actually matches up with the original. I mean, sorry, with uh, how we play today. Jeez. Um, which is totally fascinating. I won't get into the specifics of batches, but they are a complete mess, especially with COPs. I, I think fourth edition rules, it's hard to say. I go back and forth on this, whether fourth or fifth is the worst. <laughs> they're They're bad for very different reasons. But I think in in terms of simplicity, Alpha is brilliant. In terms of correlating, you know, introducing LIFO concept, I think Revised is probably also brilliant, perhaps equally if not more so. But it's amazing that they went down a kind of a path in 4th and 5th that was worse than what you just... I mean, I think categorically 4th is worse than Alpha, which is saying something, right? Yeah. I mean, I think... <laughs> it's, that was actually hard to do in practice. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, because you have experts thinking about these things on a you know a day to day basis. You actually have a, a, a convened rules team. You have tournament magic, <laughs> so it's pretty remarkable. So I just wanted to get that clarity out of the way. But that's all to circle it back to giant growth. Giant growth is immensely powerful, you know, in any almost any context, and it's one of the best boons, which you've already remarked upon, Kevin. Well, sorry, let me clarify. It's probably the Ford fourth best best boon, but it's still. It's the third or fourth best boon, but still very good. And to be more specific, it's the boon that was the most accurately balanced right from the get-go. We've talked about Ancestral is right out, Dark Ritual and Lightning Bolt followed thereafter, and Healing Salve needs a lot of help. But even today, Giant Growth is printed in exactly its original form. It was in War of the Spark in exactly its original form and many other sets before it. There's a reason why Giant Growth is, and I'm not sure if this is... I'm not sure. I don't have the information updated from a couple of years ago, but Giant Growth, as of a couple of years back, was the most reprinted card in Magic's history. Wow. And three years ago, there were 34 printings in the article I'm reading. Today, there are 38 because it was in M25 Jeez. and Battle Bond, War of the Spark, as well as the Mystery Boosters product. So my instincts are that no other card has, has surpassed it because the second place card back then was Dark Ritual, which wouldn't have surpassed it. And Sarah Angel, which wouldn't. So I think that today, Giant Growth still holds the title as the most reprinted card in Magic. And it's ironic that from an alphabetic standpoint, it it is followed immediately by Giant Spider. Because the two of them were actually neck and neck going into the design and release of 2011, Magic 2011. Such that uh, Monty Ashley even wrote an article... And, and there was a, a series of polls set up, and then he wrote an article about which cards would continue the the tradition of being reprinted. <laughs> Going into Magic 20, uh, 
11, there were eight cards that had been reprinted in every core set up to Magic 2010. Eight? The, Holy yeah. smoke. Those were Air Elemental, Bog Wraith, Judge Skeletons, Giant Growth, Giant Spider, Howling Mine, Nightmare, and Rod of Ruin. Those eight cards had been in every set. Wow. Up till 2010. But they previewed that going into 2011, there would only be two cards that continued that journey. And those two cards turned That's out to amazing. be Giant Growth and Giant Spider. And it was big so, news that a so, couple of years later when Giant Growth wasn't re- I'm sorry, when Giant Spider wasn't reprinted because that meant Giant Growth retained the title as the card that was reprinted in the most core sets. That's hilarious. Yeah. So after in 2011, there were exactly two cards left over from Alpha. And, and M, sorry, Magic. Tw- in Magic, Magic 2011, the, yes. Yeah, and those were continued all the way through to in every, M every core 21. set. Twenty-one. Yeah. Into Magic 2011, those eight cards had been printed in every set up until that point. Yeah, and then uh, I don't remember which set it was. A couple years later, we'll we'll see in a second. But Giant Giant Spider was discontinued, which let Giant Growth with the uh, with the title. Why haven't they reprinted this in subsequent core sets? So I see Giant Growth is in 2014, but why not like M21 or M20? Uh, they just have different variants. I mean, when a giant growth isn't present, there's usually one or two other cards that are filling the same role. Like, Got you it. know, Titanic Growth is the two mana plus four plus four version. So almost every, I think every modern set has a giant growth variant. It's just that giant growth has literally the card by that name been reprinted the most times. And similarly, Giant Spider was uh, in uh, is was in M19. It was in Amonkhet, like... <laughs> It's it's uh it's not any slouch in terms of reprints. It's at twenty eight copies now. It looks like fair enough. Yeah, I, I just wanted to point out that um you know yes it was also a part of the Granville Explosion deck um uh, yeah. back in the day and as you mentioned the kind of the the you know the pumping decks um I also remember I think people played it in Stompy like circa maybe it was just worse than like Briar Shield and that kind of thing but I think people played it in Stompy circa two thousand two ninety nine two thousand one. Yeah. I have to go back and look at like Oscar Tan's articles to double check that, but I think it survived in in Type One pretty late in the day, in in kind of fringe budget decks. The other thing I wanted to point out, that Rancor was obviously very powerful too oh, for a dang, while. Yes. It was, yeah. Um, but the other thing I wanted to point out is that in um, in Alpha League and Alpha Forty, there's no bounded limit to giant growth, so you can play as many as you want. So Joel uh. Mix finals deck in july against me yeah. had eight giant growths and 12 lenoir elves and how many berserks um, well he was maxed out at three because it's moderated gotcha but, yeah that's a pretty potent deck. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah the point i wanted to make though is that that in where there's no four card cap you can play some interesting gimmick decks in old school magic and by gimmick decks i mean decks where you basically have a either a core synergy like orcish artillery and circle of protection red or just a highly synergistic number of cards like Plague Rats or Banalish Heroes that just suit, have a lot of synergy together. Mm-hmm. But the thing, the thing about these gimmick decks that I'm learning, Kevin, is that there's an interesting pattern in t- terms of how you build them. And I think, I think Joel Mix deck with eight giant growths kind of sets the template, right? Which is where he had 12 of the core card, card A, we'll call it, which mm-hmm. is Lanowar Elf, and then eight of card B, and then he had Five other unique. Oh, he had three berserks, three hurricanes, and then he had a winter orb and a um, a chaos orb, and then he had mana, which is so he had he had. It's amazing, not counting his forest and his mox emerald, 
he could have run Lotus there if he wanted. I assume he felt the Emerald was better. Um, that's Kevin. That's six unique cards <laughs> plus, well, seven plus. including uh, seven. Sorry, eight including Forest and and the Emerald. Yeah, um, pretty narrow, but the, but pretty the point, linear. Yeah, pretty linear. The point I'm trying to make though is that the card A. I think that ratio. So, for example, here's another here's another gimmick deck. You could play. Um, so, if you had twelve Banalish heroes, you would probably have like three Crusades, maybe th- three Blessings, right? Armageddon. But you would have what? Armageddon. All right. So you'd have like an Armageddon. You'd have other things, right? The point I'm trying to make is that you could build. You might have Meek Stone. You could build a lot of different ways. Um, you probably have Disenchant Plows. But in a lot of these gimmick decks, um, you know, pl- like let's take Plague Rats. You could run. Like let's say twelve or thirteen plague rats, and then maybe eight pestilence, right? Yeah. So the the point I'm trying to make is that, or you could run, um, you know, probably eight orcish artillery, and then you'd probably have sorry, twelve orcish artillery, and you have eight cop red. You know, I'm just, you know, whatever it is, I'm, or it could be eight plague rats, twelve plague rats, and eight rituals. I, I'm just trying. What I'm trying to say is that. I think in these unbounded, you get some really interesting questions on what is the card, how many do you run of card A, how many do you run of card B, and then what's the smattering of the leftovers? And that's not a question you really get in normal constructed magic, but it comes up. And if if Alpha League becomes, you know, it's, it comes up in Revised League, same concept. Um, but Giant Growth is, I think, going to be often one of those cards that you'll want to include a lot of. Makes sense to me. And my experience playing with Giant Growth, Bloodlust, and Berserk in uh, other <laughs> contexts uh, supports that. Well, that's that's a famous specific example because, you know, with there are lots of combinations of math that get you to 20 or very close to 20 with just a Giant Growth. So, like, Giant Absolutely. Growth on a Ball Lightning, you know, gets you uh, – well, what is it? It's, so, it's it's Giant that's, Growth on a Ball 18. Lightning. It's Bloodlust yeah, on a Ball Lightning that gets you to 20. Gets you to the 20. Yeah. But also just on a small creature, right? Giant Growth. Giant Growth Berserk is often going to be lethal because all you need there is a four. You need a four power, and you're already relatively small. Mm-hmm. Or it could be Giant Growth Berserk Berserk, right? So if you if you have a, a a Grizzly Bear, Giant Growth Berserk Berserk, that's twenty. Yep, easy, easy peasy. <laughs> I did cool that cards. a few times. <laughs> <laughs> what was your describe your Giant Growth Berserk deck besides what you had? You had I mean besides the Bloodlust. <sighs> It was a weird thing because I I had Black Lotus, but I didn't have Moxen at the time. So I was, mm-hmm. it was which was good because Lotus cast the ball lightning very well. I had the other key factor I had was uh, Orcish Lumberjack. I yeah, was I was fre- gonna wonder, did you yeah. have Lumberjack from Ice Age? I, all right, I would frequently go turn one Lumberjack, turn two. You could do like double ball lightning if you wanted to sack your land with uh, if or with a Lotus, or you could do just do you know Lumberjack your Lotus and then go like uh, Giant Growth berserk then so it was <laughs> it was pretty good at getting to 18 but in order to do ball lightning plus bloodlust plus berserk is six mana so you had to either wait till turn three or draw your lotus to do that i think i probably had a couple of lightning bolts in there because i think i was willing to do the 18 under the guise of being able to finish them off either while attacking with the lumberjack or lightning bolting so it was pretty pretty that's, darn linear that's funny but it was funny all right shall we move on to giant spider yeah, let's. Giant Spider is pretty <laughs> pretty straightforward by today's standards. 3G for Summon Spider does not fly, but can block flying creatures, <laughs> which I love. God. It's a 2 4. So, 
I already spoiled the the lead here, which is that giant spider is one of the. It, it's not in second place now, but it's one of those creatures that was reprinted in the first ten or so core sets in Magic, and it's been reprinted several times since. It's been re- reprinted in paper twenty seven times now, and so it's definitely a staple and a standard and. When it's not present, something very much like it in a set is is also present, right? Because the notion of green having a common creature that has reach to block flyers in limited is just boilerplate for magic set design. That said, I have rarely, if ever, played with Giant Spider. I remember putting it in a couple of early revised-only decks out of necessity, and other than that, it's a beating in like alpha-only or limited-only uh, limited play because yeah. it's just pretty efficient for its mana cost right. and stands in the way of some pesky things like hypnotic specters and smaller stuff, but it gets quickly outclassed once you get to the uncommon blue flyers, or the uncommon flyers, I mean, in the other colors like blue and white and black. So I think it's a fine card, and there's a good reason why it has been reprinted so many times, but I don't have a strong affinity for it. Yeah, neither do I. I, I do think it's it's a, <laughs> it's a fun, cool... Again, a design card that, I mean, you've already pointed out that this has a, it, well, it's, it's one of those cards that's continued to hold its own weight through core sets, mm-hmm. but it's also a card like Giant Growth that has spun innumerable variants. Yes, definitely. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and established green as being able to, a, a, a kind of a card type, creature card type that can, doesn't have flying itself, but can block creatures with flying in green. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, cool design. I like it. And it remained based like giant growth before it remained basically unchanged from gamma. There's no difference between this and the gamma version. They hit it right the first time. Yeah, yeah. It's cool to see two back to back like this that are that have that in common between giant growth and and giant spider. And there's no reason to think otherwise uh, when you look at the way they play out in the early days of Magic. It's there's no denying the fact that. This is just a really good answer to a couple of things when green, you know, at common when green had didn't have good answers otherwise until rare. Like green can answer flyers, cockatrice, hurricane, right? But when you're just yep. cracking open revised packs like I was as a youth, uh, it was a little hard to do otherwise unless you got lucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you just have a couple of packs, uh-huh. you might not have a flyer or an answer to it. Besides this, this is the most likely answer. Common. (laughs) And that's why I played it for a couple times early in my days. All right, next up is a fun one. This one one is... I'd like to hear your thoughts on why this card even exists in this set. (laughs) And that is Glasses of Urza. It's pretty straightforward. It's a a mono artifact for one. It simply says, you may look at opponent's hand. That's pretty clearly a top-down design. Uh, you get to look at your opponent's hand. It evokes Urza, which I think is noteworthy, right? But at the same time, it seems a little out of place with an alpha. Uh, what do you make <laughs> well, of that? First of all, I just wanted to say, this not just evokes, but it's the first reference to Urza, mm-hmm. right? We have Anka Mishra. So the brothers are already in alpha, both of them. I think it's establishing that... I think it, I think it performs several functions. I think the first thing it does is it establishes that that the hands really are um, secret information, right? And that there's real value in getting to see those. Um, I think that the ability... I think putting this in here 
is is doing more than checking a box. It's saying we want to give players a way to see the cards the opponent has in hand, um, and therefore build strategies around that. But especially for players who just can't accept, right, that they can't know what what their is in their opponent's hand, that hate that. I think that's what this is for. It's really look. Part of what magic is, is for is designing for different psychology types, right? Psychographics. I think this is an example of, of doing that and a clever one at that. What's your take? Why is this here? <clears throat> Those are really good points. I was thinking more purely mechanically because, well, there's always a defensible reason to want to look at your opponent's hand in a game of like magic and, and any others with imperfect information, right? With hidden information. So, I'm <laughs> I'm the sort of player who likes that kind of thing just by default, so I appreciate it from that standpoint. But the things you said are I would not have come up with right away, and that is setting up for psychographics. Because another way to spin, I think, your analysis is that this it doesn't play to the board and interact with other cards exactly in a purely mechanical way, but it sets up more of what you alluded to earlier with Fungusar, which is just the modular nature of effects in the game. It allows you, as a player, to take the cards in front of you, the cards that you have access to and that you've chosen to put into your deck, and allows you to assemble them in a way that interacts with your opponent's cards in a more purposeful way than you would otherwise. And I think that's neat. Advantageous way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it plays better with certain other effects, too. Think about the way this interacts with Sleight of Mind or Magical Hack, right? you can actually get mechanical advantage out of knowing in advance what your opponent's going to do in a way that you couldn't if you were just working with no information or, or limited information. So I think there's maybe some hidden mechanical advantage here too that I'm not giving the card credit for at face value necessarily. I buy that. I buy that it may have just been another one of the many ways in which Richard Garfield is very purposefully trying to build building blocks out of the game. And this is an interesting one, though it might be a little bit tertiary or non-obvious. Yeah, no, it's also interesting that it's not until it's not until Legends that we get cards that reveal top of the library with Petra Sphinx and Field of Dreams, and then it's right. not until Ice Age that we get Jester's Cap, where you can actually search, pick up, and search your opponent's library. I believe that's it's not till Ice Age, right? You can actually look at your opponent's library. I think that's right. And there's more than one way to do it, too, because we got Elemental Augury and Jester's Mask, too. Multiples of that effect in Ice Age. I could be mistaken, but I can't think of a way to do that in so, Legends of So, it, yeah, it's affirming the importance of hidden information, of imperfect information, giving people a, an out, a cool out. It's a simple effect, but does something that directly interacts with you know, the construction of magic as a game. So it's a neat, yeah. a neat design. I don't think we can talk about Glasses of Urza without talking about Cataxium Probe at all. Because, oh, I mean, totally fair. the evolution yeah. of this effect, we spent almost an entire episode talking about Cataxium Probe. And I have to say, I think oh, yeah. my, our conclusion was wrong. At least my conclusion was wrong. <laughs> 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 For reasons I won't get into right now, but um, I saw someone play Peak against me in Vintage Online not very recently. Oh, yeah. Peak's not terribly uncommon. It's a Brian Kelly special. Yeah, right. But th- th- clearly this effect has has value. It just it needs to come with a card. It, yeah, I would agree with you. And 
I think it's also fair to lump this card in with the anti-cards, in a sense, in that they are meta-mechanical effects. It's it's not strictly speaking meta-mechanical. <laughs> I mean, looking at your hands is, is totally an in-game action, but it brings to it meta aspects of the game. You could understandably, for example, be losing a game against your opponent in just an alpha context, for example, and play this and look at their hand just as you're about to lose. And then that would set up your you having advantages outside of the right. game and across games more, that you wouldn't have otherwise. More knowledge about what they have, how they play their cards. Mm-hmm. Right. Did you ever play Glasses of Urza at any point? I would. I, I never did. No, I don't believe I ever yeah. played with it. Did you? No, I never did. I always just kind of looked at it and laughed and thought, "Huh, that's cute," you know, and just never. <laughs> I was never cutthroat enough that I wanted to try and abuse it, and I was never whimsical enough to just toss it in a deck. <laughs> So it's kind of a, a bit of a blind spot for me. I played with Gataxian Pro plenty and other whimsical things, true. Yeah. But no, this is just a blind spot for me. Pun not, pun intended. I have to say, I regret I regret not playing with Gataxian Pro more. <laughs> I really do. I mean, the thing I didn't like about Gataxian Pro was I didn't like the fact that often you were trading into a land. I wanted to have maximum search capacity <clears throat> or more counter magic density. And I often felt that the players who played maximum Cataxian probes were trading off counterspell density so yep. that they were, you know, and so anyway, I, I just, I feel like this is more power, that seeing your opponent's hand is much more powerful than we gave it credit for. I always felt like it was overrated, that in Magic, if you play an opponent enough, you get to see the patterns, right, and that you can make probabilistic inferences about what they're likely to have, but... I think yeah. I think it I think that there's counter arguments that I think number one is that in any given event, if your goal is to win that event, not to have a high win percentage over time over multiple events, but to win a given event, there's a higher probability they have a singleton that you haven't seen or haven't accounted for, and therefore that value goes up yeah. in that event. And I also think that even though decks tend to converge to kind of what you can find online over time, there are often very pattern differences. So for example, if you're playing if you're playing Dredge, ex- knowing exactly what hate they have is powerfully influential when you go to game three. Oh, yeah. Because then you can tailor your answers to that. So the information is much more valuable, I think, than I give it overall credit for. But I will not make that mistake again. <laughs> I completely agree. Your comments here also evoke for me Chris Pecula's tweet from yeah. four or five years ago now. <laughs> where he said, I forget exactly how it was framed, so I'm going to paraphrase, but it was something like, um, when I die and go to the pearly gates, I'm going to ask St. Peter how many Cataxian probes I should have been playing. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) It's great. (laughs) Fantastic. (laughs) I mean, basically what he's saying is it's like, you know, it's it's a question of omniscience. Like, you need to have all that information to know exactly how many, right? That it's like, it's it's too difficult. Yeah. To know, you need, <laughs> and it's a, 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 tacit, a tacit admission that we, as a community of players, didn't have the right answer. Even yeah. as a whole community, we hadn't we haven't right. divined the right answer. Yeah, I love it. All right, let's move on from glasses of Urza. Oh, by the way, this is an, this this card as and compared to the next one, uh, definitely cements the idea that artifacts are objects and enchantments are things that are happening <laughs> to you or the world around you. Because the next card is Gloom. Gloom is an enchantment. 2B, it says, White spells cost three more mana to cast. 
Circles of Protection costs three more mana to use. Now, this <laughs> this text is not is not terrible, but it definitely evokes immediately the fact that this card has some kind of errata going on that I can't really understand why they did it, but I think it was probably just simplicity. Because while the alpha version references white spells and specifically circles of protection, the oracle text says white spells cost three more to cast. Activated abilities of white enchantments cost three more to activate. It was between collectors and international edition and revised. The revised printing is where they changed the language from circles of protection to just white enchantments with activation costs. And so at some point leading up to revise, they decided that either circles of protection was too specific or <laughs> they just thought that they truly intended this card to apply to a broader collection of cards which I don't think holds up, given that there was another enchantment in Alpha that had an activated ability that this specifically did not apply to. And that this is, is a rabbit hole I did not expect to go down, but it's been thor- thoroughly enjoyable to hear you talk about that. Yeah, I-, I have four Alpha copies of this, so I played it in Old School 94, Old School 93, um, have not yet played in Alpha League, but I never considered that subsequent versions <laughs> were, not in- were intended to extend to, to enchantments more generally. Mm-hmm. That's that's very very funny. The do you, is there anything else you wanted to say about that or uh, just that want, we we'd already called back to the fact that this is the third in a way of black or red posers being able to prevent white from using circles of protection. Red has flash fires to destroy the planes. Yeah. This has obviously increases the cost to activate, and then the other one was. Um, Ah, shoot, I forgot what the other one was. But the point is, there's a diversity of ways in which the the enemy colors can fight the other's ability to to interact with them. I also think it's noteworthy that this doesn't apply to green when green also has an enchantment that hoses black in life force in this set. And for whatever reason, this yeah, only affects white point. enchantment. Well, a couple things. Number anyway, one is that ahead. it's interesting. There are six paper printings. A, uh, ABUR, revised, fourth, and fifth. Yep. Exactly half of those printings specify circles of protection, ABU. <laughs> You're right. And the other half don't. So it's it's a weird is a very weird case. Um, the main thing I wanted to point about. Well, let me just say this: gloom is a very powerful effect because uh, being able to dark ritual it out makes it a very powerful hoser against white. One of the places I use this card to great effect was when I played Reanimator in Old School '95 because. <clears throat> When you're reanimating, the main thing you don't want your opponent to be able to do is to plow your animated creature, mm, right? Sure. So so that's obviously been very good. Also slows disenchant on your animate dead, and it slows moat. The the best reanimating creature in old school ninety five <laughs> by far is Deep Spawn. Because Deep Love Spawn it. has like a dr- yeah, dredge ability, and with Dance of the Dead, you can use the built in protection on Deep Spawn to counter, you know, Red Elmo Blast or Plows, and then use Dance of the Dead to untap Deep Spawn. And then Deep Spawn mills, so you get more creatures in the yard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Gloom is, is amazing there, and I used I enjoyed using it there. Um, but the the uh, I've also used Gloom against the deck in, in red-white with the Splash of Black, so that, you know, because the deck is like four Disenchant, four Plow, and, and it's often, oh, yeah. you know, moat, and it's it's very good there. But the thing I wanted to point out, the most important thing to me about Gloom is that it is the first 
in the entire history of the ma- of magic, it is the first taxing effect. Oh yeah, the original, the original taxing effect, and it's. I mean, <laughs> well, the original Trinosphere, in a sense, is is <laughs> Nether Void, but yes, yeah. yes, it really is. It it becomes the predecessor to Nether Void, and it's unclear if this didn't exist if we'd ever get Nether Void. If you don't don't get Nether Void, do you ever get Sphere of Resistance mm-hmm. and and Trinosphere? Maybe not. Maybe magic looks very different. Maybe much better, depending on your perspective. Um, but the point is that this is the first taxing effect, and the fact that it's targeted. You know, just like the fact that Fungusaur is the first growing creature doesn't matter. The fact is it creates a template to go in different directions. And I I think that's that the importance of that cannot be overstated. Also, uh this unlike I unlike other effects, this actually stacks. So like spheres, it stacks. Trinosphere doesn't. Nether void, I don't believe it does. I can't remember whether Nether Void Nether Void stacks or not. Uh, it should, except it's an enchanted oh, yeah. world, and so it's very <laughs> yeah. difficult to get that to right. happen. It w- it, that's why it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this does. So, And I've, I definitely had this in play. I remember, in fact, I, I think I was playing it against Heiner Litz, and I had two glooms in play, and he had to pay, uh, was it seven mana to plow something? Um, or maybe it was the vice versa. Maybe he had a gloom against me, and I had to pay seven mana to plow something. In any case, this card is, I think, very good in old school. Very good in old school. And, and lots of old school environments. 94, 90, 95, 96, and on. Mm-hmm. Um, not quite powerful enough for contemporary magic for lots of reasons. Vintage, not contemporary vintage, I mean, uh, not contemporary magic, but, but vintage, of course. Um, it's just, there's not enough disruption in white anymore. You know, if people still played 10 white spells in their deck, main deck, then this might you could imagine like a TPS player consider playing it, but otherwise, otherwise not. That's pretty much everything I wanted to say about Gloom. <laughs> well, I find come... the art relatively uninspiring, but that's the last point. <laughs> I want to talk about the art first. I th- the, so the art is some more classic Dan Fraserness from Alpha, a subject with very little context. However, in the context of a card called Gloom, I actually think that the the reduced context here works in the sense that you're taking this figure. You could be you could be expected to understand that this figure is in a lot of different contexts, but it's so gloomy that that you don't know where they are. You know, like the gloom has obscured the context. So I, the art doesn't bother me too much. I think it's actually kind of evocative and nice. That said, on the mechanics, you made some very apt comparisons to spheres, for example. Uh, Sphere of Resistance and later on Thorn and Lodestone. From a lineage standpoint, it's actually really interesting that this is the first cost increaser. Starts out in black. The next one, which is not technically a cost increaser because Nether Void functions as a trigger ability to counter spells. Yeah, So it functions a little closer to Lavinia does these days in terms of you can play it, but it's going to get countered. Uh, So, But if you look at pure cost increasers, this effect had a weird history in the early days of Magic. The next cost increaser is Irini Sanger in Homelands. <laughs> wow. I know, which is a bizarre niche card, but it's actually really similar to Gloom. It says white enchantments and green <laughs> enchantments each cost an additional two to cast. So it's actually, there's a direct a line gloom. from Gloom. Yeah, it is a kind of yeah, Gloom. Yeah, it's a kind creature, of Gloom. Creature Gloom. Then the next few cards follow a really weird meandering path. There's Pharaoh's Ban, also in Homelands, which says summons, which is all just creatures. Creatures cost an additional two to <laughs> cast. 
It's, a, it's an artifact, so it applies to everyone and everything. Then there's Kervik's Torch, which we alluded to earlier, which is just a spell that makes itself hard to target, so that's really bar- barely qualifies. Aura of Silence in Weatherlight makes artifacts and enchantments yes. your opponent's cast cost two more. It's, it's not symmetrical, which is noteworthy. Yes. And then the next one was in Tempest, which is Chill. Red spells cost an additional two to cast, right? So now we've color shifted the hosing from black hosing white and then green. The to, taxing. Yeah, the taxing, the taxing, yeah. To to blue taxing red. And that's the only card that's really like that. That's that blue taxing red that way. Then the next printing is Sphere of Resistance. And it's also noteworthy that we've gone from certain colors hosing their enemies here to a white enchantment or of silence that hoses all your opponents asymmetrically to Sphere of <laughs> Resistance, which is obviously yeah. the most universal and symmetrical and efficient yes. version of this kind of thing ever. Yeah, it's the most there's simple never, concept of there's it. There's never yeah. been a simpler or more efficient one since. It's it's universal, it's unqualified, it's unconditional. Yeah. It's <laughs> in every respect, it's totally symmetrical. So then yeah. the next couple of printings these meander through blue hosing red uh, blue hosing sorceries, white hosing non-creatures. Then you get yeah, glow rider and oh followed God. quickly by thorn of amethyst. I see where you're going with this, Kevin. Then, it, then it graduates to lodestone golem, which is artifacts hosing non-artifacts. After lodestone golem, there isn't another thing in this list that isn't blue or white until you get to God Pharaoh statue and War of the Spark, and then after that, it's only <laughs> blue and white. So since lodestone golem. There's only been one kind of effect that's this kind of taxing effect that isn't in so blue Kevin, or white. So, Kevin, Blue or white owns so this effect. So, what you're saying is that the first three printings of taxing, Gloom, Nether, Nether Void, and Irene Sengir are all black. And by the end, by the present, it's all blue and white. That's right. And it wasn't the shift... Uh, it starts in black and goes to white. It, it, and it, goes to it blue. meanders <laughs> through a couple of artifacts, Pharaoh's Band, Sphere of Resistance, Thorn, and Lodestone. There's four artifacts, which are powerful artifacts. But otherwise, this is a blue and white joint. Everything else is blue and white, and especially in the last several years since Lodestone, there's only been one exception to the blue and white trend. You know, what's interesting is is when you mention that the printings most recently are, are not just blue and white; they're predominantly blue. It's very, it's but primarily the, blue, yeah. But the salient creatures in my memory are Thalia, Glowrider, and Vryn Wingmere. <laughs> I wonder if Th- Thalia's prominence is. I mean, is is it really not in white anymore? Is it really in blue? Or is it just, it's in white, but is Thalia being reprinted or something? I, I, I don't know. Well, it's what, it's what, worth what? noting that all three of the white creatures you mentioned, while they're, they're, they share efficiency at two or three mana, they also share the, the effect uh, non-creature, right? And from an eternal standpoint, which is yeah. your and my focus in this arena, uh, non-creature is a huge thing, right? It's a huge asymmetrical thing that you can abuse, which is how these cards are implemented, right? Thalia especially is implemented in the white and the, the X-white Eldrazi decks that are heavy creature decks and meant to punish the asymmetry. Blue, on the other hand, their cost increasers tend toward protecting themselves. Like spells you, the, your opponent cast that target this card cost X more to cast, like Boreal Elemental and Kazmina and a number of other things. Blue's big thing it tends to be protecting your own permanence from removal and targeted effects. That's what a lot of blue stuff is. So... Yeah. And the, the practical upshot of that is that the white version of this effect is far more applicable in eternal formats than blue will ever be. Yeah, that's a great point. And there's there's a couple of things I'm Force missing. Force of will existing changes. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a good point. Taxing. Too. A couple of things I'm missing here because there's a difference between increasing the cost and then countering the ability. 
like I said about Nether Void, that also applies to the modern Lavinia, which just counters things if you didn't pay X for them. And then, um, what's the other card I'm thinking of? The blue legend from Kamigawa block that makes you you have to pay more or else your effects are countered. Um, Kira, the great glass spinner. So that that just continues blue's thread of protecting your own permanence. Yeah. So I just think it from a historical standpoint, it's really interesting to note that the, as you said, first three versions, mono black. And Last then, three versions, mono yeah, blue. <laughs> and, and, and there isn't a black one since then. That's it. I mean, it, and, yeah. it ends with Irini Sanger in Homelands. Black just lost this ability to tax things. And I think that's a little bit of a shame. Mm-hmm. Now, there's been a couple of other variants throughout the years. and But this notion of just increasing the cost of spells, nope. It left black right after Homelands. The color pie has shifted. That's right. Interesting stuff. I think I just want to say though just one other word on this is that's that's a fascinating overview and that's partly why we wanted to we wanted to to go over alpha is to examine kind of it's the it's the foundation of magic it's the root of the game and to examine and and, and see how things have shifted and changed but Kevin one of the themes of this our review has been the power of color hosers oh yeah is this the most powerful this at least not in white is this might be the most powerful of the color hosers. Gosh, I'm not sure. Do, do you mean it's just, just an in alpha. alpha? Yeah. It's it's up there. It, let me think about that for a second. Because while I agree that this is on paper just an extremely disruptive effect, especially in, in light of Dark Ritual, as you said, being able to yes. prevent your opponent from even participating in this color. At the same time, once your opponent gets the requisite mana they still just get to play the game. Like, you can still cast a Circle of Protection, you could still use it, it's just super expensive. As opposed to something like Conversion, where if you get Conversion out ahead of your opponent, they are never going to play. It's just, they're just yeah, never going to cast Red Spells. Conversion is so slow. It's only one more mana than this. The, the, I think your, your opinion is colored Again. by the fact that Dark Ritual is a thing, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, it, the power is this uh, such a hopelessly subjective thing that, from my eyes, like l- look at Death Grip and Life Force. Like if you get out ahead of those colors with Death Grip and Life Force, they're also not going to be able to play effectively. Uh, you th- know what? They're all just so yeah. punishing along yeah. different axes. It's true. It's true. It's hard to rank them, and you have to fig- you have to identify a context in which to rank them <laughs> precisely. Like in the yeah. context of how white fights black. The gloom is super effective. Yeah. There's just no two ways about it. I have a question uh, for you. Pro- yes. If you were playing in Alpha League and you and one player A had gloom in play and player B had blessing in play, <laughs> would gloom apply <laughs> blessing? Look. That's a funny question. In the context of Alpha League, the answer seems pretty obvious that the answer let, is no. Let me look. They have card but, clarifications. Yeah. Not that not that the league authorities have answered every possible clarification issue well, and the, 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 the question also involves holy armor as well which has an activated ability oh good point. so there's there's two at least also there is um, no there is no there's no clarification text to gloom so i assume it's just you you interpret the card as it reads yeah as it stands enough. kevin i wanted to just uh, there's one other thing i think you didn't mention because it would have escaped the search parameters but there is another cost-enhancing card in the early years of the game Okay, that's not on your list. And it's not quite the same way, but it's in the Eye of Chaos. Ah, yeah. See, now that function... The reason it escaped my list is because it functions the same way Nether Void does, is you get to cast it yes. and then it counters them. Yeah, that's a good point. 
That's a good point. That one escaped my analysis because it's not a cost increaser. to go back to the original increaser. question I asked, I think COP Red is the best color hoser in Alpha. Oh, yeah. That's a that's a real good case for that. <laughs> it really is. But, yeah, I'm with you. But I think, I think Gloom might be second. And I'm looking at it holistically, not just in the context of Alpha, but I'm looking at old school, historical, type 1, vintage, standard, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It's a real tough case to make because in the context of Alpha, the colors are trying to do such dramatically different things. Yeah. That, yeah, the context <laughs> is real important. But we've talked about, we've talked already about how just how formative Circle Protection Red was to the early days of Magic. But also, just think about old school 93, 94. Like you're playing a mono black deck and your opponent is playing a mono white deck. You know, like a, a white weenie deck. Just Gloom is just, just so. <laughs> Darn difficult to get around. It's so Dark brutal. Ritual Gloom on turn one. You're talking about turn four until they can even play Savannah Lions. And if you have Sinkhole or anything like that, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's so good. <laughs> Super brutal. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's a one-sided Tritosphere. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's rough. That's real rough. And because and because white is mono white is so good. I mean, it's one at least one, maybe two, of the Eternal Central, you know, Eternal Weekend, Eternal Central, yeah. old school events. I, I think I think Gloom is very close so, to being the best. I just had a funny thought, and that the example that you just used is one of the reasons why Tom Champagne's first Magic World Championship deck was white weenie splashing blue for sleight of mind. It's not because of gloom, oh, but it's because his of standard. His sta- yeah. yeah, and so the, if yeah. you're if you're a white weenie player in old school, just you know yes. consider tossing some tundras and sleight of mines in, and then <laughs> just the, your gloom. opponent goes yeah, your opponent goes ritual gloom. You just so slight that son of a gun to black and yeah. go about your business. That's hilarious. Stay tuned for more thrilling limited edition adventures in the next part of our episode 100 spectacular on so many insane plays. Ha, ha, ha.